What are germs? Germs are tiny, tiny little creatures that want to kill you. The human body is made out of many yucky parts, and it's important to keep germs away from all of them. Germs are everywhere, on the inside of windows, on pencils, on apples, in the U.S. mail, between your piggies, and especially on dirty, filthy cowboys. Bicycles are another breeding ground for germs. Never ever touch a bicycle with your bare hands. And dogs are full of germs too, so never let a dog eat your hair. Germs can enter the body in a number of ways. Whenever you get a railroad spike impaled through your head, germs have easy access to your brain. Even a tiny cut or scrape can be deadly. As soon as you're injured, immediately cover the open wound with crazy glue to keep the germs from getting in. How else can we fight this menace? One thing you can do is go to your doctor and have him look up your nose to see if there are any germs hiding there. When you take a shower, be sure to wash everywhere, especially the really stinky parts. And make sure you wash your hands 30 or 40 times a day. Or else a giant talking bar of soap will appear in your bedroom one night, and no one will ever hear from you again. Always burn your clothes immediately after wearing them. Whenever possible, have your dinner prepared inside a hyperbaric chamber. Rinse your mouth with hydrochloric acid after every meal. And if all else fails, run. Run for your lives before the germs get you too. Very useful tips there for you here on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Tellus. This is being broadcast live April 18th, 2020, 8.52 p.m. Pacific Time. You have just three minutes to get into the free roll. A $55 free roll. I expected to start the show earlier. I didn't think I'd be up against the three-minute wall, but I am. Actually, I'm not. You are. I'm not playing it. It doesn't matter to me. But it matters to you if you want to play it. It started at 8.30. You can sit, still sit down on the No Fraud Online Poker Room with three minutes left. $55, 30 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third. An anonymous donor gave $25. I thank him for that. And Landon Mark, who won $60 on June 14th, didn't claim it. So we've taken it back. And 30 of that money is going towards tonight. 30 will probably go towards next week. And uh, another $10 was donated at the last minute, but I'm going to hold that over till next week by uh, a listener who texted me shortly before the show. But I, I prepared it with 55, so we'll just stick with 55, especially because I didn't announce it uh, on the show until uh, three minutes beforehand. Uh, PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. All lowercase is how you read the rules, which you must know if you want to qualify for the free money. Don't just... Play without knowing the rules, or you might win, and then I won't pay you. I'm not going to pocket the money, but I, I may roll it back in the pool if you violated the rules. The rules are pretty simple, but you need to know them. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. All lowercase, just read it once, and I update it very infrequently. So once you know the rules, you're pretty much good to go. We have that just about every week, this tournament here on Poker Fraud Alert Radio, where you win free money. Which I will pay you by Zelle, by Cash App, by bank transfer, by Bitcoin, or by other methods that you might be able to think of that can be used to pay for things on the internet, especially like an internet auction. What do you use to pay for an internet auction on a very well-known internet au auction site? Uh, 
I can also pay you that way. So to claim your prize, I prefer you to PM me on the forum. That's Dan Space Druff on the forum. And you may say, well, I don't have a forum account. And then I will say, then you don't qualify. Ha ha. So you can PM me on the forum, Dan Space Druff, to claim your money. Or if you must, you can email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. Or text me, 775-372-8355. The reason it's better to PM me on the forum, and by PM I mean private message. The reason it's better to do that is I tend to send these out in batches, and I go through a bunch of them. And if it's in PM, when I send out the batch, I won't miss you. If it's emailed to me or sent to me via text, then I might overlook it. Not on purpose. I will never not pay you on purpose. But uh, occasionally, accidentally. And uh, if a long time passes and I don't pay you, just let me know. There's a thread on the Flying Stupidity portion of the Poker Fraud Alert forum listing all the winners and who got paid. And all of that is transparent, so you can see that I'm not pocketing the free roll money that goes unclaimed. As you can see tonight, we're landed marked and claimed 60 bucks back in June, and we're giving it away again. If six months or more passes since you won and you didn't claim the money, I may give it away. If I know you then I might hold it longer. But other than that, I'll probably, at some point after six months, maybe seven months, maybe eight months, whatever, I may just give it away. In this case, I took 10 months, and Landon Mark didn't come forward. So the money goes back to the pool, so thank you, Landon, for your inaction. We're going to have Trader Ruski on tonight. We're going to have Vintage One on tonight, our more common recent co-hosts. Vintage One able to do so because uh, his job is currently not going. He works behind the scenes in Hollywood, and he cannot work right now because they're not producing anything. So we're going to have them both on tonight for as long as they can stay up. We've had Saturday night shows recently, and I think we're going to stay with Saturday night shows for uh, some time. That just kind of seems where we landed, and that's what we're doing. I know a lot of you are happy that this show is continuing that we're doing kind of a combination of coronavirus coverage and just general topics in the world of poker and gambling. I know many of you like to hear the show during these trying times just to have an escape from everything going on and almost go back to normalcy. And if I didn't talk about the coronavirus half the time during the show, you might almost forget that it exists. To call the show, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. The Mount Charleston line is an old 70s rotary phone which sits on top of Mount Charleston in a cabin there. There is snow. There's fresh snow that's falling on Mount Charleston. 702-430-1808, 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. Those are two separate ways to call the show. Make sure to show your caller ID. Otherwise, you won't get through. You can text the show at the same main phone number, 775-372-8355. Don't text the Mount Charleston line. Don't. 775-372-8355 is the main show phone number and text number. You can text me anytime, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and I will probably respond to you, and I might read your text on the air, especially if it comes in during the show, unless you ask me at the beginning, please don't read on air. The call-to-listen line is a number you can use to listen to the show, which does not require a computer, a data plan, a smartphone. No, you don't need any of that. Just any phone in the world that can dial. doesn't matter how old. You can use the call-to-listen line to listen to the show, both the live show and, when it's not live, it'll stream reruns. 
which are picked from our library of more than 350 shows. Yes, we've done more than 350 shows. We really have. It'll pick one at random, dating between 2012 and the present, and it will run it as if it's live, and then when that's done, it'll pick another and another and another until we come back live again. That phone number is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736. There's the alternate number, 641 741 one zero nine five, just in case the first one's not working, which happens occasionally. Six four one seven four one one zero nine five. So two call to listen lines can be used. Do not feel bad about sitting on it for hours or going to sleep with it or forgetting to hang up. I don't pay the by the minute, so I don't care. Go ahead and run up the bill. I'm not the one paying it. Uh, it does not require any kind of app. You don't need an internet connection, and it never buffers. Never freezes, never buffers, it just plays right through. How many listening experiences do you ever have of internet shows where buffering just can't happen? I think this is the only one. I think it's the only one. And I made it that way because I hate buffering with a passion. And you guys all know that if you've heard the show before. The chat room requires a flash-enabled device, meaning no iPhones or iPads. It also requires that you're listening live, otherwise there's nobody to chat with. Just click the chat button near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. You need a forum account that has been validated and is in good standing to get into the chat room. And I don't read the chat very much. I read it occasionally during the show, but for the most part, it's to talk to each other. But I will eventually see your comments in there. I usually check once or twice during the show. Okay, so I'm going to find Trader Ruski. I'm going to find Vintage One, and then we will get going. You don't know how hard Skype has been trying to update itself. It's been a, a big battle. Skype has been really, really trying hard to sneak an update by me. I'm not kidding when I say that. But I have stopped it. I have prevented that. What's happening, that. Well, Trader Ruski, we almost had the situation where calls couldn't come in tonight because Skype it tried to sneak an update by me. It tried. I, I started ah. it for radio, and it's like, uh, please hold while we update. I go, ah, 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 and I canceled it. And then once it gets into that, then we get stuck in this little uh, situation where I can't start Skype without it updating. So I said, okay, I have my ways around this, and I uh, I did some battle with it, and the old version of Skype is running right now. So we're, I'm not going to let it happen until until Skype absolutely just won't work with this version. I'm sticking with this version because uh, every time Skype does an update, it's awful. Okay, so let's uh, find Vintage One, who's told me he will be on the show again tonight. And then I will do the agenda, and then we will get going. If you want to get into the free roll, tough luck. Seven minutes ago, that ended. That ship has already sailed. Fortunately, it's not one of our bigger free rolls, so you can... I guess you can live without the $30 top prize. That's still $30, Hello. though. Vintage One, welcome back to the show. Hey, what's up there, Druff? So glad to have you glad and have you. and, uh, and uh, Trader Ruski. Oh, we're getting an echo here. Is that on your end? Is that me? What's happening? Hey, what's up, Trader Ruski? Let's see. Is there an echo? Echo. 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 Oh, okay. All right. Here's the agenda, and then we'll get going. <laughs> I forgot about that. See, I can't win. There's ways to listen to the show. Listen to this. You hear that? That that was 
that's actually very faintly. Th- yeah, that was my Amazon Alexa device, and I changed it from the wake word being Alexa to the word Echo. And the reason I did that was because when I described that you can use Amazon Alexa to listen to the archives of this show, which you can, you can just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Every time I did that, Alexa would turn on in the background. And I said, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, I can't do that. So I changed its name to Echo, and then when I'm saying there's an Echo, then it went on again. I can't win. I, I wish you could just change it to some obscure word. I wish you could change it to, like, banana or something. Then then this would never happen. Okay, so here's the agenda. Lon McCarron is in controversy right now. And this this is happening today. This is going on right now. I never thought I'd say that. I didn't think he'd be involved in controversy. I mean, he's been broadcasting the World Series for many, many years now, for more than 15 years. And he's a mild-mannered guy. He doesn't say or do much controversial. Norman Chad, he will sometimes say controversial things, but not Lon. But Lon is the one in the hot seat because he has been out there defending Stones and Mike Possel and saying that, how do we really know that the cheating was really happening? I saw that. And then he had the nerve to attack Veronica. Very, very bad. So we're going to talk about that as our lead story. And uh, boy, is he wrong on this one. This this is a position you definitely don't take if you're trying to get jobs in poker or trying to keep your job in poker. That is a very, very, not only unpopular take, but just very nasty to do given the clarity of what occurred there with Mike Possel. Oh, and there's so many people licking their lips for that job. He's got to be real careful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, a... Professional gambler, and when I say professional gambler, it should be in quotes because they don't believe he's a professional gambler. But uh, a self-styled professional gambler named Christopher Mitchell with a very, very shady and controversial past has been attempting to sell his blackjack and baccarat training through YouTube. And uh, he's been doing this for a while now. Of course, he can't... uh, bring you into any casinos right now but uh he does a lot of videos about this at at one point recently when the casinos were open he was selling his training for twenty five hundred dollars per person which is pretty steep given that the guy doesn't seem to know what he's talking about and seems to be selling people a system that does not work and that one i think he knows does not work but uh, this was brought to my attention by a poker fraud radio listener who goes by jeff dime and he posted it on the Scam Scandals and Shadiness Forum. And I watched this guy's videos, and they were comedy gold. They were hilarious. And there's also a lot of drama surrounding the guy because people are calling him out as a scammer, and he's responding to them. And uh, I'm going to play some of these videos. And you're going to hear Christopher Mitchell. And then I'm going to issue a challenge to Christopher Mitchell because this is what he likes to do. If, if people question him, first of all, he likes to just delete their comments and censor what they say if he has control of that. But... He also likes to issue challenges to people who question him. So I'm going to issue a challenge to him, and uh, I doubt he'll accept it. But I will play his videos, and you'll get to learn all about him. I didn't know he existed until a few days ago. But thank you to that listener, Jeff Dime, who brought that to me. This is going to be a funny segment. Phil Galfond barely edged Venny Vitti in the final day of the challenge. He won by a very, very small margin, and he has immediately moved on to play Bill Perkins. And there was a bit of a surprising result in the first day of that. So we'll talk about what happened there with Galfond. A Perlot Friedman update. I know you guys want one. 
I know you guys want one. I know you guys have been following his marriage drama and the issues he's had there while trapped at home with his much younger wife and how they seem to put all their drama on Twitter. Well, there's been more. And I know you're all going to be shocked by this because this never happens with Prahlad, but he actually said and did something hypocritical. Prahlad? Come on. Yeah, that's that's never him. He, he always no. is very consistent. If he says that he thinks something's bad, then he won't do it. If he says something's good, he will do it. And he's he never deviates from that. Very, very principled guy. I know you're shocked, but I'm going to have to put this out anyway. I have an update on a, an old story from a few years ago. The PPC Poker Tour, the one in Aruba that laughably told people that they can't pay them after they win – that they can collect the money after they fly back home to the U.S. And somehow people thought this was okay for years and just kind of accepted it and didn't suspect that maybe this was a Ponzi scheme. Well, it was a Ponzi scheme. So eventually, of course, like all Ponzi schemes, it crashed down, and the last version of the PPC Aruba in late 2016, the final table, nobody got paid more than $10,000, including the winner who won $123,000, and he got 10000 of it. So a, a lawsuit was filed. And then we kind of forgot about the story. So I'm going to give you an update. There's an update on the story, courtesy of Chad Holloway, a good reporter for Poker News. Nice guy. He's the one who actually did the story on me and uh, my return to the World Series of Poker after my uh, psychological issues that I had and then got over and was able to play and make it deep in the main event. So he did that article about me, and he did the article about this. I always enjoy his articles, and I'm going to tell you everything that uh, Chad found in his investigation of how this whole case played out. Coronavirus discussion tonight. We're going to have uh, several coronavirus topics, including, of course, the potential Vegas reopening, which people are discussing. That'll be uh, one of our first coronavirus topics, but we have a number of coronavirus topics, which, as we've been doing recently, will appear in the middle of the show. Then, after we're done talking about the coronavirus, uh, we've got four topics after that. A weekly poker game that took place in Florida that went all the way until mid-March, a home poker game, where everybody was between the ages of 71 and 94. Does that sound like a smart thing to do in mid-March? Well, if the answer is no, you're correct. And three of those people at that small home game are no longer around to regret that decision. Every single person got the coronavirus at that game. So I'll tell you about what happened there and why you have to watch out for these home games, especially if you're old. Poker Stars is hitting some high stakes poker players with a new anti money laundering form. Not anti money, but anti money laundering form. This is where when you want to cash out, you have to convince poker stars that your money was acquired legally. I don't mean that you won on the site. This is not about cheating or anything. This is about the money you deposited in the first place. Was it legal money? I've never seen that before, but I actually have a copy of the form that was sent to me by someone who was sent the form and told he had to be had to fill it out. So I'm going to describe the form to you. It's not posted anywhere. I might post it later. It's not posted anywhere, but I will describe it to you and read to you what it says. Pretty interesting. Speaking of poker stars former poker stars front man the face of poker stars daniel negranu 
is currently promoting GG Poker, but this isn't really about him. This is about GG Poker. They're actually partnering with the World Series of Poker dot with WSP, not WSP.com, but they're partnering with the World Series of Poker, interestingly, and not on WSP.com, to present a super circuit online series where you can win circuit rings by playing online, not at WSP.com, but on GG Poker. And you may say, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Maybe they'll have the bracelet events there in place of the live WSOP, which is very, very unlikely to go anytime soon. One little problem, though. For the Super Circuit online series, which is being promoted as a global series, Americans can't play. (laughs) Great job, guys. Finally, I'm going to do a movie review. Remember back in November, I told you about Vince Van Patten's Seven Days to Vegas movie? And I, I said, I said it's four, uh, four dollars to watch on various online streaming services. And I even said it looked interesting enough to where I probably plunked down the four bucks to do it. Well, it wasn't even because I was a cheap Jew. I just forgot to do it. I kind of forgot it existed, and I never ended up uh, watching it or paying the four dollars. And I had forgotten all about it until I saw a tweet that it is now free. And I said, "Oh boy, free! Okay, I must watch this." So. That night, I brought it up on uh, Amazon Prime, which is the way you can watch it for free, and I watched it. So I'm going to give you my review of Seven Days to Vegas, which is now available for free on Amazon Prime, and uh, I'll tell you how I felt about it. Caller, you're on the air. Yeah. Hey, is this Poker Fraud Alert Radio? No, you you got the wrong number. This is Domino's Pizza. No, I'm, I'm with a girl here, and she's your biggest fan, Todd. Okay. Uh, who is it? It's this blonde girl. She wants to say hi. A blonde girl. Is this someone I know? Uh, they've read about you on the internet. They've read about me. Okay, I, I'm a little afraid of this, but go ahead. Go ahead. Hi, Todd. Hi. Okay, so uh, so have I ever met or spoken to you before? No, Todd. You have not. Okay, that's good. That's that's a good start. Okay, so how are you, my biggest fan, or is this guy just messing around? We listen to you. You all the time. Really? Okay. And, and where are you located? Florida. You're in Florida. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you listen. I'm glad that uh, you're a fan of mine here. Now, do I know your boyfriend? Is this your boyfriend? Your husband? Who was who the one who first called me here? We don't know each other, Todd. You don't know each. You're just strangers just, that, that listen to I my show. I just wanted again? to uh, confirm for your listeners, you do have at least one female. Fan. Okay. Well, and that's good. I'm, I'm. I'm happy. Every every female that I have listening to the show. Every uh, very old person listening to the show, every very young person listening to the show, and uh, even uh, any uh, black or Hispanic people listen to the show. I'm happy to have them because there's not many of them. There's, there's too many too many white males between uh, 35 and 55 listening to this show. So anything that, that breaks out of that about the blacks or Hispanics, what what's what's that mean? And because because it's outside of my normal demographic. It drops drops hiring a diversity and inclusion person. Right. Yeah, that's the thing. I, 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 I'm so getting. Todd, I'm, you're requesting for all your Hispanic fans to call in just to let you know. Well, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm getting uh, as Trade Risky said, I'm getting diversity coaching where I'm being told how I can better appeal to those outside my main demographic of of white males, 35 to 55. <laughs> okay. All right, well, Todd, just one thing real quick. Yeah. One time I was in the car listening to your show, and this this lady was with me, and you were doing a segment about how Gatorade is very bad for your teeth, and 
she was just disgusted and made me turn it off. And neither one of us has drank Gatorade since then. So I do hold you responsible for ruining that drink for both of us. It sounds like you should hold me responsible for keeping your teeth cavity free. It it sounds like I've improved your dental hygiene. Well, that's true. So we, we thank you for that. You know, you know what's sad is I—I've I, I, actually been drinking Gatorade still, but uh, that's okay. You do, I'm kind of like a Perlot style hypocrite. No, I, I, I can I, I've seen pictures of you. You got to get in shape, man. Well, how much do you weigh? No, I was worried. The last one I saw, Todd. I'm not trying to be rude. She, she thought that was a rude comment. I'm worried about you, Todd. Well, which, I know what, I what was the picture you saw? What you was need the... to be drinking water. I know I drink, I drink a lot of water. How, what was the last picture you saw of me? Where where was I looking so heavy? On your forum, you were getting a lot of negative feedback, and you weren't happy about it. Well, uh, this may have been after. See, I lost a bunch of weight a year and a half ago. If you listen to the show, I'm sure you know that I lost. The I don't know how recently this was, Todd. This was just the last picture I saw. I'm okay, just passing on what. Okay, well, that's, what I saw. I mean, I'm glad you're worried about me. Not, yeah. Well, all right, Todd. Have a nice night. Okay, thank you. Uh, good to always talk to Parker Broderick. Okay, thank you. Bye. All right, that, that was a very bizarre call. I want to begin with the Lon McCarran topic. I was surprised to see this when someone said, hey, look at this tweet involving Veronica and Lon McCarran. I, I didn't expect to see what I did. But sometimes people surprise you, especially when uh, money can be involved. Money corrupts a lot of people you didn't think were were bad. And I'm not saying Lon McCarran's bad, but definitely he's made a mistake here at the very least. And uh, so I'll I'll tell you what's going on here. So, of course, you know the Mike Postle story. We've been covering that extensively on here. And you know probably that the Mike Postle story took place at Stone's Casino, which is in Sacramento, I have gone there once in my life. It was in September 2017. I went there to play a streamed 100-200 Limit Hold'em game, which fortunately Mike Postle was not part of because he had not begun to cheat yet. He was pretty close, but hadn't started yet. I, if he had been starting, I bet he would have been in that game, 100-200 Limit. But fortunately, he was not there. I would never have seen that coming. <laughs> I would have been like, how does this guy How is this guy so good? I've never heard of this Mike Postle guy before. How is he so good at Limit Hold'em? Fortunately, he wasn't in my game. But that was the only time I was there. I did meet Justin Caratus, who is the accused accomplice here for Mike Postle. And as you guys all know, that Mike Postle is being accused of cheating for a year and a half on the live stream from Stones and was able to see people's whole cards probably by staring down at his phone, which was always in his lap while he was playing. Like as, as he was in every hand, instead of looking at his opponent or at, at the chips or at the board, his head was always down staring at his crotch where his phone was. So it doesn't take a genius to know what was going on there when he was making these spectacular plays that one could only make if they knew what their opponents held. So you guys... Hey, Druff, Druff, how did you make out in that game, by the way? In that game, I see there was something screwy with the stream. It didn't start when it was supposed to, so it started a little bit late. And uh, I won like 1700 bucks in the game, which isn't a whole lot for 100-200, but I was down most of the way. And at one point I was uh, like, I think 3800 down. I I, th- I just was not hitting flops at all. For it, like, I went back and watched the stream, and I couldn't find one hand where I felt I played badly. And in fact, I I was proud of some tight folds I made that were correct and things like that. Like I didn't make one mistake where um, I did something and should have done something else. But I just wasn't catching cards. 
And, uh, and, and I think on the stream itself, I about broke even, uh, but, uh, then we played a bit after and before the stream. So I, I ended up like 1700 ahead. And was just, there food delivery to this table? Or? There actually was. See, see Justin, <laughs> Justin Caratus, I'll tell you, Justin Caratus, I liked him at the time. And of course, a lot of people who, who scam and rip people off are very likable until you find out what they're doing. Now, he didn't rip me off at all, but, uh, he helped arrange the hotel room for me. I stayed in a hotel there in uh, the area, and he uh, he got the arranged the free food to be brought to me, not just for me but for other players. But he was the one you deal with, and he was very nice and friendly and uh, very cooperative. And I, I thought nice things about him. And in fact, the Poker Fraud Alert forum members they uh, were in the chat while I was playing, and that the forum members love to descend upon chats of anything they're interested in, especially if it has to do with someone from the site, especially if it has to do with me. So. Just like they did when I appeared on Live at the Bike, they, they were trolling the chat <laughs> and and, uh, and and saying all these outrageous things and, and hoping that Justin and the other commentator would repeat it, which sometimes they did. And it took a while for Justin to realize that they were trolling him there. So, <laughs> And then I talked to him at the end. I said, oh, I'm sorry for the people on my site if they were trolling too hard. He says, no, no, no. I thought it was funny. It was very entertaining to have them there. So he had a very good attitude about it. And I said, oh, what a nice guy. Until I learned that he was probably part of the possible cheating scandal. Now, I don't think he's so nice. <laughs> But uh, at the time, I thought very nice things about him, and, uh, and I enjoyed my experience at Stones. The food wasn't even bad. So anyway, especially, in fact, it was pretty good by card room standards. The area wasn't that great, but that's that's the way it goes with card rooms usually. Anyway, uh, Stones is where it took place. You guys know that too. And we've been covering the lawsuit that has been filed through attorney Mac Verstandig, who deals with, it seems like, most of these poker-related cases. But he filed a civil lawsuit on behalf of 88 players and then a separate civil lawsuit on behalf of uh, one player, Marley Cordero. We've talked about that recently against both Mike Possel and Stones and also Justin Caratus. They, they all have the, 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 these lawsuits. Uh, the Marley one's different. That's just against Possel. But the, the class action suit is against Stones, Justin, and Mike Possel. Now, Stones itself was not just an innocent victim in all this. Stones... Clearly, first of all, there uh, there had to be some kind of inside cooperation. I don't know for sure if it was Justin. He was the one in control of the whole thing, and he acted suspiciously in many ways, and he helped cover it up when Veronica Brill, who was a commentator and sometimes player in the game, uh, brought it to him six months before she brought it out on Twitter, and he dismissed her and said she just doesn't understand Mike Possel's uh, intense level of play, that it's just over her head, and talked down to her. And she actually kind of bought it. She kind of felt bad and, and kind of uh, just let this go for six months, especially because a lot of people involved were her friends, including she became friendly with Mike Possel. She didn't want to be the one like falsely accusing someone of cheating. That's a very serious accusation, of course. So she let it go for six months until she saw enough to where she couldn't keep quiet anymore, and she was the one who was the whistleblower. We had her on this show on a, on a past episode, and she was the biggest hero in this whole thing for sure. Uh, unfortunately, uh, she has been under fire from various trolls, various pro-Mike Possel trolls, some of whom are anonymous, some of whom aren't, that harass her constantly as if she did something wrong, which is insane. And that, that pisses me off. Some of them have been so vicious. Like She, she actually lost a young child, which very, very, very uh, tragic thing and very, very tough for anyone to go through. She, I think, lost a two-year-old, three-year-old, something like that. and Not recently, but you know, a while back. And 
one of the trolls actually had the nerve to mock her about that. I mean, it's just uh, and say some really nasty things about this. Some of these trolls have just been horrible. And why? Because she exposed the cheating scandal? She should be getting accolades everywhere, which she is from a lot of people, including me. But it's amazing that there's actually a number of trolls that harass her about this and and uh, are calling her into question. But Stones, they have been covering it up the whole way. They've never once admitted cheating occurred, even after those... Even with all of that, they haven't admitted there's any cheating. Uh, when it was reported to Justin, he covered it up. And uh, even... At first, when the whole thing was brought out to Twitter, Justin, on behalf of Stones, lied and said that they did an investigation and cleared any kind of possibility of cheating, which, of course, wasn't true. Then after there was a lot of uh, outrage about this, and I said, OK, now we're going to do a real investigation. <laughs> so you guys know all this stuff. I'm just kind of recapping it for anyone who may have forgotten because this all blew up back in October. And a lot has happened in the world since October, especially the last few months. So... Uh, Lon McCarran, of all people, has gotten involved in this. And you may say, that's very random. Why would he, of all people, choose to get involved in this, and especially to get involved in this on the opposite side of all the players? Remember, this Mike Possel matter is something which united the poker community more than anything I've ever seen in my life. I've never seen the poker community, which tends to argue about everything and be at odds about everything. I've never seen them all come together, even people who hated each other, and all got together and agreed, yes, Mike Possible was cheating. Yes, Stones was enabling it in some way, or at least some of their employees were. And yes, Stones is covering this up and acting awful. Like that. Everybody in poker agrees with this, who, who watched this. And when I say everybody, I really mean everybody, except a few select friends of Mike Possible and a few select people who have a relationship with Stones or its employees or its ownership. I can't find a single, like, truly neutral person coming into this who didn't agree when this was all done that Mike Possel had cheated. Why? Because it was obvious. If you watched enough videos, you watched Joey Ingram's analysis, it was obvious. There were so many examples, and you couldn't find any counterexamples. Possel was not even smart enough to purposely lose some decent-sized pots to, quote, prove he wasn't cheating. He was so greedy, every medium-sized to big pot on the streams where he cheated, he won. There were a few streams where, for whatever reason, he wasn't cheating, I think because Justin wasn't around. Like, Justin was at the World Series and doing other things. But the, any stream where he played suspicious hands, you could not find a counter hand of any decent size where he lost. Where he, uh, he, where he got cooler, he always managed to lose the minimum. He never bluffed if he was into a hand that he knew would call him. He never put a lot of money in if he was behind. And he'd make amazing hero calls for huge sums of money if he was ahead. And he'd rebluff if he was behind but knew the person would fold because they had a weekend. Always. It was very consistent on every single stream he was accused of cheating. You didn't find like three suspicious hands but then two big pots he lost where where it didn't look like he was cheating. Nothing like that. Not once. And that's what I say to anyone who thinks that Mike Possible might be innocent. Find me on any stream where he's accused of cheating, one medium to big hand where he actually lost more than he should have and the pot was medium or larger. Never. And that's because he could see the whole cards. So it's annoying when people come forward and try to defend him. 
Because they always have an agenda. They always, always have an agenda. It's either to back him up because they're his friend or they, they want to defend Stones in some way because Stones looks terrible. It's not like Stones says, uh, oh, this is terrible. We're going to look into it. And they made heads roll and they uh, fully cooperated. They've, they've been covering this up the whole way. They even lied about their, quote, investigation. Their second, their first, both investigations they lied. They, they lied about the first investigation taking place at all. And the second investigation where they hired a, quote, independent person to investigate, it was their own attorney, which, of course, they didn't disclose until it was discovered. And uh, then the investigation just fell by the wayside and they, they never gave any conclusions. So they've been super dishonest the whole way. And you should not give stones any business. They're awful. And they ha- they're just thinking of their own liability here. Now, I don't think the ownership at Stones knew that Postle was cheating. I think Justin did, and I think anybody else in the booth who might have been helping did. I think Stones' uh, management above Justin didn't know, but they're not going to admit it because they don't want liability, so they'd rather just give a big middle finger to the poker community, so screw them. Anyway, where does Lon McCarran fit into this situation? Well, uh, a guy who posts on Twitter named uh, Pocket Abes, that's A-B-E-S, like the name Abe, and he, his name on Twitter is just Abraham, at Pocket Abes, that's Pocket Abes with an S. I've actually communicated with him before. He is a Sacramento area player. He knows some stuff about the possible situation, like more than the average person does. He has some kind of connections of people that have played there and worked there. Anyway, he's taken an interest in this story for obvious reasons. And he wrote this earlier today, this morning, at La McCarran. At Thunder Valley, which is another casino in the area, I witnessed you defending Stones Stones to players at the table, telling them not to blame Stones and encouraging them to still play there. Now, this couldn't have been recently because Thunder Valley's not open, but he... This got brought up here by this Pocket Abe's guy, basically saying, Lon, why were you doing this? Why were you at Thunder Valley defending stones when people are talking about the possible thing? So Lon McCarran responded, If you have evidence of blatant cheating by stones, let me know. But in reality, show me a casino where cheating has not taken place. Do you blame the house? All right, so many wrong things with that response. So many wrong things with that response. He's clearly got a horse in the race somewhere. He does. No, I already know what it is. <laughs> but yeah. but uh, so many things wrong with that response. First of all, if you have evidence of blatant cheating at Stones, yes, go watch Joey Ingram's many videos on the topic. Very, very strong evidence of blatant cheating. Maybe it's not going to hold up in court, but any reasonable person deciding did Possible cheat or did he not cheat especially one who knows about poker, will watch that and say 100% possible cheated. 100%. So to say if you have any evidence of blatant cheating by Stones, well, okay, so we know Possible was cheating, so how was he doing it? Is Possible a master hacker who somehow uh, broke into Stones' stream? And somehow even when this was reported to uh, Justin Caritas six months before the whole thing blew up on Twitter, still nothing was done? They still didn't bother to look why? Like, if they really wanted to stop the cheating at Stones, think about this one. In case you think, well, maybe Stones didn't know, maybe Possible hacked it himself. Think about this one. It's reported to them that he's doing this. And then for six, he continues playing for six months on the stream, staring down at his phone in his crotch and winning every hand. And the the, the card room doesn't go, hmm, 
people are saying he's cheating. He's constantly looking at his lap on the phone during every hand. No, total normal behavior. We won't bother to ask him or to see his phone. Obviously, they knew. Obviously, they knew. If they were interested in stopping cheating, they would watch him. What's he doing? He's staring down at his crotch during every hand and then making these amazing plays. What do you do then? You walk up behind him and say, Mike, what's on your phone? What's in your lap there? And then uh, you try to bust him. (laughs) In fact, maybe have security come over and just grab the phone. They didn't do that. Six months since Veronica reported, they didn't do that. They made no effort to stop it because they wanted it to continue and they thought they could just dismiss Veronica. You're stupid. You don't know what you're talking about. You're just an amateur player. And uh, they continued. So there's some evidence of blatant cheating by Stones. But go watch the videos. Chicago Joey did the whole thing. And then the second part of that tweet, in reality, show me a casino where cheating has not taken place. Do you blame the house? Well, if the house is in cahoots, yes, big time. Now, if cheating takes place where the house can not be expected to have caught it because they can't watch everything at once, fine. Like at Commerce, with all the tables they have there, if somebody scratches something on the back of the card to mark the card, I will not blame Commerce for not catching that on the camera because Commerce cannot hire the amount of staff to watch every single one of those tables. So that's that's the type of thing, and we talked about that last week, the duty of care. You can't expect a card room to catch every instance of cheating going on at the poker table. That's what the players are supposed to do. But at the same time, if the house is either involved in the cheating or is informed about cheating that they're not involved in and they fail to investigate it or take steps to prevent it from that point, then yes, you do blame the house. So that's a that's a stupid thing he's saying. Okay, next, uh, Veronica brought out something that was interesting. She wrote, Abe is right. Lon sent me a nasty message and refused to be my friend after I went public and is adamantly defending stories for reference, at Abraham used to work tech at Stone's Live. I guess that's his connection. I knew he had some connection. I didn't know he used to work tech. She's saying that as soon as she went public back in September of 2019, that Lon, who was on very good terms with her and was friendly with her, just stopped being friends with her. He treated her like he didn't want to know her anymore and was defending Stone's at every turn. So much that he's at the poker table at Thunder Valley, a different casino, and still defending Stones. Like, I can picture this. People are at the poker table going, ah, I'm glad we're not at Stones, those fucking cheaters. And and Lonza, actually, Stones didn't cheat. If you think about it, there's no evidence that they cheated. In fact, there's not even evidence Pasta cheated. And if he did, you know, Stones, you can't blame them for that. They uh, There's cheating at every casino. And they you know, go on and on and on defending Stones. So not only is he publicly defending Stones, not only is he privately defending Stones at poker tables, but he also ceases from being friendly with people who had anything to do with calling out Postle and the cheating. Almost like it pisses him off. Almost like Lon is angry that Veronica dared to do this. So that's just really, really bad. And that goes beyond just maybe Lon is delusional and thinks that they're innocent. He's He's taken an extra step there, which is pretty bad. Um, I, I was... Oh, this is interesting. <laughs> this, Abraham's listening to the show. 
Well, th- thank you, Abraham. I'm glad you're listening. He, he said he was mocking the uh, a tweet that uh, Lon actually made about Trump. I, I yeah, that's right. I looked. I went and looked back. I forgot that now. Yeah, that uh, Lon had made some kind of Trump-related tweet, and then Abraham then like went and related it to what Lon is doing regarding to Stones. So that's uh, here. I'll read you the exact tweet if you're wondering what started the whole thing. The exact tweet. Sorry, this is actually an anti-Trump tweet. In case you are a uh, Trump hater. And you're saying, oh, look, Lon is a Trump supporter. No wonder. No, actually, he's, a, he's the opposite. He's, the, he's a Trump hater. But he wrote, sorry, Eric, the buck stops with orange locks, referring to Trump. He must take the hit. The China ban was not enough. He did not understand what could happen. Others did, and he chose not to accept the data. So then uh, Abraham responded back, sorry, Lon, the buck stops with Stone's gambling. They must take the hit. The shutting down of the stream was not enough. Stone's did not, uh, did not understand what could happen. Others did, and Stone's gambling chose not to accept the data. Stop defending them. <laughs> Pretty good response, actually. Very true. Very true. It reminds me a bit of like when, when Prahlad Friedman goes out and uh, tweets a lot of the stuff he does, and then you can always apply it back to something he did. Like one time, Prahlad actually put out some kind of tweet, like, "Yeah, you know, there's, there's some people in poker, and and they think they're good people, but uh, they th- they think you can just forget about past misdeeds." I'm going, "What? That's you. That's you. That's you, Prahlad. You're the one who had uh, past misdeeds. You want people to forget about?" <laughs> he was actually cr- criticizing people that were scammers in poker and just kind of moved on and expect people to forget. But I'm like, Prahlad, that was you. He didn't realize he was talking about himself. But we'll talk about it for a lot later. Let's get back to Lon McCarron. So Lon McCarron, uh, that's what started the whole thing with him and uh, Abraham back and forth. And that was when uh, uh, that, so that's when they started to trade tweets. Abraham also said, uh, you all know that Lon McCarron continued to accept Stone's blood money even after you knew about the cheating. So much for being the voice of poker, which, which I'll get to shortly what he means by that. So let me let me read you something else related to Veronica that I was about to read, and then I noticed that I got that message from uh, Abraham. This is his explanation of why he doesn't like Veronica anymore. Because he, he saw that Veronica was complaining that he wouldn't be friends with her anymore after she went public about it. So he he had to give an answer to that, because that looks pretty bad, that not only does he defend them, but he actually cuts off a personal relationship with her for calling them out. So this is what he says. Veronica, when I asked you why you didn't go to the general manager, that is the general manager of Stones, you told me that you would just that they would just agree with the, t- the TD, meaning Justin, the tournament director. You could have just saved us all time by making the right decision back then and taking it upstairs. Oh, come on. She was the only one who reported anything. She went to who she thought she could trust there. In Justin Caritas, who seemed like a very nice and responsible guy. So she went to him, believing at the time he wasn't in on it, and said, Hey, Justin, your stream is being compromised by Mike Possible. I'm pretty sure of this, but uh, um, can you please look into it? And Justin, he should have been the one to go to the general manager. If he didn't, then obviously... And I'll bet, he told, I'll bet he told her he did. Too, you know? Right, he may have done that too. He may have told her that he did. I don't know if he did or did not. But, uh, but, but can you imagine? Uh, Veronica is the only one who not only went to Justin about this at the time, but also 
was the only one to put her reputation and friendships on the line reporting this on Twitter in September and broke open the whole scandal. She was the only one with the balls. It was a female who had the, the only one with the balls here to go out and put this on Twitter about someone who she was friendly with, Mike Possel, about someone that was even better friends with some of her good friends, and that if she was wrong, everyone would have hated her in her entire social circle there in the Sacramento area poker scene. So she was really risking a lot bringing this out there for the good of poker. This is a, a, a hero. And he has the nerve, Lon has the nerve, not only to stop being friends with her over this, but also to say that uh, you didn't do enough, Veronica. You, you didn't go to the general manager. You could have saved us all a lot of trouble. Well, okay, Lon, now we know everything, and you're still defending Stones. So you're saying she should have gone to the general and manager. How, how would that have saved trouble? What would he, what would he think would be different? He thinks that if she went to the general manager, the general manager would have put a stop to it sooner. But, okay, let's say she did. Let's say she did. And let's say, even in the best-case scenario, the general manager scared Justin enough to, at the very least, he stopped. You know what? Then all we have is six months less of cheating. We still had a, a year of cheating prior to that. Or maybe more. I forgot the exact date it started. And uh, and we still don't have any of the justice. And we still like everything's the same. And also, again... She did what she thought was right at the time. She went to someone who was in management there and reported it. She went to the person directly in charge of it who she thought she could trust and reported it. Just because later on it became clear that Justin was probably in on it doesn't mean that she did the wrong thing going to Justin. It appeared that he was a responsible person there. It appeared that he was a nice guy. It appeared that he yeah, it didn't appear he was the one in charge of the game. Of course you go report it to him. Could she have also gone to the general manager? Yeah, sure, but uh, was this expected of her? No. No. And as Trader Ruski said, uh, he may have even said, hey, I, I told the general manager about this. Only if she thought he was doing it should she have gone to the general manager, but clearly she didn't go to him if she thought he was in on it. And now we think he's in on it, but that's uh, in hindsight. So this is insane. And to, to attack the, the biggest hero of the whole story is just such bad form. Veronica was a hero, and to attack her for anything that she did here or for not doing enough as a joke. What really uh, bothers me here is this is not just some troll. She, Veronica's been harassed by a lot of trolls, and that's, I hate reading that. I hate seeing it. But this is Lon McCarran, of all people, that's attacking her, saying she didn't do enough. Unbelievable. And keep in mind, she was a victim in the game, too. She got cheated in the game herself. She didn't just see it happen. And she was putting on these games. She was inviting her friends there. She was. She was someone who was very involved in the whole thing, and she felt like a fool for leading lambs to that slaughter when she didn't know that the apostle was cheating. So she was a victim of this thing in so many ways. She continued to be trolled by, by awful people who were backing apostle in this whole thing. And now Lon McCarran is piling on. It's unbelievable. Now, Vintage once said that he thinks that Lon has a dog in this fight. And that's true. He does. From cardplayer.com, Dated September 2nd, 2015, the following article was published. Stone's Gambling Hall, located in Northern California, and Lon McCarran, veteran broadcaster and poker personality, have partnered up. According to a press release, McCarran has agreed to share his playing experiences at Stone's with the poker playing community. He will begin leveraging his extensive social networks and attending select live events at Stone's, which began with his participation in the last Sunday's tournament on August 30th, 2015. 
We've worked hard to create an exceptional experience for poker players, said Stone's Gambling Hall, as a trusted name in poker. <laughs> Lon's insights and firsthand experiences in our card room will help spread the word that playing Stones at Stones is different. Well, that's true. Playing at Stones is different. That I will agree with. That is 100% true. McCarran said that about the partnership. When I recently moved to this area, I was excited to learn that the Sacramento region has such a strong poker community. Stones has shown me that they are serious about creating the best experience possible for the player, be it tournaments, cash games, or special events. I am thrilled to be part of this effort to make Stones the place to play. So they had a business partnership that started in 2015. You may say, well, okay, that's four and a half years ago. Yes, but that was still in effect last I saw. I saw more recent articles about Lon McCarran and Stones. I saw one in 2018. I have to assume either it's still going on or it went on for a while. So even if it ended, it, it went on for a while and he, he made plenty of money from it. So obviously he has a closeness to Stones here. Obviously he has a dog in the fight. Obviously there's a financial reason behind what he's saying. And that's very disturbing. At best, and this is when I say I don't. Has, Nor- has Norm said anything about it, Jeff? Sorry to cut you off. I haven't has seen. Has Norm made any statement or? No, I haven't seen. And, and I will say this: I was thinking about it. I was like, I wonder if Norman Chad is going to comment. But remember my story from the 2019 main event, where Norman Chad happened to see me sitting next to one of his friends, and actually told the table that he likes me and he likes Poker Fraud Alert because I call out a lot of bad elements in poker, which unfortunately there's. Too many of them, but it's good there's people like me calling them out and that everyone should pay attention. And Very nice things he said to everyone at the poker table. He like stopped the play and said, okay, I want to tell you guys something here and told them about me. So I don't think somebody who appreciates my work against uh, poker scammers would be uh, commenting on Mike Postle's behalf. I have a feeling that uh, Norman Chad probably facepalmed when he read this. And to be fair, Norman Chad's takes on poker that he's posted on Twitter in the last year or so, they've all been like about tournament structure and stuff, but they, I've agreed with everything he's written recently. I, I'd be very surprised if he were to comment on this on Lon's behalf. So at the very best, Lon is doing this because he's been bamboozled by the owners of Stones. He just doesn't know much about it. He got friendly with the ownership there because they were hiring him, and he got to know them, and, they, and he says, hey guys, what's this about? And they convinced him that this is just... A lot about nothing. Or maybe even that they confided in him, look, it's possible that this was happening. It's possible that that, uh, that Justin was involved, but we knew nothing about this. This is going to hurt us so much. You know, we're trying to run a good card room. We, were, we had no idea. And if we, we, you know, the problem is if, if we work hard to prove this was really happening, then there's going to be massive lawsuits against us. It's going to ruin us forever. We were very ashamed this happened, but we just have no way to say it. And, and this is this is ruining us, and uh, uh, maybe he feels bad for them. Who knows? I, I'm just guessing at these things. But uh, it's possible that he thinks that the ownership there is innocent and that he thinks that uh, they're getting a bad rap and the casinos are getting a bad rap, even if there were bad employees there. But I think it's more possible that he's just drinking the Kool-Aid. I think he's drinking the Kool-Aid that there's no proof of this, that if there is, hey, cheating goes on everywhere, it happens. So what's the difference between the cheating here and cheating in commerce or cheating anywhere else? So why is everyone vilifying Stone so much? They're great people. It's a great room. Stop being so hard on them. 
And I'm 100% sure he would not have these feelings if he did not have a business relationship with them. And I can say this because, number one, he does have a business relationship with them. And number two, I have not seen anyone who does not have some kind of relationship with them or with Postle defend him, especially prominent people in poker. And it's one of these things, if everybody's saying the same thing, if all the credible voices are all saying the same thing, then it has to be right. Because there will be situations, a lot of situations, where some, one take is right about a situation, one take is wrong, but you'll still have some credible and semi-credible voices on the other side saying, no, I disagree. But this is one where everybody with any kind of credibility at all in poker, whether a poker player, a poker media person, anyone, anyone in poker who has any kind of credibility says that Mike Postle was cheating and that Stones has been covering it up. And that Justin Kareda's acted very shady. That Stones has acted very shady. Everybody agrees with this take. Not because we're all sheep. Not because uh, there, there's social pressure to do so. Because everybody really feels that. And even people who appeared to be pro-possible, like Mike Matisau, it's not what it appeared to be. Let me just put it that way. And let me give some advice to anybody out there who is thinking of defending Mike Possel. Don't. Because everyone's going to get really angry. They're not going to like you. And you have no leg to stand on. You have no logical leg to stand on. I guess if you want to troll everybody, fine. But, I mean, pick something else to troll. Pick a different subject to troll about. This This is pretty bad. You know, for a year and a half, people were getting cheated on a live stream out of their hard-earned money. Probably some people who couldn't afford it. It's, it's pretty bad. It, it's a, a very bad thing that happened. And then the... Abuse that Veronica took on social media was also very bad and, and really upset me. And, and some of it, when I saw happening, I mean, the, the, the random trolls who make fake accounts to do it, there's not much you can do about it. But the real people that were doing it, some of whom weren't really very well known, but were real people, uh, I made sure to try to highlight like who they were and get people to pay attention because people have to live with their words. And like that woman who had the nerve to mock Veronica about her uh, child that passed away at a very uh, as a toddler. I mean, that's just uh, to do that. That was a woman. That was a woman who did it. Yes, a woman in the San Diego area. Unreal. Yeah, I couldn't believe it when I read that. It was a real person too. It wasn't a troll. I mean, it was a troll, but it wasn't a. Uh, it was a friend of Postles who used to, I think, work in, at the at the at Stones and. Uh, I mean, I couldn't believe what that woman wrote, but I've seen other trolls, some of whom were under real names, some under under fake accounts, and just she's constantly enduring attacks about this. And if if there's any anybody who doesn't deserve any attacking over this, it's her. And it, it just gets me upset. It gets me upset when someone who tries to do the right thing, when someone who not just tried, who did the right thing, and who called out something at great personal risk, great reputational risk, and did it because it was right, is getting attacked. And while the vast majority of people in poker think positively of Veronica in general and regards to the situation, it, it bothers me to see there there shouldn't be any attacking. There shouldn't be any trolls. And the fact that it's still going on now, the fact that Lon McCarron is is, uh, is joining into the fray, it's crazy. So that that's going on today. You should try to get Norman Chad on the on the uh, on the show to talk about it, Jeff. I should. I doubt he'll talk about this because those two work together and have for so long, and, and so I can understand if he doesn't want to bash him publicly. Or right. 
Well, maybe it didn't necessarily be bashing him, but maybe it could be positioned that Vaughn just doesn't have all the information. Yeah. Plus, they want to stay relevant because everybody's trapped at home. You might, you know. You know what? It's not a bad at, idea, look at though. It as an opportunity. That's not a bad idea. Now, what's also not a bad idea is, is, is to stop the. It sounds like you're rubbing the microphone. The idea itself. Yeah, no, I'm going to. Ch- I'm changing microphones. Sorry. Okay. okay so, aside from that. Uh, it's it's actually not a bad idea to get Norman Chad on the show because he did express uh, a lot of positivity about me and the site and the show. That I think there's a good chance he'll come on. I, I just don't for some reason I, put, I don't put a lot of effort to get guests on here, and I should put out more. I just I, I hate when I go through some effort to get someone on here and then it doesn't work out or they refuse. I just I just feel so rejected and so sad, and I go no, I can't I can't keep doing this and getting rejected like this. Actually, I, I, you know what I think this kind of ties into? Some of you may not believe this, but I have been rejected very, very, very few times by women I have asked out in my life. Very few times. That My batting average with, with asking any women out and them going out with me is incredibly high. It, it's, almost, it's almost a thousand. But there's a reason for that. And that's because I would only do that when I was just about sure that the answer would be yes. And otherwise, I wouldn't. Not that I like hardly went out with any girls, but I'm saying like I was. A, I would always keep talking to them and keep watching for signs enough to where I'm like really, really sure before I uh, take it that direction. So I, I think I almost feel that way with the show. I'm afraid to ask someone to be a guest on the show unless I really think they're going to be on. I, I actually have tried recently. Like I tried to get that girl who that, that Asian grandma who claimed that uh, she's defending Postle to come on. I tried to ask around her life to come on. For some reason, with Postle stuff, I'm happy to ask people to come on here. But, like, the more friendly people I just haven't asked. Like, another person I, th- I bet would come on here, unrelated to this, is Lee Jones. Because Lee Jones uh, seems to think positively of me, at least at this point. So I should get him on sometime, too. I, I, I should, yeah, during this whole coronavirus thing, I should start trying to search for people to uh, bring on the show. Just uh, change things up, have some guests. But, okay, let's... Uh, let's uh, maybe, get, maybe get Vince to come on and talk about the movie. Well, yeah. Now that it's free, <laughs> it's like it'll be like, yeah. Why, why didn't you get anyone? Why didn't you get me on here in November when I was making money from this thing? Now, now everyone's watching it free. You, you know what I do wonder? Maybe you know the answer to this, or maybe Vintage One knows. Do, do they get anything when someone watches it on Amazon Prime, even though it's free for me? Like, well, they 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 probably sell it. By the way, Vintage One got bumped, and he I texted you or oh, okay, sent a Skype okay. message. I'll, I'll, put it, I'll put him back. But 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 um, patch him back in if you can. But um. I'm assuming that they license it, and maybe there's an upside, maybe based on the number of watches, but Vintage One would probably know. Okay, well, we're trying to put him back on here. I didn't realize we lost. No wonder we got so quiet. I thought maybe you were just going through. I thought, I thought you were just being quiet, Vintage One. I didn't know you were, you were gone. I got the boot. Oh, well, I don't know what happened there. So, Vin, do you know the answer to this? On on Amazon Prime, the ones you can watch for free, the like, like the Seven Days to Vegas, uh, do they get any money when individuals watch it, or... So there's some flat deal they have. They get a, a, a small, small little stipend for each download. Okay, so I guess I made uh, maybe, maybe like two cents for <laughs> for Vince Van Patten. Perhaps even if that, yeah, it, it goes through a lot of hands before it gets to Vince. That's that's what I figured. But uh, okay, well we'll talk about that toward the end of the show. You guys will probably be gone by then. But anyway, not not much. More to say about this. It's very disappointing to see the position that 
Lon McCarron took, and I hope he reconsiders. And I also, not just about the open social media statements about it, but just to stop going around to card rooms or anyone else. I mean, he's not going to card rooms now because they're closed, but just to, to stop telling people that Stones is okay here. Just stop. It's not. Stop saying it. If you don't want to bash them, that's fine. If you don't want to openly criticize Stones, who paid you for all these years of work for them, you have a good relationship with them and the ownership, and you don't want to bash them, either openly or privately, fine. I understand that. In a perfect world, people would forget about their past relationships with others, both uh, businesses and individuals, and when something bad happens, they'll jump out and bash them. That's in a perfect world, but it's not a perfect world. People are human when you have good and positive feelings about someone or something, it is harder to bring yourself to bash them when they do wrong. Okay, fine. I'm not expecting you to do that. But also, keep your mouth shut if they have done wrong. And even I have done that sometimes, where there's someone that uh, I like and I, I don't want to attack them, even though I've seen they've done something wrong, but I will never defend them. If I don't believe they're right... Especially when you're aging out in your main meal ticket... And like I said earlier, and there's tons of guys just waiting, just foaming at the mouth to take over. Well, yeah, and, and there's some people saying, like, well, this is a good time. Let's fire him and bring on Nick right. Shulman, who everybody likes. He's helping them make a decision. Now they can, they can instead of we've known you for 15 years, they can say, hey, look, the stance you've taken is forcing our hands. And right. they can take all the ownership away from Having they're instead of choosing to make the decision, they're being now quote unquote forced to make the right. decision. Right, that they could decide it's time to put uh, Nick Shulman exactly. in his place, and that's that. It's yeah, easier I, to get rid of you. You know, if that happens, I, I'm not a big believer in uh, in the cancel culture and, and having people lose their jobs over things they say. So I'm not going to say that uh, he should be fired over this. But if he does get fired over this, I'm not going to feel bad for him. Because he's right, different. and I'm, I'm with you on that. I don't think he should be fired for it. I'm just saying that he's helping them give a reason. If for some reason they wanted him to go, anyways, it's, he's making it a lot easier yes. on them. And also, if if they just read this and decide, hey, we don't like this, <laughs> you're gone. Then tough luck. Your words uh, right. will affect exactly. your 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 own employer. Always has the option to get rid of you if uh, if you do something to embarrass them on uh, even. If it's not your direct employer, it could be a, a contract employee situation like he probably has there. Well, any, anyone that's hiring you that doesn't want to hire you anymore because you make yourself look bad on social media, that is your fault. And this one's definitely his fault. This one, oh, yeah, there's no sure. question. He should If he thought positively of them, he should have kept his mouth shut because of how clear this is. And before saying anything, he should have researched it. If he, It's not like – I don't think he went and watched – like hours and hours of Chicago Joey's videos and came to the conclusion, no, I think Joey's wrong. I think he just listened to what Stone's told him and hasn't done any research on this and, and is shooting his mouth off. And he and he thinks that Veronica was a, a piece of crap who makes is making uh, Stone's look bad uh, with, without justification. And that's so inaccurate. That's, that's the opposite of accurate. And it, it bothers me to see this. And, sure. And Norman Chad's usually the salty one in that relationship. Yeah, I know. That's the funny thing. Is like the, he's usually the non-controversial one. And the funny thing is with Norman Chad, as I said, he seems like he's very anti-cheaters and, and very pro-calling them out. And this, this, this it looks like the Apostle thing, If I, from what I know of Norman Chad, probably really disgusts him. I think Norman Chad probably is really face-palming right now seeing all this. Comment on it, but I have to I have a feeling he's 
probably telling his wife, oh, my God, what, what is Lon doing here? <laughs> oh, yeah, he's texting Lon like, dude, shut the fuck up. Yeah. What, what an idiot. Okay, well, uh, that that was not very smart on Lon's part, and uh, we'll see if uh, anything further occurs. It's a developing situation. You can watch on Twitter if anything further goes on. And, by the way, good job, Pocket Abe's there on Twitter for calling out Lon McCarran and starting this whole conversation. You made the guy show his true colors on social media. Apparently he's been defending stones for a while, kind of privately, but you brought it out. You got him to say so. Kind of sucks that Veronica had to be attacked for it, but you, you brought the whole thing out. Now everyone sees. That was a good thing. Good job. Okay. Speaking of everyone seeing, I want to talk about a character that I was introduced to, not personally, but uh, to his videos and to all his antics. There would be a character named Christopher Mitchell. You probably haven't heard of him, unless you've been reading the Poker Fraud Alert forum in the last few days. But boy, this guy is a piece of work. <laughs> of course, with casinos having the edge, and with people having the experience that if they go to Vegas enough times, they lose. I'm not talking about poker players necessarily, but people who play casino games in Vegas. Unless you're an advantage player, you're going to lose over the long term. Yeah, you'll, you'll win sometimes in the short term, but you're going to lose in the long term playing Vegas casino games. Unless you really have working advantage plays, which require a lot of work and constant modification. And there's a lot of tedium, there's a lot of unpleasant parts to being an advantage player. It's not just a matter of just showing up to the casino at will and just having the edge on them and beating them. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's uh, a lot tougher than it appears, a lot more work than it appears so anyone who just kind of goes to the casino casually and claims they win, they don't. They're losing. They may win in the short term. They may be on a short, lucky streak. They may even be ahead for the moment if they haven't played that much. But if they, once they play a good amount, they're going to be done. Barring winning some kind of fluke, like million-something dollar jackpot, and the, then even then, a lot of people give it away. But uh, because we have people that are losing at casinos... In fact, that's almost everybody who plays in casinos over time. This brings people out who are scammers who seek to take advantage of those who'd like to turn the tables on casinos but don't wish to uh, engage in the tedious and difficult and uh, sometimes uh, even hard-to-access advantage play techniques but just people who claim to have systems or relatively simple ways to beat the casinos and to be a guaranteed winner at the casino every time you walk in. It can be very enticing, especially if somebody comes out and says, look, look at all this I have. Look at all the money I have. I, I have millions of dollars from beating the casinos, and I, I win every time I go in. Or I win almost every time I go in. And I'm beating for huge money, and I'm going to share my secrets with you. And once you learn from me, You'll be able to do it too. And again, it's not like an advantage player taking you under his wing and showing you his techniques and then you have to put in the work to get it done yourself. This is just like a magic system. You just learn a few things that somehow you've been overlooking all this time and, and then you'll have the, the magic strategies to beat the casinos. And there's there's been these type of scammers out there for a long time and they're not too different from the sports betting touts, the ones that show up and claim they have a magical way to beat the NBA or to beat the NFL or to beat baseball or to beat uh, one of some other sport 
beat the college uh, sports. And just follow them and pay them a lot of money, and they're going to give you just winning picks. They've got a magic system that beats the sports books at a, an insane rate. They win 70% of their games. Those are scams, and so are these casino scams. In fact, believe it or not, these casino scams are even more likely to be scams than the sports betting scams. There's a higher chance that someone who is giving you sports picks is actually giving you winning picks than there is that someone teaching you a system to beat the casino is teaching you a winning system. And keep in mind, I believe almost all the sports touts are frauds. (laughs) So... With that said, they're still more reliable than the casino ones because at least it is conceivable that someone could have a way to beat sports. There are people who beat sports and that they just might be interested in selling the picks rather than uh, dealing with the variance that comes with sports betting. So I'm not telling you to go run out and buy sports picks when sports starts up again because most of that is a scam. But at least there's a small chance that uh, the picks you're buying could actually be done through winning strategies. But, by the way, the most gimmicky of the ones selling picks are never legitimate. Absolutely never. And almost all of them selling picks are never legitimate, so don't let this fool you. But the casino system people, 100% of the time, they're scammers. Not even 99%. 100% of the time. Now, I want to make it clear, I'm not talking about the people who are selling advantage play techniques. There are advantage players who, again, they don't want to deal with the variance or uh, they just want to make some extra money that uh, sell some information, especially some information that's not as uh, secret. Because with, with advantage plays, there's ones that are widely known, there's ones that are sort of widely known, there's ones that are... That are uh, that hardly anyone knows about, and of course they're constantly changing. So I'm not even t- I'm not talking about the people who are training you to be advantage players, and who are legitimate and have some legitimacy in the advantage play community, which, by the way, is a pretty small community. So you can find out pretty fast if that person is a known advantage player and, and knows their stuff. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about the casino system guys, the guys who put out the gimmicky videos that tell you, pay me this much, and I'll teach you how to beat Vegas. And they usually don't even use the term advantage play. Usually they just talk about their system or I know how to beat the casino or they make outlandish claims about your guaranteed win every time. You hear stuff like that, 100% it's a scam. And these have existed for many years and suckers fall for it because people want to believe that the reason they're losing is because they just don't have the magic formula that a few chosen people have. There's another genre of scammers, or I should, maybe it's a subgenre, and that is there's the Christian scammers. Many scammers like to use religion, especially Christianity, to help perpetrate their scams. This is common with foreign email scammers. You know, when you get the Nigerian emails or the dating scam emails where... Uh, a woman wants to meet uh, men in the U.S. and uh, you see a picture of a beautiful girl just looking to meet a guy from the U.S. and in reality it's a dude on the other end with a stolen picture of a porn star and uh, he's just looking to separate you from your money. 
but often these have a Christian element to them. There's, there's male romance scammers that target older women, very good-looking guys, again, with stolen pictures, but uh, good-looking guys who are supposedly stationed overseas who are actually American and pretend to fall in love with uh, older women and scam them out of their money. So the, the dating scams go both ways with the genders. But what a lot of them have in common is that they use Christianity. They talk about God a lot. They talk about Jesus a lot. They talk about uh, their strong Christian faith. And the reason they do this is because fellow Christians can be a big target here. I'm not saying all Christians are gullible. I'm saying that a lot of people who are very religious have more trust in others who are religious especially gullible people who are religious. And I'm not saying all religious people are gullible. I'm saying those who are religious and gullible are more likely to fall for a scam where the person who is scamming them is claiming to be religious like they are. And uh, this is especially effective these days as there's a lot of uh, mocking of those who are religious. There's a lot of widespread uh, disdain from... Uh, a lot of mainstream sources that uh, tend to be making fun of people who are religious. So here's they're 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 talking to someone just like them who believes the same things they do and and has the same relationship with God that they do, and they trust the person a lot more if they're close to God. Like they like oh he's, this person believes in God very strongly like me and has the same religious principles. Yeah, I can trust them. And that's so scammers a lot of times will jump on a religious angle to hook victims. And it's sad, because the people who are getting scammed are ones who, uh, their own religion is being used against them, and their own trust in those who are, uh, who they think are part of their own religion are against them. But the truth is, these Christian scammers aren't even Christian at all. They, they don't believe anything they're saying. These are often atheists who just pretend to be Christian to, uh, to scam people. Now, when you get the combination of the Christian scammer and the casino scammer, then you have a special sort of guy. And, well, we're going to play some videos here on this show tonight. So this guy, uh, this character here, Christopher Mitchell, was brought to my attention by a listener who goes by the screen name Jeff Dime. And Jeff Dime made his first post on the forum ever by bringing Christopher Mitchell to our attention. He said, while I was going through the YouTube rabbit hole one day, I found this YouTube channel named Change Your Life Vlog with videos posted by, quote, pro-gambler Christopher Mitchell. Of course, I already knew it's a scam, and I know this isn't about poker, but still thought bringing this to light could maybe save a few suckers some money. You can check it out, and we'll be amazed how transparent and what a shitty con man this joker is and i have no idea how youtube hasn't shut his ass down he starts most videos by holding a big stack of prop 100 dollars bills or or with just a real one or two in the front at first he was offering to personally coach people who come to come to vegas to his revolutionary martingale yes he uses the word martingale way to make money playing baccarat for 2500 dollars. now let me stop for a second for those of you that don't know what martingale is martingale is a system that is so simple that I actually came up with it independently of knowing about it when I was a kid. Like, I, I was playing this game with my brother where we're, we're flipping coins for points, and uh, 
And and I realized that all I have to do is double the amount of points you're playing for every time, and I just have to win one of the coin flips to end up ahead of him. And I thought this was so clever. Well, that was actually what's known as the Martingale system. I didn't invent the Martingale system. In fact, that term, uh, Martingale system existed before I was born. But Martingale is not a real system. It's kind of like a, a reverse insurance policy. A Martingale system means you bet an amount, and then if you lose, you double it. If you lose, you double that. If you lose, you double that. If you lose, you double that. All you have to do is win one of them, and you're ahead the original amount you bet. So let's say you bet a dollar, and you lose it. Now you're down a dollar. Well, you bet two dollars. If you win, you're up a dollar, because you won two, you lost one. If you lose, now you're down three. So next, you bet four. If you win that, yep, you're up a dollar overall. If you lose, well, now you're down seven. So what do you do? You double your bet to eight. If you win, you're up a dollar. If you lose, now you're down 15. So you double to 16. Well, you see how this goes. Just keep doubling, doubling, doubling. All you have to do is win once, and you're up your original bet. So some people have come to erroneously believe that this can be done and that you're guaranteeing yourself a win. Because all you have to do is win once. Hey, if you win one out of 100 times, then you've won, and you just repeat it. You just repeat it over and over. Now, if you had actual unlimited money, and if the other side would bet you for actual unlimited amounts, yes, the Martingale would work. Because you could just betting, bet, 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 bet until finally you win. But you can't. Eventually, you will either deplete your bankroll or you will bump against the limit of what you're betting, of what you can bet, to where you're just down that tremendous sum of money. So what happens is your bet literally increases exponentially. And goes up very, very fast. So what you're doing is you're risking a tremendous sum of money to win a very small sum of money. Where most of the time it's going to work, but every once in a while you're going to go on a horrible streak and lose a ton of money attempting to win that small amount. That's why I call it like reverse insurance. Insurance is where – I'm talking about insurance policies. What you're doing is you're paying – some kind of reasonable amount every month of the insurance company so just in case something big happens, they'll cover it. It's like think of health insurance. You pay $600 a month, but this covers you in case you need a million dollars of medical work next month. This way it doesn't cost you a million dollars. So this is the reverse. You're, you're gaining a tiny bit each time if you win and losing a tremendous amount on the rare times that you lose. This also doesn't change the odds of anything you're doing. The only way a Martingale system could ever work is if you could really just keep betting over and over and over again with unlimited funds that will never run out, and the casino will take these unlimited bets, no matter how big they get. And to guarantee a Martingale wouldn't screw you, you'd have to have like a, like a billions of dollars in bankroll, and you'd have to start really small betting like two bucks each time. So you'd, It's not practical. If you have that much money... If you have billions of dollars to Martingale with, and, and if you can somehow find a casino to take those limits of bets, then you wouldn't want to be winning $2 at a time. So there's no way a Martingale system can work. Except, uh, now, if you, let's say you absolutely needed to make $2 right now, or something terrible is going to happen, and you had a big bankroll with you, yeah, a Martingale would, would probably work for the moment. If you desperately needed that $2. Otherwise, it wouldn't be worth doing. But let me show you how bad a Martingale could get. So if you if you start with a base bet of $2, if you bet twice, it becomes $4. If you bet three times, it becomes 8 
If you bet uh, four times, it becomes 16. It's, it's basically a power of two. So five, it becomes 32. Six, it becomes 64. Then it goes 128, 256, 512, 1024, 2048, 4096, 8192. And it goes up, up, up. We're, we're, it's not that far until you get to around a million bucks. So if you get really, really, really unlucky, then you could be down something like a million bucks. And uh, that's why this doesn't work, because eventually you'll bust your bankroll doing it. And you'll go, wow, I can't believe I busted my bankroll uh, just trying to win small amounts of money. What a fool I was. That's When anyone tries the Martindale system, that's what happens. If you start with a base bet of $2 and do 20 bets and lose them all at even money, you'll be down a million bucks. Slightly over a million. So you see the problem. Okay, so there have been fools who have been selling these systems, or shall I say fools have been buying these systems, taught by maybe not-so-big fools that are selling them to suckers who will buy them. And there's other forms of systems people do. They always have some kind of like martingale basis to them, these betting systems. But usually these systems, they, they have something to do with uh, bet this amount, then bet this amount, and nothing having to do with the game itself. It's not like in blackjack card counting where you raise and lower your bet based upon the, the cards that have come out of the shoe so far. That's a winning positive expectation strategy if you do it right. Just betting amounts based upon what you're up or down at the moment is never positive expectation. But all the systems have something to do with this. And uh, so I'm going to play without going on describing this further. I'm going to play a video of his called uh, Christopher Mitchell Professional Gambler 101 Coaching. This is a recent video of his. And I'll let it speak for itself with... My interruption of it, by the way. So it starts out with him, by the way, holding big stacks of $100 bills, which may or may not be real. Good morning, YouTube family. Christopher Mitchell here from Change Your Life Vlog. And I've got an awesome message for you in this video, so make sure you watch every single second of this. Every single second. Now, before we watch every single second, uh, Trader Ruski and Vintage One, can you hear it? Yes. Okay, beautiful. Yeah. If you're brand new to my channel, I want to welcome you and uh, let you know who I am if you have no idea. In Thank one you. word, I'm an entrepreneur. Oh. I have several different streams of income. However, one of those is I'm a professional gambler. I'm in the casino gambling for a living practically every single day. I have mastered the games Baccarat and Blackjack. And not only am I gambling myself every single day, but I actually teach other people all over the world how I win thousands of dollars a day in the casino so they can learn how to do it for themselves. So folks, I just uh, looked up my books for the last 12 months and take a look at all the casinos I've been to gambling just in the last year. Now he holds up an index card. <laughs> he wrote down by hand from each state how many different casinos he's been to and you're supposed to be impressed by that. <laughs> <laughs> and there's scratch off and stuff. <laughs> so he just writes it on a paper. Milwaukee one. Milwaukee's not even a state. Uh, Pennsylvania two. West Virginia two. Maryland five. He can write anything there. Who cares if he's been to casinos anyway? It doesn't prove he's winning. But that, that's how he's starting off. This is the casinos I've been to. Look at this index card. I wrote it down. He says 108 casinos, it says there. 108 different casinos. Wow. Just in the last 12 months. Impressive. Folks, let that sink in for just a minute. Okay, I'll let it sink in. So there's people out there that say I'm a liar and a scam artist, 
but yet nobody goes to more casinos than I do. Okay, let's stop for a second here. I, I hate to give this guy advice, but you don't do that. See, when people are saying you're a liar and scam artist, you know what you do? You don't respond to them if you're a scammer. <laughs> the smart scammer. Now is. everybody's going to Google his name and scammer. Right, and there's all these videos. There's this one guy, which I'll get into a little bit later in the segment, uh, named uh, Kevin Davis, who's been like obsessed with exposing him. And uh, so there's like war that's been going on this month between Kevin Davis and Christopher Mitchell, where Kevin Davis is exposing him, and then and then uh, Christopher Mitchell responds, and then Christopher Mitchell realizes he probably should not have responded like this and drawn attention to it, so then he deletes the video which he responded with. This has been going on, like, like this month. This has been an ongoing thing. So he starts off this video trying to promote his own gaming, his, his own one-on-one gambling uh, service, and starts off as, yeah, people are saying I'm a scammer, that's not very smart. This is what Jeff Dye means. Like, how's anyone falling for this? He's actually bringing your attention to the fact that people are accusing him of being a scammer. What a dummy. Go ahead and do some research and try to find one single person anywhere in the world on YouTube who not only goes to more casinos and gambles than I do, but also helps more people around the world make money in the casinos than I do. What a generous so guy. Folks, again, if you're brand new to my channel, I want to share something with you. So I've learned some strategies that I've created that make me money in the casino every single time I go in. And people started catching on that I'm making money in the casino. So they started reaching out to me and said, Christopher, will you teach me how to win thousands of dollars in the casino like you do? I'm sure that's the way it happened. I'm sure he was just going about his business, just beating the casinos and just people realized it was happening. I said, Christopher, I know you don't want to do any coaching and I know you don't want to accept any money, but could you please help me? Can you please help me learn how to beat the casinos? Okay, fine, fine. I guess I guess I can take your money to help you. I wasn't planning on this, but all right. I, since you heard about me being a winner and I want to help people. So I said yes. So I started teaching them my, my winning ways. Now, folks, there's always liars. There's always scammers out there in the world trying to take advantage of innocent people. So when my name started blowing up all over the world on YouTube... Scammers saw an opportunity for themselves to use my name and reputation to try to benefit themselves. So they started taking some of my winning tips and started selling them to other people. Oh, my goodness. And people were getting scammed, and then they would contact me and blame me. Well, folks, these people never got my winning tips, rules, and strategies. I see. So you understand he's not scamming anyone. What's happening is other scammers are taking his winning tips and strategies and selling them as their own. And I don't know, is, is he trying to say they're not doing it? You, you think if they're selling his tips, that they should, they should be uh, winning also, right? Like if they're, if they're actually stealing his strategies. don't work. Yeah. And someone else gave them to him. It's yeah. not his fault. <laughs> so they're his strategies. They're selling it as their own. People are losing and somehow... That doesn't make him a scam. Like, first of all, this isn't really happening. No one's stealing his strategies. But, but if they were... Uh, wouldn't the people stealing them be giving winning information out? So I've decided to change some things now that we're in 2020, and I'm doing it because I want to help more people than I've ever helped before in my life. Folks, I have an entire playlist right here on my channel titled Gambling Testimonials where people have paid me $2,500 to meet me one-on-one in the casinos so they can learn my winning strategies in person. Okay, let's stop right here. Testimonials. I couldn't find them, by the way, but 
I'm sure they're out there somewhere. But let me tell you the problem with testimonials. Okay. Um, let's say I sell the Martingale system that I've come up with to uh, to Vintage One, and and he's dumb enough to believe me, and and comes with me to the casino, and and he tries it. Or if, whether he comes with me or doesn't come with me, he he goes and tries it, and it wins. Why? Because he got lucky. And then I say, hey, uh, since it won for you, would you be kind enough to record the testimonial for me? And he says, sure, yeah. I took your system. I went to the casino. I won. Yeah, I'll make a video for you. Then he makes a video saying he used it in one. And then I play it. And it's a real testimonial. It's someone saying they won money with the system. However, what happens when Vintage One, Vintage one goes back the next time and busts his bankroll doing my Martin Gill system? Well, then I don't have him do a second testimonial about how my system is crap. <laughs> then, then I just uh, forget about him. And then Todd, pre- I'm, af- I'm afraid these testimonials, if you ever find them, they're going to look like the old karate movies. We're <laughs> 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 piping in English <laughs> so, with the mouths that don't sync up and – <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah, right. He also just put right. He can, he can make fake testimonials. Someone saying, uh, "I lost all this money using Christopher Mister Strategies." Like shit. <laughs> um, I won lots of money using Christopher Official Strategies. And the mouse totally not syncing yeah. up. It's saying something totally different, but he's piping in different dialogue. Oh, it would be so hysterical. So, of course, that's a big flaw with any testimony. Then he could get friends to do it or others he pays to do it. He could even get people on Fiverr.com to do it, who do it for like five bucks. But he could even find people that would go to the casino and make one of these. Uh, believe me, I could put an ad on Craigslist right now. I'll pay you 50 bucks to make a video saying you won in the casino, I'd have like a thousand responses begging For me to sure. pay the 50 bucks to pretend they won in the casino. Believe me, I'd have a ton of people willing to do that, especially right now with the economy the way it is in Vegas. So uh, believe me, uh, the testimonials mean nothing, But let's, unless they're from a very reliable source. Like uh, if somebody you know that you can trust that understands the way the odds work in casinos comes out and says, oh, yeah, yeah for sure this is a legitimate thing. And this is a real system that really wins money. Not only have I won money, but I understand the math behind it, and it's and it's solid. That's that's a good testimonial. But not just I learned from Christopher Mitchell, and I won three thousand dollars using his strategies in the casino. Even if that's true, that doesn't mean it's a winning strategy. It just means it won that one time. But let's go on. But guess what? I'm doing away with that. Never ever again am I going to charge somebody. Any amount of money, what $2,500, $1,500, whatever the cost may be, I'm never going to charge anyone any money again up front. How's that possible? So you don't have to send me any money through FedEx, I don't. through Zelle, through Venmo, through PayPal, nothing. Never? What I'm doing now, because I want to reach more people than I've ever reached before, I want to make my services available to people who don't have a lot of disposable income, so here's what I'm doing. What a great guy. He realized that not everybody can access these strategies for $2,500. What if you're a low-limit player and you just want to learn his strategies to win at low limits? Now he can help you. Let's hear what he's doing for the public as a service to his fellow man. Folks. Folks. If you want to meet me live right here in Las Vegas, if you want to hire me for my personal one-on-one coaching in the casinos, never again do you have to send me any money up front. What I'm doing, I'm now meeting people free of charge to meet me live for a day here in Las Vegas for my personal one-on-one coaching. 
I'm going to take you in the casinos around Las Vegas. I'm going to teach you how to win playing the games Baccarat and or Blackjack. By the way, this is done shortly before the casinos closed, in case you're wondering. Your choice. And just like an attorney, you guys have seen attorneys on commercials or billboards that say this. Have you been in a car accident? If so, contact us. You don't pay unless we make you money. Well, folks, I figure if an attorney is doing that, I can do it too. So instead of paying me a thousand or two thousand or twenty five hundred dollars up front, guess what I'm doing? I'm going to now start teaching people. I'm going to start personal coaching people one on one live in the casinos here in Las Vegas with no out of pocket expense. But I'm going to take 50 percent of whatever I make you in the casinos on the back end. Wow, what a deal. What a deal. You can get his free advice here and you're only paying me if you win. Oh my gosh, that's a tremendous deal. I mean, you can't lose, right? If you've, you've, you give a strategy to try, if he loses for you, you say, okay, I'm sorry, Jeff, your strategies weren't good. I don't pay you anything. And if you win, great. You win, you walk away with money. Yeah, sure, you give him half, but you won. It's like a free roll, right? Well, obviously, I'm sure you know by now what the problem is with that little offer he's giving to the public. If he is made too much money? <laughs> yes, because you'll make so much money you won't know what to do with it and it will corrupt you. That's not it? No, unfortunately it's not. Uh-oh. But you're close. Of course, since people do win sometimes at the casino, even using a terrible system, since you will win sometimes just from dumb luck, since people do walk away from with money from a from an individual session in Las Vegas, if you go with him and you win, well, he takes 50% of your money. If you go with him and you lose, you don't pay him anything, but he doesn't share any, any of your losses. So he walks out of there either with zero or half of what you won. Does that sound very good? Also, let's think about this for a second. Your overall expected win in a casino or expected loss is a combination of your... Well, forget expected. Your overall actual losses in a casino is a combination of your wins and losses. In fact, sessions don't really matter. Your actual play is what matters. So every hand is kind of like a new session. So everything you do, it adds on top of what you did before. And you're not going to lose every hand you play. You're not going to win every hand you play. It's adding them all together. And so, so all your wins together will probably be a lot. All your losses together are a lot, but it's when you put the two together, if the wins are more than the losses, you've won overall. If the losses are more than the wins, you've lost overall. So imagine if there's someone there chopping your win in half based upon the session. He's not taking half of every hand you win, but every time you walk out of the casino with a profit, he cuts it in half. So imagine. So let's think about this. Let's think... Let's let's just pretend... The casino didn't have an edge on you. Let's say it was zero expectation, where it's just going to be dumb luck whether you win or lose, which it isn't, but let's pretend it is. And let's say you went to the casino six times, and three of the times uh, you, you win 1,200, win 1,400, and win 1,300, with it for an average of winning 1,300. And the times you lose, uh, you lose 900, you lose 1,000, you lose 1,100. So the average loss is a thousand there. So 
with three sessions where you averaged a win of thirteen hundred, you won thirty nine hundred. Three sessions where you averaged a loss of a thousand, you lost three thousand. So overall, over those six sessions, you won nine hundred dollars. Not bad. But now let's look if someone took away half the money you won in each of those sessions. Well, then your thirteen hundred dollar average win in each of the three sessions becomes six fifty. And now instead of having won thirty nine hundred, you've only won nineteen fifty. But the sessions you lost, you lost three thousand. So now your nine hundred dollar win becomes an eleven hundred or a thousand fifty loss. Sound good? You go from nine hundred up to ten fifty down, simply based upon having someone with you taking half your wins. See the problem? So even if you were positive expectation, this would not be sustainable. The only way it could be sustainable is if you were guaranteed to win every time you went in there. So even if he was positive expectation, you see what happens here. Look at this. I gave you one where it was zero expectation, but you got lucky and, and won uh, $900 out of six sessions total. You'd still walk out. Way, you'd still end up way, way down when the thing was over because he's taking half the wins. So to give someone half the wins is a huge problem. Now he compares it to the attorney thing. The difference with the attorney thing is that uh, when you're hiring an attorney on contingency, you're doing so as the plaintiff, not the defendant. And what the attorney is doing here, first of all, the attorney is only taking your case if, in his professional opinion, he thinks you're going to win. If the attorney thinks it's a long shot or there's a, a pretty good chance you're losing, then he's not taking it on contingency. Why would he waste his time with that? They, they take it on contingency because you don't have the money to hire them. But they do think if they see your case through that you're going to win and they're going to collect the money on the back end. That's why they take a contingency. They're not stupid. They don't win every single time, but attorneys taking cases on contingency tend to take the cases that there's a high chance of victory, such as, like he described, car accidents. If you come in with a story of a car accident that really looks like it's the other person's fault, then the attorney takes it knowing they can collect good money from the insurance company or from the person you're suing. So that's how that works. But notice what there is not in that scenario. A potential loss. Where if you are a plaintiff, ignoring the countersuit thing, which doesn't usually happen involving uh, those type of accidents where one person is clearly at fault. If an attorney takes your case on contingency, usually the worst you're going to do is ending up winning... Zero point zero. But you don't lose, you just don't win. So usually your result's going to range from zero to whatever you're suing for. And usually it's come somewhere in between, usually it's settled, and that's how it works, and the attorney takes 40% or whatever the agreement is. So there, you're not worried about giving up 40% of it, because number one, you're getting a lot of uh, work being done for you that you couldn't do yourself. And number two, you don't have to average this against losses because there is no loss. It's either you're going to win something or win zero. You're never going to lose. Here you're going to lose. At the casino, you're always going to have times when you lose. So he's taking half the times you win and letting you keep all your losses. Generous guy. So you see the big problem there. That's And what's, what's so funny, so you may wonder, well, how's the public reacting to that offer? Well, obviously there's a lot of people who see it like I do and I'm sure you do. But are there really suckers who would fall for this? So let me read you some of the comments, which which may be fake, some of them, but I have to think some of these are real. Here's some of the responses to this offer. 
This is a generous offer, brother. I'm sure there are plenty of clients to take this up. You're going to be a busy man. Can't wait for us to all go back to normal. That's referring to the casinos opening again. Thanks, Christopher. (laughs) Another person on YouTube. Let's see what the haters say now, LOL. (laughs) And no, that wasn't sarcastic. It was not sarcastic. It was like, oh, you showed them, those haters, how are they going to doubt you now that you're willing to do this for free and only take half the money, huh? What are the haters going to say now? Hi, you just shut them up. Is there a phone number? Can we call this guy? Um, I don't have it. Maybe at uh, some point. Uh, yeah. n- n- a person named Nicholas Mercer. We, we should have Ken, send Ken Scaler to book an appointment with him and run around Vegas. <laughs> and then he'll say, <laughs> Ken, Ken, how much do you have to gamble? Uh, I, I got paid, and after, after buying a hamburger, I have about uh, $30. But whatever we win, you can get half. <laughs> uh, so uh, Nicholas Mercer commented, this is a good move for all. Love it. <laughs> uh, then someone named uh, Pick3World is giving him advice. Should have a booking deposit, which is refundable, to make sure folks don't book your schedule and not show up. <laughs> You shouldn't have any deposit. You should. You make any kind of arrangement to meet someone and do this. You're happy to take the chance they no show on you because if they do show up, you've reeled in a huge sucker. So okay, let me play the rest of this here. <laughs> you already see where this is going. So folks, it's a win-win situation. You don't have to give me any money up front out of your own pocket. You get to meet me for free. And you don't pay me a dime unless I make you money in the casinos. Folks, how can you lose? And for the haters out there, how can I be a scam artist if I'm going to help people make thousands of dollars in the casino with me and they don't have to give me a dime out of their own pocket? I just explained how. (laughs) I have already got 19 people from four different countries who scheduled one of these free, no out-of-pocket expenses personal one-on-one coaching sessions with me between May 15th and September. Already people are booking me for these personal one-on-one coachings. So folks, here's what is required to book me for a personal one-on-one coaching. Okay, that's here. That's what's required. We have to know the requirements here. Number one, you have to have the exact date that you want to meet me here in Las Vegas. And then you send me an email and tell me what date you want me to put in my calendar to meet you for my personal one-on-one coaching. Number two, you only have to have a minimum starting bankroll of $2,000. Okay, so let's go over these two things. Why does he want a date so badly? Shouldn't he just be happy if anyone just shows up in town and wants him to do it? Well, he wants to make it look like this is a serious thing. He only wants people responding who he's convinced really are not only willing to do this, but are actually committing to do it by choosing a date that they are coming to Vegas to do this. Now, of course, this is dependent upon everything opening up again. I, actually, I'm not sure if he did this before or after the shutdown. It kind of sounds more like it's after the shutdown now because he's talking about May 15th and beyond, which I guess at the time he was guessing the casinos will be open by then. But he wants people who are committed enough to know they're going to be in Vegas on that date 
and that they're going to be blocking out this date on their calendar to meet with him. He doesn't want people arranging this like, okay, well, yeah, I'll let you know sometime in the future when I'm there. Now, believe me, if you just show up there and email him, hey, Christopher, let's let's meet up today. I'm sure he'll drop everything and, and go meet you unless he's fleecing another sucker. But uh, that's the reason for that. And as far as the minimum bankroll, well, that's just so the Ken Scalers of the world don't show up with 30 bucks. And uh, obviously that's not his, worth his time to do for half the money. If you don't have at least $2,000, then you should not be going anywhere near the casino. Now, if you have more than $2,000, great. Bring whatever you want. But as long as you have a minimum starting bankroll of $2,000, you can hire me for my personal one-on-one coaching. Number three, all of these personal one-on-one coachings will take place in Las Vegas. So if you live near Las Vegas or the next time you plan on coming to Las Vegas... Go ahead and send me an email, and I will put you in my schedule for a personal one-on-one consultation. Again, you will pay me 50% of whatever I make you on the back end. No upfront cost, no out-of-pocket cost for you whatsoever. You will only pay me if I make you money, and you will pay me 50% of whatever I make you. So if I make you $3,000 the day you're with me, guess what? You keep $1,500, and I get $1,500. But, folks, I want you to think outside of the box just for a second. Let's think outside the box. Just for a second, people. Let's think outside the box. That's what, that's what you have to do to make money in Vegas. You can't You can't just play like the average drone who walks into the casino and just does what everybody else does. we got to think outside the box like Christopher Mitchell. Not only am I going to make you money, no matter what that amount is. Some of you might make $3,000 the day you're with me. Some of you might make... the day you're with me. But whatever amount I make you the day you're with me, think of it as free money. Because what you want to think on is that you get to meet me. Wow. A professional gambler. A professional gambler. I get to meet a professional gambler on top of making $3,000 or maybe even $10,000. I get to meet him, an actual professional gambler? Well, that's that's an added bonus. Gambles for a living in the casino. You get to meet me and have me take you around casinos one-on-one right beside me. I'm going to be sitting down right beside you at every single casino we go into. And if your bankroll is big enough, you can match me bet for bet. Just so you guys know, because some people have asked me, Christopher, what is your starting minimum bet when you go into the casino? My starting minimum bet is anywhere from 100 to $300. So my first bet will be 100 200 or 300 so, folks, if your uh, bankroll is big enough, you can match me bet for bet. But if you only have a $2,000 bankroll, that's the minimum size bankroll you need to meet with me one-on-one. You can still have me teach you all of my winning strategies. You just might not make as much money as I make because my bets might be bigger than yours. <laughs> now, this I'm actually curious about. This I would love to see in action because I have a feeling he doesn't bet at all. I, I have a feeling there's going to be some excuse when you show up with him. He, he forgot his wallet at home. Uh, there's some problem with his bank account. Uh, he just he had a, a, a bad run yesterday and a fluke bad run, and he's, he's waiting to get his cash out of the bank. He probably doesn't, won't say that because I admit he loses. But I have to guess that... He doesn't really want to wager his own money here of any appreciable amount. He wants suckers to do it for him and give him the money. And I can't imagine he's betting so big that you're not going to be able to keep up with him because then he's going to be eating up whatever he wins from you by giving it back to the casino. 
So I, I think this is just uh, a trick here. Now, it's possible that he's figured out, though this adds a lot of variance to it, it's possible he's figured out that by showing up with you and by uh, betting along with you, knowing that you'll take 50%, he'll take whatever you win, 50% of what you win, that it makes the whole thing positive expectation for him, and especially positive negative expectation for you. It's possible that he's willing to bet along with you, knowing he'll get 50% of your winnings for whatever you two luck into in that session. So it's possible that's his approach. So I'm not saying it's impossible he bets with you. I just have a feeling he finds ways out of it, if possible. Because that's more reliable money. It's more reliable to just go with the guy, give them advice, and then take 50% of their winnings, and you can't lose. If you bet along with them and take 50% of their winnings, yes, it can turn a positive expectation, or a negative expectation game into a positive for yourself, that is for the coach here who's taking the money, but you could also both lose. If you both walk out of their down, which if you're imitating each other's bets, uh, you'll often do, then uh, he could walk out losing. So I'm not sure if he's willing to take that risk. He might. It's possible he's a, a degenerate on top of everything else he is. But I, I really wonder if he's actually doing that. He's really betting along with people. But I'm still going to take time out of my schedule to meet you one-on-one. And folks, the last thing, this personal one-on-one coaching session with me live in the casinos here in Las Vegas, it will be filmed. I will be making a video of it documenting our day together, just like the videos in my playlist titled Gambling Testimonials. Okay, so that's the trick I talked about before. He documents all of them. He posts the successful ones. The unsuccessful ones we never end up seeing. So if you haven't seen those videos with real people who actually paid me $2,500 up front, then go to my playlist and click on Gambling Testimonials and watch those videos. Now, this is where he thinks he's such a genius. I I know when he came up with this, he was patting himself on the back. He probably strained himself patting himself on the back so much coming up with this one because he thinks, okay, I'm going to make them think I'm doing them a favor working for free and only taking their winnings, only taking 50% of what they win and not taking anything if they lose. But what I'm really doing, not only am I free-rolling them, but I'm also getting them to agree to do free testimonials to rope in other suckers. Because with however many people he does this with, I don't believe he has 19 bookings, but whatever he does get, that a certain percentage of them will win, and then he gets them to do testimonials, which they agree beforehand to do, and then he posts it on his channel to rope in even more people. So It's this a miracle. It, this is both making money for him in a free roll and getting people to do free advertising for him all in one fell swoop. What a genius. I made all of those people thousands of dollars with me in the casino one day for my personal one-on-one coachings. But now you're not going to have to pay me $2,500 up front. You pay me nothing up front and you don't pay me a dime unless I make you money. Folks, Folks. this session with me will be filmed. I will be putting the video of us together on my YouTube channel for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's going to prove to all my haters out there who are trying to imitate me and trying to take my winning strategies and scam you to send them money. It's going to prove to them that nobody can scam you ever again using my name because the only way you can learn from me starting here on out is to meet me one-on-one in the casinos. 
It's going to prove to you that if I show up and meet you here in Las Vegas and take you around to different casinos, how am I scamming you if I'm a man of my word meeting you live in person and teaching you my winning ways? <laughs> Folks, it's going to show others that if you can make thousands of dollars a day in the casino with me, it'll give them hope and inspire them that they can do it too. And guess what? Here's the greatest thing about hiring me for my personal one-on-one coaching. Folks, any money I make you the day you're with me, think of that as free bonus money. Because what you're really getting is a personal one-on-one coaching session with me to learn all my tips, all my specific rules that I've created, and all my winning strategies that make me thousands of dollars a day in the casino. I'm going to teach you these one-on-one live in person here in Las Vegas. So if you make 2000 bucks or 4000 bucks or 10000 bucks, that's bonus money. That's just the day you meet me. But now you've learned what I know and what I use every He's actually pointing to his head when you've learned. He's pointing to his head like it's in your head. You've learned. I've learned you. <laughs> He's trying to say, well, you walk away with my great strategies and you, you, you can just go play yourself. You don't have to pay me 50% anymore at that point. It's just that one day you're paying me the 50% and you're going to win too. So it's free money. You keep 50% of it while you're learning and then you have it all in your head. And you can go back and keep reapplying it and win every day. Win, 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 win. Financial freedom. Single day. So now you can go back to your city, your state, or your country and take what I've taught you. And now you can literally duplicate it and make thousands of dollars every single day of the year going into casinos in your local market. Folks. Folks. I am changing people's lives and I'm doing something that no one else in the world on YouTube is doing. No one. He's showing the index card again. <laughs> has gone to that many casinos in the last 12 months like I have. Except for degenerate Nobody gamblers. has traveled around the country and met with YouTube subscribers just like you. By the way, I've seen other channels where they're claiming that this is just a lie. He hasn't been to 108 casinos. They're saying they've proven he's been in other places than where he said he was. And I won't even go into that. I mean, even if he has been to 108... The index card be lying. Yeah, that's that's right. It's it's written... It's it's handwritten on an index card. I don't see how that's... some scratch-outs and some mistake spelling, but it's shows all the casinos. He he thinks Milwaukee's a state, but aside from that, uh, it seems pretty reliable and taught them their winning methods like I have. Nobody is documenting it and putting it on YouTube so others around the world can see their success stories and get inspired and say to themselves, wow, if that guy did it, if that woman did it, then I can do it too, folks. Exactly. That's what he's looking for. He wants average Joes on there who say, oh, I, I went with them to the casino and I won this amount of money. And here it is. Here's the money I won. See, folks, 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 this this is proof. This person came with me. They walked with me into a casino and they won. This is proof my system works. Did you win today? Yes. That means my system works. I'm. You'd think that people would see right through this, but you have those idiotic comments. Now, you may say, okay, we haven't heard what his winning system is, though. Is it possible that maybe he does have a secret that I'm just... I'm just too skeptical. I'm just someone who's too cynical, and I I won't accept the fact that this guy really does know how to win. And that he's just so confident he knows how to win that he's 
basically giving it away for 50% of your winnings on a single day. And then after that, you can just go do it yourself and keep 100%. Well, let me read to you some of his blackjack winning tips, which were found by a forum member who goes by Dupe Samaritan, who also listens to the show. And uh, these were on a Google Drive, where uh, this was his uh, $500 blackjack and Baccarat systems online. Here's, here's his blackjack winning tips, okay? You ready? This is how to win in blackjack. I, I thought I knew how to win in blackjack, but apparently I don't because I don't I don't do these things. I I mean I guess I do like one of these things or two of these things, but uh, here's the winning tips for blackjack. Number one, there's ten tips. Go to a casino that has a lot of different blackjack tables. Okay, I can be on board with that one. You don't want uh, the pit bosses putting all the heat on the few tables there are. The more tables there are, the the higher chance it is if you have a winning strategy, they won't catch it. Okay, I'm with you on that one. Let's go on. Number two, find tables with small minimum bets and big maximum bets. Uh-oh, that sounds martingale-ish to me, doesn't it? I definitely don't do that. I look for a table that has a high enough minimum to where I'm not sticking out like a sore thumb for what I want to bet. Like if I want to spread my bet from $25 to 150 I want to make sure that it's – I want to sit at a 25 minimum game. Or if I want to spread from 50 to 300 I'll sit at a 50 minimum game. I'll try to sit at a table where my minimum bet is going to be the table minimum. And this way I'm not betting hundreds of dollars when everybody else is betting $3 at the table. But I don't look for huge spreads, small minimum bets to big maximum bets. Huh, why would someone need that unless they're martingaling? Mm-hmm. Number three, don't ever play blackjack online or an electronic table game. Okay, fine. I'll go with you on that one. Number four, make sure you have a bankroll big enough to cover, here we go, six martingale bets. <laughs> He says it right there. He admits right there at six martingale bets. You, 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 I guess we know his system already. I just saved you guys money. Number five. This is a good one in blackjack. Don't ever split. <laughs> so you get dealt uh, two aces against a six. Don't split. Huge mistake. You may say, wait a minute. I thought... I thought brilliant mathematical minds have proven that splitting is positive expectation. I thought it's been proven that if you don't split in a lot of spots, you are costing yourself money. I thought it's even been proven that if you have eights, that you always split them, even if you're against a nine, ten, or an ace. Even though it's going to lose a lot of the time, that you're getting yourself out of having a hard 16. I thought this has all been mathematically proven and run through simulators that play many millions of hands to show that these that these strategies work, at least to lose you the least amount of money. But nope. Christopher Mitchell says, don't ever split. I guess we don't split. Let's learn something. Number six, don't ever surrender. I thought surrender was a good thing for the player. I thought they only offer that in the higher limit games and the the best blackjack games that are offered because it's a good option for the player if used right. So if you have 10 against the 16, or 16 against the 10, that is, that you surrender. That's a smart thing to do. That's also been mathematically proven to be the correct move. He says don't ever surrender. Hmm. 
You like this one. This is my favorite one, number seven. Lucky number seven. Can anyone guess, if you can think of horrible advice for blackjack other than, like, hit a 20 if, if, or, or don't hit a 10 or don't hit an 11, other than something like that, what, what would be, like, a really, really bad piece of advice for blackjack? And it's a don't advice. It's saying don't do something. Can, can anyone think of a really horrible piece of advice that they don't ever do this in blackjack? I guess don't double 11. You're very close. What he's actually telling you not to do, number seven, is don't ever double down. (laughs) (laughs) It's bad enough when your double is restricted at certain tables where you can only double on nine, ten, or eleven. That already hurts the player. He's saying, no, don't ever double down. You've got an eleven against a six? Don't. Just hit it. Don't ever double down. Even though it's very, very advantageous for the player to do, don't. Don't. It's, it's a mistake. That's his winning tips. This is what you're paying him to learn. Number eight, don't ever take insurance. Okay, now that one's actually correct. Unless you're card counting, then insurance is important. But if you're not card counting, yeah, that's actually right. Number nine, don't ever bet on the side bets. Okay, fine. That's true. The side bets are terrible. And then number ten, at first, it's going to sound like something that makes sense. He said, don't ever bust. Well, yeah, that's the point of the game is you don't bust because if you bust, then there's a 100% chance you lose. But listen to the full advice. Don't ever bust, meaning don't take a hit if your first two cards equal 12 or higher. <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes on to clarify, this is without a doubt the absolute greatest secret that I can give you. <laughs> But doing it wrong, folks, if you're dealt a hard 12 through 16, you have been hitting when the black when the dealer is showing a high up card, like a 7, 8, 9, 10, or ace, and you have been making a mistake, a grave mistake. All you have to do is stand every time you can possibly hit and bust, and you will win tons of money. And nobody until right now has realized it. Christopher Mitchell, in all the decades of study and simulation of blackjack by brilliant mathematical minds, he is the first one to realize you just don't ever hit what you could possibly bust, and that will make you win in blackjack. What a genius. I would have never even considered that. I've been playing all wrong. This is seriously what he's selling. This this is taken from uh, one of these systems he was selling online for 500 bucks. This this is so funny. Okay, so let me, let me jump to something totally different, but also the same, because we're going to play more of him, but this time we're not going to be talking about, about uh, strategies or him selling you anything, directly at least. This is him telling you about inequality in America and how the rich keep getting richer. Now, you might think this is some sort of left-wing political rant, about how uh, there's more rich people, more poor people, that the middle class is disappearing, that uh, this isn't fair. We've heard a lot of that on uh, left-wing political shows or or left-wing social media blogs or opinion pieces. But no, this is not any of that. Not at all. Listen to Christopher Mitchell talking about inequality in America and the rich getting richer. You'll really enjoy this one. Hey YouTube family, Christopher Mitchell here from Change Your Life Vlog, and in this video I want to talk to you about inequality. Okay. 
I want to tell you why the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer. Okay, you're with me. Most of you know that I live here in the United States of America. And did you know that in this country there is now more than $100 trillion of wealth? Wow. So if you take all the money among every individual who lives here in the United States of America, there's now $100 trillion worth of money. But get this. Every single person's net worth. So if this guy over here is worth $1,000, this guy's worth $10,000, you've got this guy over here worth $100,000, and then this gentleman's worth a million, and this gentleman over here is worth a billion. If you take everyone's net worth in America, did you know that the top 10% of money earners control 70% of all the money? Wow. I don't even know what those numbers, I don't know if those are accurate or not. I knew it at one time, but I, for, I forgot. These are often manipulated too, but that's a, we're not going to even focus on that. Let's just move past that one little statement and see what he's getting at. What that means is that 90% of all the people in the United States are now splitting the remaining 30% of wealth in this country. Folks? Folks? That's called inequality. That is the gap between the rich and the poor. And what makes the difference between the rich and the poor? Why are very few people rich, but so many people poor? Well, it comes down to mindset. He's pointing at his being head again. Being rich or being poor is nothing more than a choice. It's all about the way that you think. See, someone once said, it wasn't your choice if you were born poor, but it is your choice if you die poor. Aha, that's where we're going with this. That's where we're going. Is that he's not complaining that uh, it's unfair in America and that we have to do something for the poor people to and, and take from the rich people. He's not going that direction. He's going the other, the other direction. He's, it's, he's basically saying it's the poor people's fault that they're poor and that uh, he's going to teach you, presumably, on how to not be poor. And it, in fact, if you are poor, if you're born poor and remain poor, it is your fault, he is saying. So let's hear some more of this wisdom. So in this video coming up... By, by the way, I'm hearing something in the background here. Uh, someone's making some noise. Is it uh, you, Vintage One? Uh, I wasn't aware. I'm not doing anything. Okay, everybody sit still like statues as we get told this wisdom from Christopher Mitchell. No, I'm going to tell you all the reasons that separate the rich from the poor and why the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poor. So make sure you watch every second of this video. He loves to say that, watch every second of every video. All right, let's get started with the differences between the rich and the poor. It starts with the words that they speak. Hmm. See, poor people say things like, you can't buy happiness. Money doesn't grow on trees. Money is the root of all evil. But if you talk to a rich person, They'll say the exact opposite. Instead of saying, you can't buy happiness, a rich person will say, you can't buy happiness if you're poor. Oh. A rich person will say, money does grow on trees. No, no, they don't say that. <laughs> See, this is, this is already, you can tell, an example of someone who is pretending he's rich and is trying to say, this is what us rich people say. This is how us rich people think. He has no clue how rich people think. You could tell by this. This is, not, this is not at all what rich people say. First of all, rich people don't say you can buy happiness. Rich people don't say money grows on trees. No, what, what rich people actually say, at least the ones who, who earned it, or even did something to earn it, even if they inherited some and then earned from there, 
what rich people usually say is, first of all, money doesn't grow on trees. You, you have to work to get it, and it's also you also have to work to keep it and not to blow it. And also, money itself does not buy happiness. What money more does is it pre- prevents unhappiness, and it can solve. Uh, it, it can prevent you from having certain problems that those who don't have money have to go through. But that money alone does not buy happiness. It, it's it's just uh, it's one ingredient towards happiness. That will make it easier to be happy, but money by itself does not buy happiness. That is what a rich person would tell you. If you if you talk to anybody that you know that has money, that's what they'll tell you. Now they're going to say, "Poor people say that money doesn't grow on trees," but ha ha, yes it does. Poor people say money doesn't buy happiness, but up, oh, you don't know. I've bought happiness. <laughs> so that's it's funny because he is trying to convince you that. The only way to be happy is to be rich, and that rich people have known this for a long time and have kept it a secret from you, and that he's going to show you how to get rich. Because money is paper, and a rich person won't say that money is the root of all evil. A rich person will say poverty is the root of all evil. Oh. And quite simply, uh, I would agree with that because it's uh, been proven that robberies and rapes and drugs and violence, all of these things come out of neighborhoods that are poverty-stricken, not wealthy, affluent neighborhoods. Hang on. What about uh, rich drug dealers? The drugs originally come from those who are rich through dealing illegal drugs. How do you explain that one? So what are some more of the differences that separate the rich and the poor? And why do the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poor. I think you're going to tell us. Poor people always look at the price, whereas rich people always look at the quality. I'll give you an example. Poor people will say, oh my gosh, I would never spend $350,000 on a Rolls Royce. But a rich person looks at the quality of a Rolls Royce. The interior, the size of the engine, and how long it takes to simply make one unit. See, that's not even true. Uh, When you're buying a Rolls Royce for a lot of money, you're not buying it because of the quality. You're buying it uh, because of the status you get from owning one. Now, it is also higher quality, but you can get uh, high-quality cars that are much cheaper than a Rolls Royce. People are buying that for the status. It's a status symbol. So he has no idea even why people are buying Rolls Royce. Now, what he's trying to say... Where I thought he might be going with it, but he never says anything smart. But if he were to say something smart, he would say that it's a mistake just to look at price. You need to look at value. That's what he should have said. He should have said, rich people look at value, poor people look at price. Which, which by the way, isn't always true. That's, uh, but if he's going to say something like that, at least go that direction. Uh, or, 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 as I've said before, often the cheapest thing is the worst value. Just because something's cheap doesn't mean it's the best value. It's often the worst value. And uh, and what I've seen in general, and I'm talking about across everything, it's not always this way, but in general I've seen kind of the mid to upper level of quality in any kind of product or service is the highest value, and the very highest level is poor value, and the very lowest level is poor value. But kind of like the middle and middle high is, is, uh, is the highest value. Uh, think of hotels, for example. You stay at the cheapest motel, it's going to be a complete piece of crap. It's going to be an awful experience. It's going to be dirty. It's going to be nasty. It's going to be 
scummy people staying there, drug addicts staying there. It's going to be dangerous. The bed's going to be super uncomfortable. Uh, and yet, you're not getting this for $10 a night. You're, you're still going to be paying you know, maybe $60 a night for it. Uh, you, you stay at a mid-level hotel in the area. You'll pay $120, but it's way, way better. It, it's a decent place to stay overnight. There, It has no real major issues. Everything is fine. It's not luxurious, but everything is fine, and the clientele there is okay, and the service is okay. Everything's fine there. It's, it's not a luxury property, but it, but it's a good place to spend the night. Now, yes, it's double the price of the $60 motel, but you're getting way more than double the value there. If you stay at a $500 top hotel, top luxury hotel in the area, it's going to be a lot nicer than a $120 uh, hotel that, that uh, is mid-level, but it's not going to be four times better as far as what you're getting. It'll be better, but not worth that much of a difference unless you're obsessed with staying in uh, luxurious surroundings. So that's, when looking at value, usually the, the mid mid or mid to upper level version of whatever you're talking about tends to be the best value. But but that's not what he's saying here. He's saying, uh, Rolls Royce, $350,000, that's because it's the best quality. People are paying for quality, and anyone who's not buying that is buying a car of inferior quality. See, again, it's a person who isn't rich who's trying to tell you how rich people think, acting as if he's one of them. A poor person will look at the cost of a hamburger and say it's only five bucks, whereas a filet mignon will cost 50 bucks. But the quality <laughs> is very different. No, but they're two different things. That's, you can't even compare that. <laughs> a filet, just because they're both beef doesn't mean that it's the same thing. That's another stupid thing he's saying. What's so obnoxious about this is because he's not just saying think like a rich person. That's bad enough. He's actually putting down people who are poor in this. <laughs> he's looking down on the poor people, saying, this is your fault. This is your fault that you're poor. You're thinking the wrong way. It is your fault that you are where you are. And he's not even saying it from a standpoint of like, well, you've probably made some bad decisions or or, or you know, maybe you haven't focused upon how to get yourself out of poverty and work towards that, and this is what you have to think, that would at least be a valid message. But instead, he's saying that uh, he's giving all the wrong advice, also while looking down upon those that don't have money. And so the point is, you're supposed to watch this here and think, crap, I'm poor, and I didn't realize all these things before. Oh, I just have to think like a rich person. And then the next thing you learn from him is how to become a rich person like him poor people always think things are a scam whereas uh, rich people always think things are an opportunity aha uh -huh, right there see if you think that he's scamming you here if you think that christian's scamming you it's because you're poor it's because you've got a poor mindset if you want to have a rich person's mindset you trust the guy on the internet who says he's going to win you thousands of dollars a day on the in the casinos using martingale strategies you trust that because that's what rich people would do. Let me give you an example. So some of you might be familiar with an industry called network marketing. Oh, I am. It's what's called a home-based business model. That's, that's it's when not what I would call it. Individuals like myself will go into people's homes and hotels and do a presentation to introduce you to a business opportunity. An opportunity. And I've done hundreds of of business presentations in the industry of network marketing over a 10 to 15 year career. Now that I believe. For once he said something I believe. I do believe that he's probably been involved in network marketing for 15 years. 
that he sounds just like one. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar, a network marketing quote opportunity is better known as a pyramid scheme. Network marketing is a fancy term and a more legitimate sounding term for a company which is selling the opportunity to sell. You're not really selling a product. You have to there has to technically be a product there because there was a law passed in I think like nineteen seventy seven, sometime in the late seventies. They passed a law to try to crack down on pyramid schemes, but it was it ended up being ineffective because it wasn't written well and it's it's still to this day a problem. And it's basically said there has to be something you're selling. You can't just be selling the opportunity to sell something but have nothing to sell. You have to, it has to be a product at the end of this whole thing. But the problem is there's a loophole to that. You just sell real products that are very marked up and aren't really the whole point of the entire scheme. The entire scheme is selling other suckers the opportunity to sell. And there's various ways that network marketing, a.k.a. pyramid schemes, uh, a.k.a. multi-level marketing, there's a lot of ways that they end up cheating people, and I won't go into an explanation of that. We've talked about it before on this show. Uh, you can find some old episode where we did, or just go look up. and Google network marketing or multi-level marketing scam. You can read all about it. But it does not surprise me that's what his background – well, among other things. I'll tell you some other things in his background that might surprise you. But it doesn't surprise me that that's one of the things in his background is network marketing. That's not an opportunity. And the reason this doesn't work is because – if you think about the pyramid, they call it a pyramid scheme, is that the, the higher you are in the pyramid, the greater chance is that you're going to end up making money from it. But those at the bottom, which is most people, because think about how a pyramid works, where the bottom is biggest and it goes up and the top is very small, the bottom people all lose. Because the bottom people can't recruit enough people below them to pay what they've already paid. And if you do, then you've ripped off the people below you because uh, then they have to find new suckers. It's a, it's a constant exercise of trying to find suckers below you to bail you out for the money you've wasted on this pyramid scheme so far with their, quote, opportunity. So it's guys like this dude who are pushing network marketing and try to make it sound like a wonderful opportunity, and they use language like this. Uh, this is the way rich people think. This is the way rich people make money. This, this is the way you buy yourself into financial independence. This, this is a – yes, you have to invest some money into it, but this is how you, you succeed. And they give a presentation that sounds so convincing until you examine it closely, but they don't aim this at people who examine it closely. They aim this at people who just are believers and want to be rich. And – that's uh, And I'm sure everybody who's listening to this show that's on social media, you've probably had friends and relatives that have pushed some form of pyramid scheme at some point, whether it's a weight loss or, a, or, or, or some kind of other product or some kind of health product. And they're not only pushing the product, but they're also pushing the opportunity to sell the product. They talk about how wonderful it is, how life-changing it is. And then just one day they stop. One day you don't hear about it again. The reason you don't hear about it again is because they lose money. And they can't find any suckers to get below them beyond what they've already found, and the whole thing collapses. So that doesn't surprise me that he's bringing up network marketing as both an example of how rich people think, which of course is not true, and something that he's done. I believe he's done it. I believe he's been very into it before, and that ties into what he's doing now. In that industry, and I always noticed how people would respond who were in poor, poverty-stricken neighborhoods compared to rich folks who were in wealthy 
affluent neighborhoods. Oh. And people in the poor neighborhoods always said the network marketing was a scam. It's one of those pyramid things. Well, those are smart poor people then. Rich folks would always look at it and say, wait a second, you're telling me I can get all of this for only this? (laughs) And I would say yes. Folks. Folks. The, in this story, the moral is that the rich people are morons and the poor people are smart because they didn't fall for my scam, for my rich, for my network marketing scam, and the rich people did. That's my story for you. Scam rich people. It's all on how you look at things. And poor people always think things are a scam. By the way, it's the opposite. Rich people don't fall for it because they, they don't have a need for it. They already have money. They don't need to get involved in schemes. This appeals to dreamers who want to become rich but just haven't been able to. They don't know how to get rich. They, they, they've just been stuck in a financial rut their entire lives. They, they dream of financial independence one day, but they don't see how to achieve it, and they feel like there's no shot for them. And then you have a snake oil salesman come around who says, let me show you this, and just invest this amount of money and you'll be super rich. You bring this to a rich person and they say, I already have money. I don't need your scam. Get, it, get out of here. <laughs> it's, it's the... I'm not saying all poor people fall for it. I'm saying that the ones who are vulnerable to this are the ones who are really desperate to find a way to make money. Whereas rich people always look at things as an opportunity. I always tell people, change the way you look at things, and then the things you look at will change. Poor people always make assumptions, whereas rich people are always asking questions. Poor people have huge TVs, but rich people have huge libraries. What? Poor people waste their time sitting in front of the stupid box, also known as the TV, whereas rich people are constantly reading and seeking out new knowledge so they can increase their net worth by learning a new skill set. Poor people are followers, whereas rich people our leaders. Isn't this obnoxious? Isn't this really, really obnoxious? <laughs> Hearing this guy lecture you about poor people and rich people and has no clue what he's talking about and the way he's talking down about those who don't have money? The truth is there's a lot of different reasons people are poor. Some people it's their fault. Some people, it's not their fault at all. It's a result of bad luck. Some people uh, have a lot more opportunity to start with than others. If, if you're born into a very rich family and your parents don't cut you off or they, they don't want to help you out, you know, provided that's not going on, you're probably going to have money yourself. If, if you're born into a very poor family, you do have to work harder. Of course, there, it's true if you do things right, you can get out of that. You can bring yourself out of poverty. But, but it's harder. There's a lot of other factors against you. There's uh, uh, If you grow up in a bad neighborhood, there's certain things you have to avoid, certain behaviors you have to avoid, certain people you have to avoid associating with if you want to break out of that and uh, and become successful. So there, there's bigger challenges there, so that, that can be a factor as well. Uh, there's, of course, an education. Uh, education is a huge factor of whether uh, your parents stress education or whether they don't. And if you just end up with a high school diploma and don't do that well in high school, you're probably not going to... Uh, go beyond that and your ability to get a good job is limited. Not You're not shut out of it. You just have uh, much more limit. Of course, talent. If you happen to have a lot of talent then in, in any area, if you can utilize that to make a lot of money, that can help. So talent is something you're born with. Either you have it or you don't. You can work at getting better at something. But if, like, I, I could work at, uh, even when I was younger, I could work at being a 
basketball player all I wanted, I wouldn't have made the NBA. I just didn't have that athletic talent to do, whereas other people were born with it. So talent's a big thing. So there's a, there's a lot of factors that come into whether you're rich or poor. And some people, some of it's your own behavior. Some of it's your own choices. Some of it is the circumstance that you start with. Some of it is luck. A lot of different things go into who is rich and who's poor. You can't make any blanket statements like that. And you can't say rich people this, poor people that. You can say some poor people think this, and they shouldn't. This is the way they should think, and they'd be doing better. You could. There's plenty of things you could point out like that. You could also say the same thing about some rich people who blow all their money. There's a lot of people who are rich at one point and then are broke. There's a lot of people you know in poker who were rich at one point and mishandled it and now have no money. So you can also give advice to rich people of they're thinking about things the wrong way. They're treating money the wrong way. They're treating opportunities the wrong way. This is such an obnoxious video. This is worse than the scamming videos. Cause this, this is just so condescending and, and such uh, it's just uh, it's like phony and condescending at the same time I'll use myself for an example on YouTube I've created my own way I never copied anybody and I make claims and I make offers that no one else on YouTube is doing however I've noticed just in the last week alone People have brought it to my attention. There, there are four different people, four different YouTube channels, putting my name in the titles of their videos and copying me, trying to get YouTube subscribers so they can build a YouTube channel. They're following my lead. They're following me. They're followers. They're copying me because they don't know how to create original content for themselves. And you see, he keeps mentioning this. He keeps going for the, everybody's copying me, but I'm the original. I'm the one you want to buy this from. There's there's a bunch of people out there trying to scam by copying my stuff. My stuff's so good, everyone wants to steal it. But but stick with me. I still don't understand how they're scamming anyone. If they're selling his good advice, they're scamming him. But uh, if they're sc- selling his legitimate good advice, how is this scamming the person who buys it? Advice is advice. But, of course, we know the truth. Okay, so that, that, there's more to this video, but I won't play it. Th- that I just found that one to be really, really egregious. Here, let me, let me start this one. This is about Baccarat. This is from, uh, I think, uh, about a month ago. Baccarat strategy, one-on-one coaching. By the way, he likes to hold up what he claims is $50,000. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit, whether he really is holding $50,000 cash. Who've never showed you well, anything very valuable. Hello, YouTube. My name is Christopher Mitchell, and in this video, I'm going to talk to you guys about my Baccarat winning strategy and my one-on-one coaching, and so much more. So and much if more. If you decide to watch any part of this video, make sure you decide to watch every part of this video. Notice he says that all the time. By the way, you may be wondering about him. You may not have uh, seen these videos before, so you probably wonder what he looks like. He is in his early 40s. He's completely bald. He is short, though you can't see that very well in the videos because he doesn't stand up very often. He is pretty thin. Interestingly, and I'll tell you more about this when I tell you about his interesting background, he was not always, like, short and thin. I mean, he's always short, but he was once very ripped, very muscular. He once had a uh, a bodybuilder's physique. Doesn't anymore at all, but he once did. 
and that was part of his background. Uh, he doesn't make reference to this. He's also written books, by the way, about fitness in the past. But uh, that's what he looks like, and I will play this, and then we'll get into his background, some of which may surprise you. From start to finish, because I'm going to provide you with some very, very valuable information, and I'm also going to set the record straight once and for all. So once and for all. if you're brand new to my channel, I'd like to welcome you to Change Your Life Vlog. Again, my name is Christopher Mitchell. If you have no idea who I am, in one word, I am an entrepreneur. So one of my income streams, I am a professional gambler. I'm in the casino gambling for a living every single day. I average $5,000 in cash profit per day when I go into the casino. That's on average. My best day is $25,000, and on my worst day, I've lost $36,000. I'm surprised he admits that last part of it. He's lost $36,000 on his worst day. But he averages $5,000 every time he walks into the casino. And it, but his best day is only twenty five thousand. How, how do you manage that one? If your average is five thousand, your best should be way above twenty five thousand. But that's uh, putting that aside. That's <laughs> that's funny though that he admits that he lost his worst day was better than his it was worse than his best day was good, which I'm really surprised that he says there. But let's think about it for a second. Five thousand dollars a day. Five thousand. If you went into the casino and averaged a win. $5,000 a day and played every day of the year, you would win more than $1 million. You would. Do the math. In fact, you'd win more than $1.8 million. In just 400 days, which is less than 14 months, you would win $2 million at 5000 a day. 5000 a day is a lot. I wish I could win 5000 a day. I will admit that I've never won 5000 a day playing cash poker. I've won more than 5000 in one day. In fact, I did that shortly before commerce shut down. But I have never averaged 5000 a day over a long period of time. That would mean you're averaging more than $1.8 million a year. If you can do that gambling, great. You're, you're, you're one of the top winning gamblers in the world if you can do that, if you can average that. So he averages 5000 a day, but somehow needs to sell you all this stuff on YouTube. Not suspicious at all. I'm completely open and honest and transparent about every part of my life. So that makes me a reliable, reputable source of information. So please pay very close attention to who you're getting your information from, especially on the Internet. So having said that, I do have $50,000 in cash, in real cash, I might add, real Benjamin Franklin's. Um, and again, I don't show you guys this cash to boast or brag. I do it to inspire people. So for all of you guys sending me the emails from all over the world saying, Christopher, please keep showing the cash. You inspire me. This is for you. And for the haters, well, you're going to hate no matter what I do. So having said that, let me talk to you about my Baccarat winning strategy that I charge $750 for and <laughs> also my personal one-on-one -on -one coaching in the casino, which I charge $2,500 for. This is before he came up with a great, uh, the great deal to have him do this for free. Let me stop and talk about the money, which he shows in several videos. And there's been a lot of accusations from his, quote, haters, and I've seen some of these accusations, that it's fake money. Believe it or not, I think it might be real. I've 
Been fascinated by this, too. I'm thinking, does this guy really have 50000 cash to his name? Which isn't a tremendous sum of money. It's a good amount of cash to have. There's a lot of Americans who don't have 50000 cash to their name. If you do have 50000 cash, it's not like you're set for life. Not anywhere close to that. But does he really have 50000 cash, or is this guy perpetually broke? Because a lot of these scammers just really have nothing. Whatever money they get slips right through their fingers, and they continue scamming and kind of live from hand to mouth, even if they are prolific scammers. So is he at least holding on to 50 grand in cash that he's not losing or blowing in some way enough to keep doing these videos? And some have been saying that what he's doing is he's putting a real hundred on top, a real hundred on bottom, and then he has cash that he bought, uh, like fake cash that he bought somewhere online. Well, uh, someone made a challenge to him to show every bill and every bill serial number, and he actually did a video. This shows you how easily rattled he is. He actually did a video where for like an hour he was showing one by one these bills, the front, the back, and the serial number because someone, this, this Kevin Davis guy who was challenging him, uh, he wanted to answer Kevin Davis to prove he's legitimate by showing each bill one by one for like 40 minutes or to an hour on video. <laughs> he did a live stream of this and, and he even like drew attention to this channel that uh, this Kevin Davis runs, which is called a uh, YouTube scammers exposed. You can find it on YouTube. But uh, he, oh, he's bringing the people right there to see the opposition videos. This is how dumb this guy is. Now, you won't find these on Christopher's channel right now. He posts these videos, then thinks better of it and deletes them. There's been, there's been a lot. There's been over 20 deleted videos he's posted in recent times and then removed because he realizes he's, like, responding to the people who are calling him out and then, like, oh, wait, I shouldn't do that, and then is enticed to do it again. It's amazing. But but he actually showed a lot of these bills, not all of them, but he showed a lot of them front, back, where he makes the serial number clear. I think they're real. If I had to guess, I actually think they're real. Now, does that mean he's winning? No. I think that he's just prolific enough, he's getting enough suckers to buy his services, and that he has decided to hold back this 50000 cash, not spend it, and use it as a prop. Because he figures if he can show you 50000 cash... That it must mean he's a winner, which is so funny. I have fifty thousand cash here. If I could, I have fifty thousand cash. If I if I can't beat the casinos, yes, easily. I mean, it, you could have gotten it from scamming. You could have done it by selling systems to people that don't really work. That could be where the cash is from. That probably is where the cash is from. Cash week from many places. You could be borrowing it. It could be a friend's fifty thousand dollars. Who knows? You could be holding it for someone. I told a story on Poker Fraud Alert Radio about two years ago about uh, a guy I met through Brandon who asked me, can I hold $50,000 for him? It actually was $50,000. Can I hold it for him in my hotel room? In my hotel room safe, and it's because he was he had someone staying with him that he didn't completely trust, and didn't want them accessing his hotel room safe, so he wanted me to hold the money. This is someone tra- traveling out of the area, so he couldn't just leave it at his home. Or, or in a bank, he, he needed somewhere to put it, and for whatever reason, he didn't want to leave it with the front desk of the casino. He wanted me to hold it. So I, I made it very clear to this guy. I said, okay, fine. I wasn't thrilled about doing it, but I said, okay, fine. I'll do it for you, but I can't stress this enough. I'm not taking responsibility. So if, if it all vanishes, 
it's not my responsibility. I don't owe it to you. I'm not going to steal it from you. I'm very honest. I, I, I promise I'm not going to steal. I won't even touch it. I'll put it in my safe and won't even touch it. That's what I'm going to do. However, if anything happens, it's on you. Do you know and accept that? And he said, yes. I said, you're totally sure. Because I, if, if, uh, if anything happens, you need to know that you agree to this beforehand. Because, uh, and I'd really prefer not to do this, but I'll do it only if you absolve me of any kind of uh, possible risk of this. And he said, fine. So I put it there. And I gave it back to him. And guess what? He counted the money. And he said $1,200 was missing. I thought, shit, I should have never agreed to this. He also said there was, there was wet in there. He said there, like, some of the bills were wet. And it's like, I don't know how the hell that happened. Because I have other things in the safe, and my stuff wasn't wet. I'm like, he gave, he, like, he gave it to me in a plastic bag. It was like envelopes in a plastic bag. And I just put the plastic bag in. I didn't even open the plastic bag. I just put the bag in there. But it was actually in a plastic bag, so I don't know how it would have gotten wet. Uh, the wetness of the bills, I don't know what the story was there. My guess is he must have spilled water in there accidentally before he gave it to me. And it was damp in there. As I said, I never opened the bag. But uh, he's like, well, you know, I've, I, I'm not accusing you of anything. $1,200 is missing. And he wasn't trying to get me to give it to him. He even said, I'm not looking you to give it to me. And I know I'd uh, agree to. It's just, I don't know what happened to it. I know I put in exactly 50000 I said, well, I don't know either. I put the bag in and didn't touch it. Well, I found out like two days later that he forgot that he had lost $1,200 out of that fifty k right before giving it to me. <laughs> So he, he apologized and said, oops, I'm sorry. And I, I believe him. I don't think he was trying to get me to give him uh, $1,200. I, I was there, Jeff. Oh, that's right. You I met him. There. That's right. I, you I met remember. Him. That's right. I forgot Trader Risky was there. Yeah. And uh, But I, I was like, oh, this is exactly what I didn't want to have happen is like some, something goes wrong. And it turned out nothing went wrong. Nothing. No, I knew no one got in my safe. It didn't make any sense. Like I had money in there too. No one touched my money. Uh, so I, I was like, this is, I, I think, yeah, obviously, he made a mistake here. He must have just not put in as much as he thought, but whatever. I wasn't. He wasn't asking me for any money. And I will say, like, other than that, you know, he was a nice guy, and uh, he even did a favor for me when my – I actually lost my car in the Venetian. I forgot where I parked, where I parked it. Yeah, I've had this happen to me twice ever. Once was with Matt the Rat, and that was a real nightmare. Not, not Matt's fault, but uh, Matt remembers that well, and I've told the story on radio. And the other one was with uh, – it was both times I was talking to someone. So – I was driving with this guy, and like we walked in, and I forgot where I parked, just like I did with Matt. So I could not find my car on the day I was playing a World Series event, and I was panicking because like I had sold pieces of myself for this event. I couldn't find my car, and uh, he was. Uh, why, why was I know why? I, there was some reason why I didn't take Uber or a cab. I forgot what it was. Um, anyway, whatever it was, uh, I called him and he quickly came over and, uh, drove me to the event. I think maybe there wasn't enough time for all that. Whatever. He quickly came over, drove me to the Rio. I registered. I registered like a little late, but like, I don't know. I think it was like I registered an hour late, which is no problem. A lot of people intentionally do that. A lot of people intentionally, like Phil Helmuth registers many hours late. So I, I registered an hour late. I didn't lose any chips. I was late registration. But uh, immediately I sat down and started winning, and I cashed in that event. So that was a day one, by the way, not a day two. So uh, anyway, uh, then afterwards he, he drove me around the lot. To, this is after the event was over. He drove me around the lot to find my car, and I was pressing the key fob to make it uh, beep, and we found it. And so he was very helpful with that, and 
overall he was a nice guy. I just that that one thing kind of annoyed me a little bit. But uh, anyway, I don't know how, why I got to this other than it was fifty thousand dollars. But but yeah, fifty thousand dollars. I know why it's because he could be holding it for a friend. But whatever. If this is making him a lot of money from suckers who think him holding fifty k cash means that he's a winning gambler, then yeah, it's worth to keep fifty k cash around. I I don't doubt that this guy has had 50k to his name at some point he could have more to his name if he's if he's doing well with selling these systems he could have he could have some decent money so that's uh i I actually believe the cash is real from what i've seen and i think the the people who are criticizing him claiming that the cash is fake and that's evidence that he's he's uh, a phony don't focus on the cash If, if you're making the case that he's a scammer Who's ripping a lot of people off for a lot of people a lot of money? Then yes, there's a good chance he has some money, not honestly obtained money, but nevertheless money. So that's that's the wrong thing to be focusing on. I think the money's real, but let's go on. So this guy's like first. the Tom Vu of poker. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. I, you know, I played t- poker with Tom Vu. Yeah, he used to play at the Mirage and the Bellagio all the time. Tom Vu was at the final table of the 2007. World Series of Poker, $1,000 with rebuys, no limit hold'em event. And when they combined to one uh, ten-handed table to then break down to a nine-handed final table that would be on TV, the unfortunate soul who finished 10th and missed the TV table and the endorsement money was one Todd Wittellis. And and Vu, I think, ended up finishing second or something. He was the, he, I think he was second in that event. But uh, I remember he said to me in one event where he raised, and I went all in over him. And I went all over him. I went all in with something like Jack Nine suited, where I was just hoping he was going to fold. But I just needed to. I needed to accumulate chips. And I noticed he was raising a lot, and I hadn't been raising a lot. And I just figured I'm going to just uh, get him to fold. So he he uh, when I said all in, he goes, "You have it, you have it." Nah, I I like you. I like you. I, I like you a lot. I fold. <laughs> that was Tom Vu. I don't know what happened to him. He doesn't play poker anymore. But I, like, at first, I'm like, well, that should have been a great scene. That could have been a great scene for his commercials. He made it all the way to the World Series of Poker. Yeah, you know? I, I was wondering why he With wasn't the girls on the yacht. Yeah, I thought maybe he'd promote that more. I, I was surprised. I, I want to hurt Tom Vu. I'm like, could that be the same one? Yeah, it was. It was the same guy. That same guy with the commercials in the '80s on the, on the yachts and everything. The same dude. I don't know why he's not playing anymore. He hasn't played in a while. Okay. So anyway, let's. Let's continue playing this. I get a lot of questions, and I get a lot of negative comments and hate mails on my YouTube channel and in my personal email inbox. So, if this is the first time you've been to my channel, I am a Christian. Oh. What does a Christian mean? It simply means this. It means I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. Wow. It means that when I die, I'm going to heaven. I don't think so. It means that I believe in the (laughs) Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It means that I pay my tithes to my church. It means I give offerings. It means I'm very generous with my money to everyone that I encounter. Now, being a Christian does not make me perfect, nor does it make any Christian perfect. Okay, whenever you see this, you need to run for the hills. If there's anyone trying to sell you any system or any opportunity that uses their Christianity as a selling point, run for the hills. Occasionally, there happens to be a Christian selling this type of thing that is legitimate, but 99% or more of the time, the Christianity is being used as a way to gain your trust and scam you. 
It means we are forgiven for our sins. So, having said that, I have haters that say, Christopher, if you're a real Christian, then why don't you give away your services for free? Now, what says the that? Last time I checked, just because somebody is a Christian or any religion for that matter, uh, doesn't mean they're exempt from expenses in the world. I like how he just creates this straw man. People are saying I shouldn't be selling my services if I'm a Christian. Well, let me explain why I have to sell it. I have to make a living. What's wrong with that? I've seen the criticisms of him. None have said that he wouldn't be selling these. He'd be giving away for free if he's a Christian. No one said that. He's just making that up. So um, I have to pay for my houses and my cars and my groceries just like you do. Notice it's houses so and cars, not, not house and cars. To work for free. And if they're business owners like I am, and they're supposed to give their products and services away for free, then how do they survive? So, folks, yes, I'm a millionaire. Yes, I said it. Um, I just recently saw a couple of comments on a couple of YouTube videos. Um, some guy just said, my wife and I are actually homeless looking for a place to live. I, 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 I accidentally skipped back. I like that. I'm a millionaire. There. I said it. I said it. I'm a millionaire. Okay? It's all out in the open now. Okay? Fine. I didn't want to have to bring it up. I didn't want to have to disclose this. This wasn't anyone's business. It's not something I'm proud of. But yeah, I'm a millionaire. I said it. Okay? Okay? It's almost like he's coming out of the closet as a millionaire. By the way, that's foreshadowing. What I just said is foreshadowing. Ponzi scheme. Folks, I've heard it all. And Oh, wait, let's go back. I, I missed that. On a couple of YouTube videos, um, some guy just said, my wife and I are actually homeless looking for a place to live. One guy said, uh, my wife and I, all the money that we make is from scamming the government out of disability. He said, my wife and I are actually disabled. Um, one guy said, I'm running a million-dollar Ponzi scheme. Folks, I've heard it all. And the people who say this nonsense, they're dead broke. They work nine-to-five jobs. Uh, they're massively in debt. Hmm. And um, they hate. They hate on successful people simply because of jealousy. Jealousy. So when people are jealous of others, they hate on them. It makes them feel better about their pathetic existence in life. You know, this reminds me a lot of something. This reminds me of uh, around the 2000s and the 90s when I was in chat rooms and a hot chick would come in and I'd look at her profile picture and it's clearly a phony. It's clearly not the person in the room. In fact, it's probably a dude on the account. And if it is a girl, it's not the girl in the picture. And I call it out and say, this obviously isn't you. And if it's you, let's see you take a picture right now and hold up a sign saying, uh, uh, you know, the current date and time or whatever. I, I try to demand some kind of proof out of them because I know that they're almost surely fake. And often the response I would get is, you're just jealous. I go, jealous? What would I be jealous of? You're, do, do I want to be a pretty girl? Is that what you're trying to say here? Like, how am I jealous? But that's just what they default to. A lot of people who, who are lying or scamming will say you're jealous if you are questioning them. But I'm going to give you a challenge, Christopher Mitchell, because 
I I didn't hear of you at all until a few days ago, and you probably have never heard of me. But if you look into me, you'll see that I'm not broke, and I can easily prove I'm nowhere near broke, and I'm not working a nine-to-five, and I haven't for almost two decades. And I am calling very much into question all of your strategies. But I will give you this challenge. I will say if you I will make a bet with you for a large sum of money which we can agree to beforehand with a professional escrow service or a trusted third party to escrow either one. And we can bet whether or not you've really won the money you say you have at the casino. And if you can prove it to me, not just at one casino, but if you can show me that uh, the casinos have records of you winning, all these 108 casinos you've gone to, if you can show me records of you winning at all or most of these casinos, where you are a big winner overall, then you will win the bet. Or, if you want to claim that they just didn't track your play, I don't know if you use players' cards or not. Maybe you're going to say you do it anonymously so they don't kick you out. So, if that's your answer, then what we will do is we can bet as to whether or not your strategies are mathematically positive expectation. And we won't do this theoretically, what we can do is we can enter your strategy to play through a computer and let the computer play a billion hands, not a million hands, but a billion hands, using the exact strategies you dictate. You tell me exactly how to enter it into the computer, and I will. And we will bet whether or not you come out ahead money. Now, you may say, well, I don't trust computers. I don't think the random number generator is good enough. Or these strategies only work live for some reason. Okay. Then what we can do is we can bet with a certain number of minimum hours played that you will not be up money more than uh, with a certain spread of units. And this will prevent you from uh, just keep martingaling to try to uh, win the bet at the 11th hour if there's no way to do it. But we can set up a structure to where we can go and see if your uh, strategy works. And not just in a a short term. We play a a statistically significant number of hands and have you come out ahead. And if you claim you have to martingale in order to win, then if you can prove to me that martingaling works, and if I can't show you mathematically how it doesn't work and where its major flaw is, then again, you'll win the bet. Or if you can show me why doubling down is a bad strategy and prove it, or why not splitting ever is a good strategy in blackjack and can prove it. Or how one can be positive expectation in a blackjack game without counting cards. I can prove it. But hey, you may just say, there's no way to prove it on paper. It only works in the casino environment. So, okay, 
prove to me that you made your money in casinos. Not from people who pay you to go into casinos, but from sitting down playing at casinos. If you can prove that to me, then you will win the bet. And we can bet a very large sum of money on this. And keep in mind, I don't know your casino history. Maybe, maybe you've gone around the country and played a lot of hands, and there would have to be a minimum number. So you know, if, if you played in two casinos last year on your own dime and won both sessions, that, that wouldn't win the bet. It would have to be uh, a large number of sessions in hands to where it becomes statistically significant. And we'd agree to that beforehand, and then you could show me if you won. You can't just tell me. You have to show me proof you won. But this is a big advantage for you because you know. So if you already know you won, then you've got a 100% chance to beat me. This is my challenge to you, and I'm not a hater. And if you think I'm a hater who's broke, who's pretending to have money, we can also bet on whether I have money. And we, we can uh, come up with an amount to bet we're, uh, that we're betting on me having. And I will prove to you not only do I presently have it, but the money has been with me for a long time. That it wasn't just given to me by a friend to win the bet. And I have a paper trail to show it. So if you want to do any of these things, Christopher Mitchell, I will be happy to. I know you won't. Also, here's something else. I would like a challenge where you post your videos on a channel you don't control instead of your own channel. And then let others comment as they do instead of deleting all the negative comments. Or we can bet that people are going to win every single time when they go with you. Or we can bet that you taking half anyone's winnings from a session makes them negative expectation. So let me know. You can email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. You can text me at 775-372-8355. You can even come on this show and explain how any of this is working. Now, I know this has been a long segment. I apologize for those of you that are bored by it, though, of course, since I post ways to skip through the show to the points you want to listen to, then you could have skipped this if you're listening in the archives. But I want to tell you a bit about this guy's background before we finish this topic. What was he doing besides network marketing when he was younger? Because he's over 40 now. Now, one of the things he was doing, and if you Google uh, Christopher Mitchell, uh, Christopher Mitchell Fitness, you will see that he did a lot of... uh, fitness videos and and books. Uh, Some have kind of a Christian theme to them. Some don't. You'll see old pictures of him back when he had hair, where he's uh, very muscular, and uh, you can see him very, very fit. And these are real pictures. However, he swore he never used steroids. He was supposedly an anti-steroid person. He was he was selling ways to build your body and to become fit without using steroids. He wrote a book called Minuscule to Muscular. He wrote one called Why You're Fat and Sick and How to Fix It. He wrote one called Weight Loss Secrets of All Time. And if you can see these on Google, and they're very, very cheap-looking books. Like the covers are very, very cheaply made. But what's interesting is if you look at today's Christopher Mitchell, he looks nothing like 
the ripped guy in these pictures. Now, it's understandable that as men age, they're going to lose some muscle definition, that he won't look quite as good as he did when he was in his 20s or early 30s, whenever he was last doing this. But you'll see a tremendous difference. He doesn't look muscular anymore. He just kind of looks like a short, thin guy. Now, how does that happen? How does he lose his muscle definition to such an extreme? Well, how about those baseball players accused of using steroids, the ones who were muscle-bound home run hitters in the steroid era, and then you see them when they're 45 years old after they've retired, and they don't look like the same person. Sometimes they look kind of skinny and not muscular at all. Now, yeah, they're not working out every day, and they've gotten older, and there's a lot of factors to that too, but there's such a tremendous difference in their body after their career is over and during their career. And you go, oh, well, okay, I know how that guy was hitting all the home runs. That's what it kind of looks like here. I mean, there's a tremendous difference in his body. And it's not like he got fat or something. He's actually thin. Somehow his, his muscles are just gone. Those, the, all those muscles you see in the pictures, which are real pictures from what I can tell, they're gone. But what else might he have been doing besides this whole fitness and selling books routine? Well, there's one other thing. I think I know. There's one other thing that, that he did at least once. There's a movie, I don't know if you guys have seen it. It came out 10 years ago. but It, it wasn't a blockbuster. It, it didn't do all that great in the theaters. Uh, I'm going to throw it out there. I'm going to throw the title out there. I, I doubt you guys have heard of it, but uh, Christopher Mitchell, he was an actor. He was, he was a, a big star. He was in Minuteman Solo, Big Load 34. <laughs> and yes, it's what it sounds like. Minuteman Solo, Big Load 34. Now, I hope you don't have kids listening to this. If you do, please turn this off immediately before I do any further damage to your children's ears. What would Minuteman Solo, Big Load 34... I, I'm sure you know what Big Load is, but... Who's receiving the big load? Well, in this particular video, is it a woman receiving the big load? No. I'll give you the URL of where I see this video currently posted. And you can watch it. I couldn't bring myself to actually watch it because it's like, it's not even just him either. Like, it starts off with some other guy. I, I, I admit I clicked on it for two seconds. I had it open for like two seconds before closing it because I just, I'm like, no, I'm not sitting through this to find the part he's in. Because it's, uh, I'll, there's like three dudes in this and, you, could, you can't even see at the beginning which one it is because you just see a hand there and, and another body part. I'm sure you can guess which one. On GayHotMovies.com, I found through Google, through the wonders of Google, Kyle Prescott porn star biography. It says, Kyle Prescott is a male performer whose performing career was launched in 2010, and he acted with Colt Studio. He performed in, in titles including a number involving muscle man, gay, and solo male masturbation. Kyle Prescott has starred with performers Brendan Cage, Connor Stevens, and Frank DeFeo. So apparently he p appeared, among other things, in Minuteman Solo 34 Big Load, where you're watching guys jerk off and supposedly a big load comes out. I didn't watch it long enough to see if that's actually true. There is a picture on this profile of Kyle Prescott, who definitely is a younger Christopher Mitchell with hair. 
So if you, if you Google this, you can find it. If, if you're really interested in watching Minuteman Solo 34 Big Load. I should have gotten one step to watch this for me and then tell me his review of the movie. But I couldn't. I really had it on for like three seconds. I'm like, no, I can't believe I have this up. And no, I'm not. I'm not continuing to watch this. Nor am I going to try to determine which of these uh, Minutemen with their big loads is him. Because again, they weren't showing faces, and I, I assume at some point they were going to. But I just closed it. But that's what he was doing before. I have not seen this, but I I saw some discussion of Kyle Prescott, aka Christopher Mitchell, and his foray into this and someone is claiming again i didn't see him claim this but someone's claiming that his excuse was that he did this only because he was desperate for money when he was 18 or 19 and if that's his claim that doesn't make much sense because 2010 he would have been over 30 he's born in 1979 so that is an interesting history isn't it (laughs) i don't know if he's actually gay there have been straight men who have done gay porn who uh, just need the money, especially masturbation videos. They'll rationalize, okay, look, I'm not doing anything gay. There's no other guys involved. It's just guys are buying this to watch me, but I don't get to see that happening, so who cares? But obviously uh, that's an interesting background. Okay, I've taken enough time with this, but if you want to watch a bunch of videos by that Kevin Davis guy exposing Christopher Mitchell, it's a channel called YouTube Scam Exposers. YouTube Scam Exposers, just search for it on YouTube. Uh, It doesn't expose any other YouTube scam, only Christopher Mitchell, but there's a ton of videos about him, including a lot of clips that Christopher Mitchell posted and then deleted. You can see parts of those videos on YouTube scam exposures and commentary about them. It's a rabbit hole you'll go down and probably not come out of for a few hours. All right, let's move on to Phil Galfond. We spent way too much time with Christopher Mitchell. Let's move on to Phil Galfond. He finally completed his match against Venny Vidi. Remember last week, it was a cliffhanger. Venny Vidi was barely up, and Phil Galfond finished up the match immediately following the end of our radio show, starting at 8 a.m. Pacific time on Sunday morning, April 12th. And it ended up with Phil Galfond winning by a very minuscule margin, like 1,600 euro, which is nothing when you're playing for 100-200 blind, heads up PLO. He did fold the final 75 hands, which is fine. That's part of the entire bet is just who finishes ahead. It doesn't matter how much ahead. So if you can clinch yourself ahead by folding the final 75 hands, then that's fine. He did predictably have some idiots criticizing him for that, but that's totally fine. That was part of the match. There was a side bet where he wins 100,000 and Venny wins 200,000 euro, depending on who's ahead. So to clinch that, folding is fine. But still, it was incredibly close. It came down to the final 75 hands out of a 25,000 match where he was finally ahead enough to fold the final 75 hands to clinch a victory. And he won. We did not hear anything about who Vanny Vidi is. We did not really get anything more that we learned about this other than just he won. And now he's moved on to play Bill Perkins. 
Bill Perkins is someone who's assumed to be a much worse player than Phil, unlike Vinny Vitti, who is known to be a crusher on poker stars. Bill Perkins is a recreational player who has a lot of money. They have a four to one side bet where Phil will win two hundred fifty thousand euro if he wins and lose a million euro if he loses. They are only playing a maximum of seven thousand hands, but if Perkins gets down more than four hundred thousand euros, or if Phil gets down more than four hundred thousand euros, then the match is over. So the first one to four hundred thousand euros wins, or they go seven thousand hands, and whoever's ahead of it wins the side bet. Unlike the Veni Vidi match, which had specific dates they're going to play and penalties for not playing, that's not the case with Bill Perkins. The Bill Perkins match just takes place whenever Bill can play. Bill said, I'm too busy, I can't commit to dates, I'm not paying penalties, but I will play you, we'll just do this whenever we can squeeze it in. Phil said, fine, so that's the way they agreed beforehand. And, interestingly enough, they're not playing on Phil's run-at-once site like they were playing for the Veni Vidi match. What they are doing here is they're actually playing on party poker. And on party poker, obviously, nothing could be rigged. Those who are saying, oh, it's rigged for Phil to win, this can't be said about the Perkins match because it's taking place on a third-party site that clearly is not going to rig anything on Phil's behalf. Now, to be fair, Perkins is considered a much inferior player in PLO heads-up to Phil Galfond, and one who is conspiracy-oriented might say, well, yeah, of course Phil agreed to this. He doesn't expect to need any help to beat Bill Perkins. Well, uh, in their first session, Phil actually lost, and he was down more than 50k euro at one point. He did come back to end up taking a small loss, but he did lose the first session. Doesn't mean a lot. There's a lot of variance in heads of PLO, but he is down to Perkins. They would have to play 7,000 hands, and Perkins would have to hold the lead for all that time. I, I don't picture that happening. If somehow he does, he wins a million euro, and I also don't think that Perkins would be willing to throw the match, and clearly nothing could be rigged if it's on party. Now, you may say maybe Perkins didn't want to play on run at once because he didn't trust it after what happened with Veni Vidi. No, apparently this was agreed to before the Veni Vidi match began. You may still say, well, still, maybe Perkins didn't trust it. Well, maybe, but Perkins also has some association with party poker. I forget what it is, but he has some kind of association with party poker. So it's very possible he just wanted this to promote party poker rather than run it once and said, look, I'll do this challenge, and I know I'm an underdog to you, and I know you're a better player, but here's the terms I want. One, we're playing on party because that's the one I'm associated with. I, I don't, I'd rather promote party than your site. No offense. And number two, uh, we're going to have to put this cap on it. And number three, there's no penalty for missing appointments to play. In fact, we're not even going to make appointments to play. We're just going to play whenever I can, take it or leave it, and feels like, okay, take it. <laughs> so so that's the way it's going. Uh, what do I think is going to happen with that? I think Phil's going to win. I don't know how many hands it's going to take him. I don't think it's going to take 7,000. I think before 7,000 is over, Phil will have won 400,000. Now, 7,000 hands, it's less than a th- it's, yeah, it's less than a third the number of hands he was playing against Vinny Vitti. But 400,000 euro just isn't that much. You saw Phil came back of 900,000 euro against Veni Vidi from like the middle of the match. So obviously 400,000 against uh, an inferior player, a presumed inferior player, is not hard to believe that Phil could win. But he does have to still run well enough to do it. As you see, for the first session he had of uh, several hundred hands, he actually finished down. 
but he did come back from a 50,000 euro deficit for the most part. So we'll see how that goes. As far as the thing with Vanny Vitti, I, I mean, I've talked this to death and I want to make my feelings clear because I, I've had people on the forum in this past week say, you think Phil Galfon rigged that match. You think Phil Galfon was a cheater and he's one of the most honest guys in poker. I never said that. I never said Phil Galfon is cheating. I never said I think he's a cheater. I think he is not a cheater. I never said that Phil Galfond has people behind the scenes cheating for him and he just doesn't realize it. I never said that Phil Galfond is, that he had Venny Vitti throw the end of the match so he could come out ahead. I never said he did these things. I never said I believe he's doing these things. I never said it's likely he's doing these things. I never said it's 50-50 he's doing these things. I said these are all possibilities. These are all things that one must consider. And you, of course you must consider it because, one, the match took place on his own site. Two, nobody knows Venny Vitti. They know he's played on PokerStars the last few years. He's a real person in that sense, but nobody knows him personally. He hasn't come out with who he is. He doesn't, he doesn't appear that he's interested in coming out with who he is. Number three, there's other people with their hands in this, such as the programmers and the other investors who might also be investors to his poker site, who you know, have pieces of him that might have an incentive for him to win. So there's a lot of stuff you have to trust and not just stuff having to do with Phil. You have to trust other third parties you don't even know and don't know who they are that they're also behaving ethically. The programmers, the other investors. There's others you have to trust, even if Phil is the most trustworthy guy ever to have walked the earth. There's still some issues to be a little bit concerned about because you don't know. Now, if this were something Phil were in complete control of, if he did all the programming himself... If nobody could touch the software except for him, which I know is not possible because I don't even think he has a programming background, but let's just say hypothetically he could. Let's say he had full control of everything, and he's the one who fully developed and controls the software, or at least uh, for this match controls the software so nothing could be changed. Let's even say that before he even mentioned having this match, that he locked the software to where nobody could modify it. Let's say we knew that, which isn't the case, by the way. He admitted it was it was modified for this match so they could uh, broadcast it, which is fine, but I'm just saying it was modified. But like something like that, then you're deciding whether can, can we trust Phil. And it's still his site, and you still don't completely know him, but you can at least say, okay, in his long history in poker, he's never been known to do a single thing shady, so fine, Let's just trust him. And I can understand that. At some point, you just have to say, I trust the person, that's it. But the problem is there's people involved here who we don't know. We don't even know who they are. There's a lot we just don't see, and there's other people we have to trust without any information about them to be able to say this is 100% legit. And just like I said about the poker sites in the 2000s, just because they have appear to be legit doesn't mean they are. And people laughed at me when I said that, and then Full Tilt stole everybody's money, and they're like, oh, well, who would have guessed that uh, an unregulated poker site 
run by some people we hadn't really heard of before, like Ray Batar, could cheat us. Wow, didn't think of that one. So just because Full Tilt appeared like they were legitimate didn't mean they were. And I'm not saying about Phil, I'm saying this about others who have their hands in this. You don't even know who they are. So for that reason, you can't rule it out, and you can't even say, I'm just about sure. You can say it's likely the match was legitimate. You can say it's likely that everything the Galfon challenge round one appeared to be, it was. And I would agree with you. It is likely. And I'm not just saying this to save face or anything. You will not find a single statement of mine where I say it was likely that there was something bad going on. Or something dishonest going on. Or some kind of uh, predetermined factor going on. Or some kind of match throwing going on. I've never said that was likely. I never said that's what I think is happening. I said, let's look at all the possibilities... And to not look at this with all the possibilities, with the number of different people involved, the number of different hands involved with this, is being naive. But you can also come up with your educated guess, based on everything you know and everything you don't know. You can say, my educated guess is it was all legitimate. That you can do. And that's what I'm doing. And my educated guess is it was all legitimate. But am I anywhere near sure? No. That is what I'm saying. And I will stand by that. And if I were in the exact same situation as Phil Galfond, I would expect the same things to be said about me. So there's nothing bad about him. I would expect myself to be trusted no more than Phil if I were to be in his exact shoes in that exact same situation. So clearly this is not me attempting to bash him or claim he's untrustworthy in any way. It's just the way the whole thing is. And there's only a certain level of trust one can have, given all the factors I mentioned. It can be a decent level of trust, but it can't be super high, as I said, especially with the other hands that were involved in this. I do like the fact that the second round's on party poker. That doesn't take away the small possibility that there's still like some match-throwing that could go on. But I just... You know, Bill Perkins, he's not just some anonymous internet guy who could be tempted here. Bill Perkins clearly couldn't be bribed because this is a guy who has a lot of money, throws it around. I don't think Phil could bribe him. I don't think the other investors there could bribe him. I just, I don't really see Bill Perkins being talked into throwing this. Bill Perkins is doing this because he likes the attention and he wants the chance to beat Phil. So if he's beating Phil... He would love to go down in poker history as the underdog who beat the great Phil Galfond. Whereas Vinny Vitti is this anonymous nobody. Bill Perkins is a real person who's trying to sell books, who's trying to make a name for himself, even though he's a recreational player. He would love to go down in history as the guy who beat Galfond heads up, especially after Galfond lost to an excellent player in Vinny Vitti. That would be a great thing for Perkins' narrative. There's no way he's throwing the match. So that's one where I wouldn't believe for a second. If, if let's say Perkins takes a big lead and then loses it and Phil beats him by a little bit, I will not be saying that throwing the match is something that's even possible to me, just based on what I know about the situation. Uh, nor do I think that Perkins could be bribed about the situation because this is a guy who uh, already has plenty of money and uh, this is someone who's doing it for the fun and for the chance of possibly winning. And the fact that it's on party poker, obviously nothing could be rigged. 
So I'll be interested to see the results of this one, though Perkins is not an equal opponent. So that's... I, I really would much rather have seen the match with Vinny Vitti take place in Party Poker. I know Brandon Adams is going to play uh, Galfond live whenever that can occur. Obviously, that's going to be further delayed. And then the other ones, I don't know where they're going to take place. I thought they were all going to be on run at once except for Brandon Adams, and that's not true. So maybe... Maybe others won't be on run at once either. I don't know. But it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But I just want everybody to understand, no accusations toward Galphon. And I also, I'm not looking for him to fail. I'm not cheering when he loses. I don't have any animosity towards him. And you guys know this. I, I, I come out and say on the show when I don't like somebody. And I don't have anything against him. I think he made some dumb mistakes with his poker site, but I don't have anything against him. I think he's a nice guy. And I think overall he's good for poker. And I remember now overall he is good for poker. And I think he's one of the good people in poker. I have no problem with him. No problem whatsoever. I have found the various antics surrounding him, both from this match and from his struggling poker site, which has made a lot of boneheaded mistakes. I, I find it interesting stuff to talk about on the radio. That's really all. Okay, moving along here. I'm still wondering what happened to Vintage One. He's just silent. Oh, I wonder if he fell asleep. Yeah, I was about to say that. He probably did. I'm just going to drop him. And when he's, uh, if he wakes up, he can come back. Maybe, maybe he dropped to wake him up. I just threw him off. Okay, moving on to our next topic. Prahlad Friedman. Let's talk about him. I want to give you an update, okay? You guys know about his marital problems with his new young Brazilian wife. He has a baby with her, I think it's around one year old. And they've been having problems while they've been sheltering in place. We've covered it on this show. He was divorced once before from a poker player named D. Long, who was older than him. Now he's with a much younger woman, Brazilian woman, as I mentioned. And they've had these fights, open fights on Twitter, we, of course, talked about how he was mad that she was posting, quote, sexy pictures, and then she was getting DMs from his friends with heart eyes showing they liked the pictures. It had to be more than that because he was having fights with her about it, and it was just what his friends were doing. Then, obviously, he can't be mad at her. And I'm thinking, well, he can't be mad at her for posting the pictures. In fact, he claimed at the time he wasn't mad at her for posting the sexy pictures. And, in fact, he had posted videos of her in various states of undress in the past, so he obviously couldn't complain about that. So if, how can she control what his friends do? So I said it has to be more than this. It has to be how she responded to those DMs, or maybe that she didn't tell him about the DMs. There's something that caused these fights. And they had their breakup, where it seemed like the marriage was over, then they get back together, then a few days later they, they fight again on Twitter and say they're breaking up. This has been going back and forth, back and forth, to the point where I'm even starting to wonder... Is this staged at all, or is this real? I think it's real, but who knows? Uh, Willie McFML, who the post on the forum listens to the show, he even suggested, oh, you guys should make a reality show. And he's like, yeah, I should do that. It's a great idea. We should put a camera in here. Yeah, a, I wonder if people want to watch this. So he, he actually started thinking that maybe people want to watch him and his wife and their drama. I think this is like an idea that, like a light bulb that went over his head. And then 
like it seemed like he's kind of playing it up since then. So I do wonder if he's thinking that maybe we should manufacture some fights, or maybe we should play up the fights we're having, and then maybe we'll we'll be recognized in some way to have a reality show. He probably still has a big head that his last divorce was covered on TMZ, which was surprising to me, but it was. This is not covered on TMZ, by the way, but still, he may still believe that this is his way back into notoriety, and maybe this is a way to get his wife discovered. Though it's kind of a weird way to do it. On April 6th, I I didn't talk about this last time. Do you have something to say, Trader Risk, about this? I was just going to ask if you thought he was calling TMZ to, like, make fake reports about himself in a fake voice. Oh, I can totally see that. He's calling, yeah, I want to tell you guys. I, I mean, uh, yes, I want to tell you guys at uh, TMZ, there's a, f- a funny thing going on there, at, uh, on, there right there on, on the Twitter. You should uh, take a look there and, uh, and, and, and see there's, there's a progress and this Redbone uh, Ada fighting with each other. Go, go take a look. It's real interesting. Okay, okay. Well, my, uh, my name is, is, is Joe. Okay, goodbye. Yeah, I can totally see that. If he's listening, you, you probably just gave him an idea. He's probably like, yeah, that Trader Risky guy, he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call up TMZ and I'm, I'm going to give him all the skinny. Give him the 411. On April 6th, and I should have talked about this last show, but I think I forgot. There was a Twitter fight that took place. And uh, unfortunately, it was deleted very fast, which is the only reason I think it's legit, because if it was for show they wouldn't delete it like within like one minute like i i don't think he's thinking far enough ahead to like there's going to be people who grab it really fast and poke in a po- post in a poker fraud alert like i doubt he's doing that nor has he directed anyone to where it's reposted like if he was doing it for that reason he could like fake complain about it as being reposted places he's saying nothing about it being reposted here which is the only place it's being reposted so i i have a feeling this is real if it wasn't for the deleted tweets i really would think this might be stage in some way but on April 6th uh, Aida posted a video which he which he described as a sexy video but it seemed to be I didn't get to see the video before it was deleted but presumably it was a video of someone else which you'll come to understand from the comments so she posted some kind of porn video that she describes as a, a sexy video and then Perlad responded with one word publicly. Classy. So he was sarcastically saying classy. Like, why are you posting porn here? That's, that's no class. So then she asked him what was wrong. What's wrong with posting that? And he responded back, because you have a family. Now, I saw this, but I didn't get a chance to capture it. I should have, but I didn't. I didn't see the video, but I saw the classy and I saw the... Her asking what's wrong, and, she, and he said, because you have a family. Now, the point he was trying to make there is that you have a family. You're, you're a mother now. You shouldn't be posting porn on here. It's not of you. This isn't something that moms do, and this could reflect badly upon you eventually. You know, Stop posting porn up here. That's not what you should be doing with your Twitter anymore. So Redbone Aida, that's Redbone A-I-D-A, that's her name on Twitter, This is what I do have captured. She wrote, referring to the girl in the video, she seems to be having a good time, plus there's no violence in this video as far as I'm concerned. And then Perlod says back, you should do more research in the porn industry and what it does to women. So now now he's a feminist. Now all of a sudden Perlod's the feminist here, and he's lecturing a woman on feminism. I I love the male feminists who like to lecture women on being good feminists. 
Like, if you want to lecture dudes you think are not treating women with respect or viewing women as sex objects or whatever, fine. I still think it's obnoxious. But he's lecturing a woman on feminism. He's the good feminist. She, the actual woman, is not. So she writes back, I've done that, referring to research the porn industry, and I've also schooled you about it. Let's not forget. Plus, women are allowed to express themselves freely. Well, he responds back, still channeling his inner feminist. They are forced into this life because of sexism. If there was equal pay and equal rights, women would rarely do this. Well, in porn, there isn't equal pay, but that's because the women get more. Women get way more than dudes. I, I guarantee when Christopher Mitchell appeared as Kyle, whoever, jerking off for uh, a Big Loads 34, he didn't get paid as much as the girl who was in this video that uh, Redbone Aida posted. Guys do not get paid very much for porn, especially straight porn. Gay porn a little bit more, but straight porn they don't get paid very much at all. It's the women who make the money. But he was referring to if there was equal pay in regular jobs, then... Women would not have to do this. It's because women are oppressed they're going into porn. That's actually not true. And in fact, even feminists don't even make this point. When feminists criticize porn, they're saying that women who are desperate get exploited this way. That this is an exploitation of women who are desperate for money and might be on drugs or whatever. That's, that's sometimes the points that are raised about porn, that even though women are willingly appearing in the porn that it's still men exploiting them. The point is not raised that if women had equal pay in every job to men, that they would never do porn. That's just not true. Just like there's many men who can't get high-paying jobs, there's many women who can't get high-paying jobs, or even medium-paying jobs, and they say to themselves, okay, well, this is a way I can make some decent money, and does not require an education, and doesn't require a lot of hours, and yeah, I have to do sometimes degrading things on camera and have everyone see me, but as far as the amount of work put in, the amount of hours put in, and the amount of skills I must have, there's not much. And I get paid pretty well, so I'll do it. I'm not saying this is a good career choice or a good decision for a young woman to make, but to say that this wouldn't happen if there was equal pay, even if even if women made exactly dollar for dollar the same thing that men made for the same position, same work... Believe me, this wouldn't affect the porn industry one bit. So he doesn't even know what he's talking about. Even even the feminists who are anti-porn don't make that point. But I love Herlod the feminist. He's lecturing a woman about this. That's that's typical Prahlad, too. He loves to act like he's the woke one, he's the enlightened one, he's the sensitive one, he's the champion for the downtrodden. So, okay, let's look at the points he was making here. Number one... Uh, posting porn is bad because the women are being exploited in porn. Porn is bad. Porn is evil. Okay? That's uh, point number one. Point number two is she shouldn't do it because she has a family. And and he later, I don't have this captured either, but when they were arguing back and forth, he was also saying that their daughter's going to grow up at some point and maybe look at her mom's Twitter and see that her mom posted some porn video when she was a, a baby. Which I think is unlikely. Like, how likely is it that her daughter... Like, how old would her daughter have to be to even do this? Like, let's say in 12 years, her daughter's going through her mom's Twitter. Her mom's really a Twitter account that uh, is actively used by that. I don't know if you can or not. Maybe you can. But even if you can, there would have to be a tremendous amount of scrolling and reading. Who would do this? 
You think she's going to care that much about what her mom was tweeting 12 years ago? There's no way. But I can somewhat understand Prahlad's point that like you don't want the mom of your child and your wife making sexual tweets. You don't want her tweeting at porn videos. Like this isn't the appropriate thing for a married mom to do. I can see that point. But, as usual, Perlot is a huge hypocrite. Because if you remember, he was happy to sexualize her in that Hazy Eyes video they did, that music video, with close-up shots of her nearly bare ass. And uh, as recently as March 13th, he was responding positively to sexy pics, his own words, not mine, that she was posting on Twitter. So, he was fine with her sexualizing herself on Twitter, which is far worse than posting a a porn video of someone else. He's okay with his daughter seeing that for some reason. Okay with his daughter seeing this music video they made uh, with close-ups of her bare ass. But but for some reason, her posting this one video is not only not classy, it's also an affront to feminism. It's it's such hypocritical, pseudo-woke garbage that really is just typical of her lot. So it looked like this was going to be the end for them again. But, hold on. Later that day, Redbone Ada tweeted out, Nothing will break us apart. (laughs) (sighs) Then there was another another tweet, which is now gone, of them uh, together, and he has a shirt on with like some kind of stain on it. it looks like on a wet stain on it. Oh, <laughs> like they just had sex. I don't know what it is. It was like, what? On his shirt. That, that It's now gone. I should have saved the picture. That was on April 6th, okay? But there's more to the story. On April 9th, she tweeted, Good people can make bad decisions. That's an interesting statement. Good people can make bad decisions. Now that again looks like that she may have cheated on him or sexted with someone. That that really sounds like it based on everything we've seen up till now. Well, he wrote back, let's make good decisions starting now. That only got two likes, by the way. People, I think people are starting to tire of this. He has a lot of followers. He got two likes. Well, April 12th, you like this one. There is a bizarre new twist to this whole thing. Life is mad crazy. That was a tweet from Perlod. There's a bizarre new twist to this whole thing. Life is mad crazy. A bizarre new twist. What could that be? Life is mad crazy. And this whole thing really sounds like he's talking about their relationship. So what could the bizarre new twist be that was discovered on April 12th? Hmm. 18 years, 18 years. And on her 18th birthday, he found out it wasn't his. Now I ain't saying she a gold digger. Uh, but she ain't messing with no broke niggas. Uh, now- the bizarre new twist, I can only guess at this, but I think that she's pregnant again. 
I think it's possible that during all this fighting, they found out that she's pregnant. They don't want to announce it yet in case the pregnancy doesn't go through or whatever, but he's just teasing that out here, that life is crazy as a bizarre new twist. But I have something else to tell you about. Now remember, remember on April 6th, Perlod was basically putting out the message that you should not post porn on your Twitter feed if you're a mother and have a family. And that the reason you shouldn't do that is because if you have a daughter and one day she goes back and looks at her parents' Twitter from 2020 and sees dirty stuff up there, even if it's dirty stuff you posted of other people, it's going to make you look bad. So you would think that someone who feels that way would not post this video, which I wish you could see. Right now I wish it was a video show, but I'll play play this to you and tell you what I'm seeing. What is that sound effect? Okay. That sound is Perlod's hand squeezing Ada's bare ass and spreading the cheeks apart repeatedly. And that little is the sound of that happening. This tweet's still up there on April 13th says, I had an amazing day with Red Bone Ada. A heart, I can feel it in the air. 21 Savage. I, I would think I can feel it in the air is more of a Phil Collins thing. But putting that aside, <laughs> I mean, she, her ass is completely bare. I don't mean it's in a thong. It's completely bare. And you see his white hand on her dark brown ass. And he's squeezing it, not just squeezing the outside, he's squeezing it like almost to the inside of it, almost into the crack. And squeezing, you can see everything. Yeah, I don't want our daughter to scroll back when she's 12 years old and see this. Well, also take off your pants, I want to squeeze your ass and spread out your cheeks here for Twitter. Like, how does this make any sense? This is what you don't want your daughter to see. This is the example you don't want to set for your daughter, that, that you do this on Twitter for the public to see. So if, if you've got a daughter, you're confer- concerned for her and your family, you don't want her to scroll back and see mommy being an exhibitionist with daddy with full nudity. That's what you don't want her seeing. That's much worse than seeing that mommy posted somebody else's porn video. This is a week apart. Like, explain this one. Someone explain this to me. Like, could anyone be more of the embodiment of do as I say, not as I do, than Perlod Friedman? Is it possible? This is the guy who would not sign with poker stars. I don't want to support corporations or corporations are evil. And then he signs with UB. And and the reason that happened was presumably because he needed the money when he signed with UB, because that was years later. It's like everything he says you shouldn't do, he does himself. It's almost like he's trying as hard as he can to be a hypocrite. Here he gave a week between them. A week between, don't post sexual stuff on your Twitter, bad for our daughter to see one day, to posting his wife's actual bare ass being spread apart with his hand on Twitter for everyone to see. By the way, that only got six likes. <laughs> Is anyone even like following him anymore? Does anyone like not even bother to, to read it? Then uh, there's a troll that's been 
hassling Prahlad. I promise it's not me, and I promise I don't know who it is. It's someone who's Doc Bluff, who's at Bluff Doc on Twitter. No idea who it is. Don't know if it's a member of this site. Know nothing about him. But uh, Doc Bluff responded, she's pretty fat. She needs to lay off food during the quarantine. And uh, Prahlad wrote back, you crazy. Every guy on earth is in her DMs. So, well, wait a minute. I thought you didn't like that. I thought that's pissing you off that every guy on earth is in her DMs. Now, now it's good? He's being a hypocrite again. He puts a heart after that. So now, now, now it's a good thing guys are in her DMs. I, he can't decide. He can't decide if he's happy that dudes are messaging her because uh, they think she's hot. Or that he's pissed off about it because he's jealous. He can't decide. It's, one day it's good, one day it's bad. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing how contradictory this guy is. The, the sad thing about the ass video he posted is not just that he's exposing his wife like this. It's the fact that at 41 years old, that he's even feeling like this is cool. Like, okay, so you're married and you're grabbing your wife's ass in a, in a sexual way while she moves. Okay, like, that's what all married guys do. Yes, you're having sex with your wife. Yes, every dude who's in a marriage or a long or even not so long relationship is having sex with their wife or girlfriend. It's, that's not a, a tremendous accomplishment at the age of 41. Now, if you're 16 years old and it's the first time you're grabbing an ass like that and you want to show your friends, I, I still think it's bad form. But, but you know, kids do things like that. Teenagers do things like that. It would be more understandable to come from a, a, a teenage boy who's trying to show he's, he's grabbing ass for the first time in his life. But a, a 41-year-old guy, why, why post this? What's he even trying to show here? This isn't even like a new girlfriend. This is, this is his wife that he has a kid with. So, okay, uh, you're having sex, Prahlad? Like, congratulations? I think he actually does have this conflicting thing going on inside of him regarding the way he wants people to view and treat his wife. Remember, he's with a Brazilian girl who's like 17, 18, 18 years younger than him. And clearly they don't have anything in common culturally. Clearly they don't have anything in common age-wise, generationally. Um, I have to imagine he's with her because he thinks she's young and hot, and she's with him because he has money, and because he promised he could help her with her music career, which hasn't worked out, by the way. So... I guess on one hand, he wants guys to be jealous that he's 41 and he's with a 24-year-old and that he can touch her sexually like this and they can't. But on the other hand, he starts to get insecure and jealous when other guys start messaging her when when they're posting this. So, like, he'll see this and he'll think, oh, crap, like, what if she leaves me for another dude? What if she finds these other dudes more attractive than me? What if she's turned on by these other dudes more uh, what if she's enjoying the attention they're giving more than she enjoys attention from me? Like, those thoughts probably go through his head. But then at the same time, you're thinking, oh, yeah, they're, they're jealous of my girl. They're, they they want what I got. Yeah. Oh, but I'm kind of jealous, too. It kind of pisses me off. What, what if she's liking it? I want, her to, I want her to get these messages but not like it. Yeah. Yeah. I want her to – I want them to send it, but she doesn't like it at all. She only likes me. Like, I, I don't know speculating here of course but it's such a 
weird psychology to have, especially at age 41. But he's one of these people who never grew up. And I've said that before. He's someone over 40 who just never matured anywhere near there. A lot of people retain some form of immaturity. Look, I'm a guy who's 48 who still makes prank calls on the radio. Okay, I, I understand that. But there's certain things you get past, certain things you're expected to get past. There's a lot he hasn't gotten past. So uh, <laughs> that's, that's your Perlot update. I'll tell you what I'm going to do here. Uh, Trader Risk, are you still awake? Are you going to go to bed before we can even get to the coronavirus? I'm going to have to tap out, Josh. Oh, man, I've got to do the coronavirus. I'll be listening. Myself. Okay, well, uh, thank you, Trader Risky, for being here. Commercial break. I'll be back. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California, you can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. Okay, I'm back, and uh, I was looking at the text messages I've received while we've been doing our segments. I want to read you some of them. First of all, somebody had the nerve to send me a picture of Gavin Griffin's penis. Yes, that Gavin Griffin. Many years ago, Gavin Griffin was scammed by a dude pretending to be a girl. And not only did this person scam money out of Gavin, but they scammed his penis out of him. Gavin never bothered to call this girl or get any kind of verification that it was really a girl other than pictures. 
and not live pictures in any way, just pictures which were fake. So the dude who did this showed up to never win poker at the time. I think this was in 2006 and not only posted the whole story, but posted Gavin Griffin's penis up there. And Gavin Griffin, he admitted to it. He admitted the whole thing happened. So he got ripped off of $6,000 and his penis and someone saved that and sent it to me. That was very nice of them to remind me of that. From the 507, at least it looks like he enjoyed the segment about uh, the scammer. He said, uh, the segment is hilarious. And then uh, from the 505, referring to those two callers, the male and female, they said, those two callers may be your first inbred fans. <laughs> okay, here's a serious text I got from the 716. Druff, here's an interesting topic for discussion. Let's say you're in a satellite online for a big tournament seat. You're chip leading the satellite with 15 left, top four get the seat. The site goes down on your end due to technical difficulty on the site's end. You get back, you get you get back end over many attempts. I don't know what he means by that. And then having to re-download such many time. I have no idea what that sentence means. You get back end over many attempts and then having to download such many a time. What? Now you're back in the tournament after sitting out over an hour and you come back to three big blinds and you double bubble, meaning you're two off the bubble. What should the site be liable for? And yes, this is an ACR debacle. <laughs> Well, I think what the person's trying to say is that America's card room was having connection issues and that by the time this person was able to reconnect, that even though they were uh, doing well in the tournament, they were the chip leader with 15 left, with four getting the seat, that almost all their chips blinded off in a period of an hour when they couldn't connect, what should be done? Well... It depends. If America's card room admits that it was their problem where everyone was disconnected, what they should do is then just go back to when the disconnection problems were starting and just split the money either by ICM or at the ver- if not that, then just split it 15 ways. I think ICM would be fair even though it's a satellite. So that's, that's what throws it off a bit because it's a satellite. So ICM is based on like a cash tournament. ICM, for those of you that don't know, is a calculation that figure out, figures out the equity of each person's stack. Because since the person who ends up with all the chips in the tournament doesn't end up with 100% of the buy-ins, since other people get paid, that's what ICM helps calculate. But if not done with that, at the very least, uh, split it 15 ways. Don't just leave the guy where he doesn't get anything. He said he ended up going. Uh, he came back after it forced sat him out, and there were only six left. Four get the seat, and then he was out. So he got nothing. The problem is, and this is a common issue with online poker, is the site never admits it's their fault. If every single player gets disconnected, they admit it's their fault. If half the players get disconnected at one point, you can say it's their fault. If it's just you... Even if it's not your fault and you can, you can connect to every other site except them, good luck. You're never going to convince them it's their fault. 
And I've had that maddening situation myself, not in tournaments, I don't play online tournaments, but I've had it in cash games where I'm way ahead in the hand, or I've got the nuts, I'm going to win it for sure, and before I can complete the big pot, I get disconnected, and I check every other site I connect to just fine. It's not my connection. And I complain, and the site always says the same thing to me. It's my internet. Now, sometimes it has been my internet, so they're not always wrong. But I can figure out whether it was my internet or not. But they will always default to saying that it's on your end. And the only way you can prove it's on their end is if several players got disconnected at once, especially ones in different areas. If you're in the same area, they can claim it's just your internet provider, everyone in that area just isn't connecting. It's the provider's fault. But if you and some guy in New York and and you're in Los Angeles and some guy in... in, uh, South America, if all you get is connected at once, even if there's half the players who still can be connected, obviously that's not just, quote, uh, ISP issues. That's an issue with connectivity on their end, and they should do something for you. What exactly, I don't know, like if, if it's only certain people get disconnected, I don't know what they do. It's, it's hard to penalize those who are still connected, but then they can also make the case that those who are still connected only did as well as they did because half the people were disconnected. And I'm just making up the number half disconnected. This person didn't text me how many got disconnected at the same time. And maybe he doesn't know. But that's what you got to look for. Get the hand histories and see if there were others who disconnected at the same time as you. If it's only you, you're going to get nothing. You can try, but I can tell you you're probably going to get nothing. In fact, if I were the one who owned ACR, if a guy got disconnected, claimed it was on our end, but he was the only one of those 15 who got disconnected... I would probably say the same thing. I'd probably say, no, it's on you. If I saw more than one, yeah, I'd agree it was on our side. Speaking of disconnections, I know Poker Fraud Alert Radio tonight has been cutting out some, and we've had this problem the last few weeks. It must be the internet here on my end that has had some trouble connecting to the Poker Fraud Alert radio server because I've noticed there's been some cutouts. Last week, I actually had to re-record a few seconds of, uh, of a few segments where there was a cutout. And where if I just pasted them all together, it wouldn't make any sense. So I had to actually re-record a few things after the show to bridge it together. Someone even pointed out, oh, I noticed there's a little audio cut here. I could tell there's uh, a different sound to, to the background. So it's a, you did this afterwards. Yes, you're right. Yes, I, I did have to do that, and that's the reason why. A lot of times I can do this editing, even sometimes after the fact, recording of segments without it being apparent. There's some people say, oh, I can always tell. No, I promise you, you can't. There's sometimes you can't tell. I also noticed last week there was one particular edit I did that didn't sound very good as far as being able to fool people into thinking it was all done at once. But I, I didn't bother to change it. I just left it. I'm like, okay, I'm sure some people will notice, but whatever. But if you hear the sound suddenly change, then that's what happened. I also received a complaint tonight in text that there was some uh, static or background noise earlier in the show. I think I know what that is, and uh, you may notice that it was appearing less during some of the segment with this uh, Christopher Mitchell. And I think that was some Skype background noise with vintage ones, Skype set up. So I'm going to have to work with him on that to minimize that. I think he might be using uh, some sort of, I think he may not be using a headset or if he is, maybe it's not preventing the noise, but yeah, that's uh we will work to, prevent that background noise because I know I I hate static and background noise as much as you guys do. Probably more than you guys do. 
I hate when I go back and listen and there's like a static or background noise. Sometimes, in fact, when I make edits after the show and there's no static or background noise, that's how you can tell something's been edited because then there's no more noise. In fact, Skype always kind of makes like a background sound to it, even if it's a perfect connection. And when I'm on without Skype, it's a different sound a little bit. It's a little bit clearer. And then, of course, when I do edits at the end, I'm not on Skype anymore. I've even considered calling myself on Skype just to create the background noise to be consistent. Okay. I'm going to continue on. There's a lawsuit, a lawsuit that took place back in 2017 over something that happened at the end of 2016 that we've talked about on this show before. This involved the PPC tournament in Aruba and a scam that occurred there that was perpetrated by the owners of the PPC. We've talked about this on the show before. You may not remember it, or maybe if you're newer to the show, you never heard the story. I will do a brief recap, but the the main point of doing this segment is to give you an update as to what was the final result of everything. Sometimes we do these stories and we talk about a lawsuit, and then we never give you the way it all ended. But this is one that has an update. And I'd wondered about this one. I just had not done extensive research into figuring out whatever happened. And fortunately, somebody else did. So this is what happened. In November 2016, the PPC Aruba, which is known as the Poker Players Championship, had a scandal. This is the tournament that took over for the Aruba tournament UB used to have. In fact, I played that tournament. In fact, I took a bad beat in that tournament. Otherwise, I probably would have cashed it or who knows, maybe made it really deep. It was actually a great tournament in that the competition just sucked big time. I wasn't even a great No Limit Hold'em cash, uh, not cash. I wasn't even a great No Limit Tournament player at that time by any means. I was fairly new to No Limit Tournaments. But despite that, in 2007, I uh, I was like one of the best players there by far. <laughs> like, like every table I was put at, I'm like, I'm way better than all these people. And I wasn't being delusional. Like these just were not good players. These were like online satellite qualifiers. And it's kind of a mixture of people who really sucked and were kind of like mediocre at best. There are a few good people here and there, but it was a... I got the seat actually for free from Absolute Poker for playing on there so much. This is just as the cheating scandal on AP was being brought to light. But I got that free seat there, and I was even trying to find people there to talk to me about the UB, the not the UB thing, the AP thing. The UB scandal hadn't happened yet, but the same company. But anyway, I took a three-outer against the oldest person in the tournament, a 76-year-old who looked like he was 86. And played like he was 86, and he put a three-outer on me all in and busted me. Like, about five or six short of the money. And it was like a $6,000 buy-in. So that kind of sucked. But anyway, I digress. When UB folded, that was the end of this tournament. So, two guys took over, and uh, had nothing to do with UB anymore, but they wanted to continue this popular Aruba tournament. Two guys named uh, Brian Olton and Sandy Schwartzbaugh. And they called it the Poker Players Championship. The PPC. They had other events, but this is the PPC Aruba. This was the 
big event they'd have, and their other events would mainly be satellites to winning an Aruba seat. So that I, I don't know when that started. I knew it was after UB went down. But it had gone for at least a few years. And the last one they had was in November 2016 when all this controversy took place. So they had 14 other casinos in the U.S. These were all in the eastern U.S. that were actually running PPC events and tournaments, including satellites, to uh, this main Aruva event. And this took place at major casinos like uh, Harrah's North Kansas City and other ones around the eastern U.S., not just tiny side-of-the-road casinos. The PPC employed various people, including bloggers, journalists, and uh, tournament staff members. Uh, The first sign that there was a problem is some of these people who were employed by the PPC were slow-paid for various sums of money, including debts under $500. People are going, why are... Why is this seemingly successful poker tournament having trouble paying my $500 paycheck? That was the first sign there was a problem. Now, if you won a satellite, then you would get a seat to the Big Aruba tournament. And the package included travel expenses, which was to be reimbursed upon the player showing up at Aruba. So you basically pay your own way to get to Aruba, and then they would pay you back the travel expense portion. I guess they didn't want people just like taking the travel expenses and not showing up and selling the seat. I, I don't know. That's the way they did it. They reimbursed you for the travel expenses once you got there. And the seat, well, it was waiting for you there. You won it. The problem was that it turned out that this was all being managed and all the money was being held by these two guys, Brian Olton and Sandy Schwartzbaugh. So even though you're playing at Harris North Kansas City and other well-known casinos, what ends up happening is that uh, the money is all handled by these two guys, which people don't expect. You think you're playing a satellite to a Aruba tournament at Harris North Kansas City, you kind of think it's their event. Or if it's not their event, that they have some involvement. But they didn't. They were just the venue, and people were very misled by this. So the problem with this is that they're giving away seats. Remember, you're winning mostly a seat to this Aruba tournament, and you're not getting it until several months later, sometimes almost a year later. So let's say you show up to Aruba, and yeah, they have the seat for you, but what if the money behind the seat is gone? Well, then they've got a problem, because what do they do when the tournament's over in Aruba, and they have to pay all the finishers, especially the top finishers who are going to be getting a lot of money. Well, the trick they used was they told everyone, and it's unbelievable that this, what happened. In fact, I see right here, it, it was, it went five years, the PPC. So in the fifth year, in 2016, I guess they immediately took over once UB was gone. And again, it had nothing to do with UB. It's just they took over something that was already doing well with UB and that UB gave up because they didn't exist anymore. So the fifth year of the PPC, November 2016, they told all the players, I don't know if they told everybody or if they told them once they got down to the final table, that they're not going to pay more than $10,000 on the spot. But that once you get back to the U.S., they will pay you the remainder. If you've won more than 10000 they will pay you the remainder back in the U.S. about 10 to 15 days later. 
I don't know how this was acceptable to anybody. But everybody's like, oh, okay, uh, yeah, sure, pay, pay me when I get back. I'm kind of non-standard, but whatever. I'm sure you're, I'm sure you're good for it. So that was the excuse. We can pay you ten thousand now. We'll pay you the rest back in the U.S. Now, what was the excuse for this? Well, they said, well, you have to declare more than ten thousand dollars cash brought back to the U.S. So uh, you don't want to take this much cash back to the U.S. And furthermore, um, it, it's very tough to get the buy-in money that we brought to Aruba. It's very tough to get it out of Aruba back to the U.S. because of Aruban law regarding money movement. Well, wouldn't that be a reason that you would pay the people their full amount? Wouldn't that be the term in saying, look, we can't get this much out in a lump sum, so we are going to pay you everything now and find a way to just declare it or whatever you want to do with it? I mean, there's tournaments – in the Caribbean all over the place. And there's tournaments been, it's not like this is the first Caribbean tournament. It's not the first Aruba tournament. UB held the tournament. They paid everybody in full. So, so why the sudden new thing of, Oh, uh, we will only leave a 10,000 because uh, you'll have to declare it. And then something about Aruban law, we can't move this out of the country. It doesn't make any sense. They, they, why? Because they made it up. None of this was true. I mean, yes, you have to declare more than $10,000 brought in the U S but fine, declare it <laughs> or they could pay you by check. Instead, no, you're just not getting more than 10000 Once, uh, it, it, while you're on the spot here, we'll pay you a few weeks later in the U.S. So starting in 2015, and maybe even earlier, but verify 2015, the top winners, the ones who are supposed to get the most money, weren't getting it in 15 days. They were getting slow paid. In fact, the winner of 2015, Vincent Florenza, it took him months to receive the full $106,000 that he won, but... Uh, Florenza, for whatever reason, didn't go public about this. He just kind of bitched about it privately to friends who verified that he did, but he never went public. And uh, another year went by without anyone even mentioning this anywhere online. Believe me, if someone told me about this, I would have blown this up everywhere. That This this had scam written all over it, that they're only paying you $10,000 on the spot and paying you weeks later in the U.S. It was an obvious Ponzi scheme. I'm not talking in hindsight here. It was obvious once you hear that detail that there's something wrong. That they just don't have the money. Well, it all came crashing down in 2016. They didn't have the money. They gave that same $10,000 thing. And uh, the top seven finishers who all cashed more than 10000 did not ever get anything above that 10000 they gave them initially. So the whistle was blown in late December 2016. The players were uh, being stalled for one and a half months since the tournament was over. And then people started looking into it, suspecting that maybe Brian Olton and Sandy Schwarzbaugh did not have the money. And then they started finding some very suspicious things that uh, Sandy Schwarzbaugh was trying to solicit investments into the company and a lot of signs that they were broke. And yeah, it turned out they were broke. Turned out they this had been a long-running... Ponzi scheme where they were embezzling the money and they were robbing Peter to pay Paul and they were taking whatever tournament buy-ins they got currently to pay old buy-in debts, old prize debts. It was a disaster. And this was something that was successful, by the way. These guys had actually done something which is tough to do, and that is they created a successful and lucrative poker tour. Wasn't huge. Wasn't like the World Poker Tour. Wasn't like the World Series of Poker. But as far as like kind of small to medium poker tours go. It, it was successful. It made money. It had a big following. It had a good reputation. And 
people personally liked Sandy Schwartzbaugh and Brian Olton. People said they were nice guys. Uh, they were very friendly. The tournaments were run well. This, this was theirs to screw up. They, they did a lot of things right, but they could not hold on to the money. They, I don't know what they did with it, but they, they, they stole the money and then didn't have, or, or mismanaged the money and they didn't have, uh, the money to pay. And then they started lying about the whole thing in Aruba where they can't pay people and just figured we'll raise the money later. And the whole thing crashed from there. Okay. So that happened and people didn't get paid. And we covered that on the show in, uh, in 2016, the end of 2016. Reason I'm talking about this now, and by the way, Brian Olton and Sandy Schwartzbaud, like just, who were very, very public on social media prior to this, they, they vanished. They blocked people on Twitter. They deleted their, their, eventually deleted their social media. Uh, they, they ran away. There was also, uh, a lot of criticism directed at the casinos, which allowed this to take place. I'm talking about the ones in the U.S., like uh, Harris, North Kansas City, and Maryland Live. They were the subject of a lot of criticism for not vetting the owners of these tours and actually giving the money to these guys to bring to Aruba instead of sending the money to Aruba themselves. Like the players had no idea that this could be possible. They thought they're winning something through a major casino, not they're winning it at a major casino where the money is being held by two guys they don't know or trust. So... There was a lawsuit about this. Who was behind the lawsuit? I'm sure you can guess. Yes, Mac Verstandig. And then uh, I didn't really hear much about it. In April 2017, which is some months later, Brian Olton filed for bankruptcy. Uh, There was a weird story where Brian Olton's dad killed his mom. Yes, murdered his mom. Because his mom was, quote, interfering with Brian's poker tour, which is really weird. It's almost like his mom knew he was a scammer and, and spoke up and said, no, I don't want you to do this. And, and Brian's dad was uh, trusting Brian or something, and they got in a big fight, and his dad ended up killing his mom. Now, Brian didn't have anything to do with killing his mom and, in fact, testified against his dad. But that was a sad side story to this whole thing, that indirectly that the scam that uh, Brian Olton was perpetrating – ended up uh, resulting in the death of his mom at the hands of his dad. That was a really bizarre side story to the whole thing. Uh, the staff got screwed. They didn't get paid. And uh, there was not much movement about this. And in fact, uh, I had not uh, discussed this in over two years at all on the forum or the radio show. However, Chad Holloway of Poker News did a follow-up on this and he found out a lot of stuff. So here's what happened. Here's the closure on the PPC Ponzi scheme story. So there was a lawsuit, as I said, and uh, the lawsuit was against the casinos and also against uh, Olton and Schwartzbaugh themselves. I think it was also against the poker tour, but the poker tour has ceased operation, so it doesn't matter what you... You could win a billion dollars against the poker tour. It's, it's not going to ever continue, so that doesn't really matter. Uh, Tampa Bay Downs, which is one of the rooms which hosted one of the venues, ended up settling. I don't know about the other ones, but I know the Tampa Bay Downs ended up settling, according to this article. They settled for a total of $80,000. 
this went to about 19.3k to the winner. Or he's owed a lot more than that, but uh, 19.3k to the winner, 12.6k to second, 5.9k to third, 3.4k to fourth, 1.7k to fifth, um, and then 22,400 to trustee. I don't know who trustee is or why that's there. And then uh, Mac for standing, the attorney got uh, 14,400. So that was, and the reason Mac's getting this directly is because he, he takes these on contingency. And uh, I don't know if he always does, but I know in, in this case he must have. So that's, that was the settlement there. Then uh, that was Tampa Bay Downs. Tampa Bay Downs admitted no wrongdoing or unlawful conduct when they settled for this. And this is very common when settlements occur between uh, individuals and companies or even companies and companies where the company does not want to admit wrongdoing because there's various ways that this can come back to bite them. It could be used against them by competition. It could be used against them in uh, future lawsuits. So they don't want to admit wrongdoing. They're basically saying, we did nothing wrong, but just to make this go away, we're paying. Now, they know they did things wrong, but they, but, but by not legally admitting they did anything wrong, is like from a civil law stand from a civil lawsuit standpoint, it's kind of like pleading no contest. It's kind of like we'll pay, but also we're not guilty. So we're we're admitting to nothing, but here's some money, go away. That's what they're doing. And the um, anything that has been proven in court can be used against you in any way, as far as advertising concerned or anything published. So, like, if Tampa Bay Downs admitted they did something wrong, then their competition could say, hey, Tampa Bay Downs admitted the wrongdoing in uh, this poker tournament where they cheated people, uh, blah, blah, blah. So they, they don't want that. So this way they never admit anything wrong. They just said, look, we're paying it out. And you can say, well, why would they pay it out? Well, they can say, oh, we're paying it out because we uh, – this is wasting too much of our time. This is too much hassle. The, the legal fees to defend it would be too much. This is too much of a distraction. We're just, we're just going to pay it and be done even though we think we were in the right. And that's what they would say if you were to ask them about it. But they know they did something wrong. I mean, that's that's this is a very common thing that occurs in lawsuits that are settled. No admission of wrongdoing, but a monetary settlement. Uh, according to the agreement, quote, not only will the settlement justly bring an end to the instant litigation, but nearly three years after the collapse of the PPC will finally allow the majority of the scheme's victims to recover monies. Now, they're not recovering all their money by any means. They're only recovering a fraction of their money, but at least they get uh, something. Then the agreement said, thus, while the plaintiffs have and always have maintained appreciable confidence in their probability of success, they also recognize that success is very much without certainty. The case is factually complex, courtesy of it being premised upon a multinational financial fraud and legally complex due to the novel applications of various laws upon which it has been constructed. Such complexities carry inherent risk, and in the case of owning its origins to gambling activity has always been understood an appreciably risky wager was being made. It's, it's it's pretty simple there. They're basically saying there, there's so many complexities here to where we could lose, even though we, we think we're going to win. Uh, we don't think it's 100%, so we'll, we'd rather just take the sure thing. The agreement with Tampa Bay Downs was approved January 6th, 2020. So this is a recent thing. It's not like Chad Holloway went to go look this up and saw this was settled uh, two and a half years ago. This was this is, this year this stuff was going on. Now, as part of the agreement, 
Strangely enough, uh, the PPC tour owner, Brian Alton, who was one of the scammers, was listed as a plaintiff. I don't quite understand that. However, there's no way he's going to try to collect any money because uh, any money he collected could be just grabbed immediately by the other plaintiffs because uh, he owes them. I don't quite understand why that was done. Uh, in 2017, in his bankruptcy, he said he had 890000 in debt and only 414000 in assets and was unemployed and no source of income. And uh, then earlier this month, he actually uh, finalized a divorce and earlier than that had completed the bankruptcy process. And uh, anyway, uh, Schwarzbach did not go the bankruptcy route and reached a settlement with the plaintiffs in 2017. Anyway, uh, according to Chad Holloway in this article, Alton and Schwarzbach agreed to pay back $60,000 each. Of that, $20,000 must be paid back over time. It's $20,000 total. Must be paid back over time. How long? 50 months. <laughs> Can you imagine being so broke you have to break up a $20,000 judgment over 50 months? I don't know about the other 40000 but uh, it's a... Of that, $20,000 must be paid over 50 months in $400 installments in order for the damaged party not to seek further relief. I don't know if they're going to really do this, but that's what they've agreed to. Apparently, Alton and Schwarzbaugh agreed to pay back uh, $400 a month over 50 months. Now, maybe they each put a 40k up front and the final 20 can be over 50 months. Who knows? The article doesn't make that part clear. Now, if you add the Tampa Bay Downs money, and if Olton and Schwarzbach really do pay back that 60000 over this period of time, then uh, they'll be getting about two-thirds of the money that was owed to them. There are also about $2 million in combined judgments against the PPC, but obviously that's not going to be collected since it's dead. So that is what happened. Uh, I'm actually surprised that Schwarzbaugh and Alton settled. But uh, maybe they just figured for $60,000 they'll do it and just put it behind them. Maybe they thought they're going to lose a lot more if they don't, and that 60000 is manageable, especially if each put up 40000 right away. I don't know. But that's it. So the people are never going to be made whole completely. They're going to get back about two-thirds if Alton and Schwarzbaugh pay, which is a big if, because what I've seen in these situation where dishonest people agree to make payments over a long period of time, the first payment always comes in. I mean, I just would never see it where someone agrees to payments and they don't make the first payment. Everybody makes the first payment. Second payment, sometimes. Third payment, that's where you're going to start to see it disappear. Third payment either doesn't come or comes late, and fourth payment you usually don't see. Occasionally get lucky and you really get the payments. But Often, the person makes the first payment, and then it starts to go downhill from there. Which makes me think either they're doing it for show, or they think they're going to be able to make payments. I I don't know what it is. But somehow the first payment always comes. I I don't know a single time I've ever seen payments have been agreed to 
not just in court, like just any kind of settlement, and, and then the first payment's missed. It seems like the first payment not only shows up, but it shows up on time, and then it just about always goes downhill from there. But I guess that's the best they can hope for. Like, I guess it's kind of found money to them at this point since they thought they weren't going to get it at all. I don't like to blame the victim. And I'm not saying the victims don't deserve to be paid in full. They do. But boy, they were naive. And I can't believe this went on for five years in this fashion and nobody said anything. Like, like how gullible can people be? You got a final table full of people every year and no one lets it slip out on 2 plus 2 or anywhere else on social media. Hey, this is really weird. This is the only tournament in existence where you only get paid 10000 and the rest much later. Isn't that weird, guys? No one says that. No one until a year, a month and a half past, five years into this whole thing, and people go, hmm, it's been a month and a half. Maybe we won't get our money. Maybe this is a peculiar thing, which we should have spoken up about at the time. Though at the time it was too late. They didn't have money. But uh, you know what I'm saying. This should have been talked about a long time beforehand. I guarantee if this ever happened to me, I would have spoken up. This is insane. The fact that this shows you how, and I said this at the time, this shows you how gullible some poker players are. This shows you how some poker players are so easily manipulated into believing that certain things that are told to them are true, even when they make no sense. There's a lot of poker players out there who are great at poker and suck at everything else and suck at basic life skills. And it makes you wonder about some of these people, how they can be so smart in poker and so bad at other things. But, but I see it. And this is an example. How an entire final table full of people for four straight years could do that and say nothing. And then a fifth straight year it happens and they still say nothing for a month and a half. It doesn't get out. Some of the story never gets out for five years. Insane. This would have been red flag after red flag to me. If, if I was there at that final table, I would have said, hang on a second, this isn't true. And I would have right there in Aruba verified the Aruban law. I would have demanded to see that the money is on deposit at the casino. So if if they're claiming it's so hard to get the money out of Aruba, I'd say, okay, I'd like the casino to show me that the money is here. I would have made a huge deal over this. But everybody's, okay, I guess that makes sense. We'll get back on the plane with only 10K. You're doing us a favor. We don't have to declare it flying into the country. <sighs> it's unbelievable. That story still amazes me that it went on this long without becoming a scandal. And hey, if they paid people within 15 days, this could have kept going for I don't know how long before this got exposed. Even if they were paying people exactly as they promised in in 10 to 15 days, I would have said there's no way this is legit. If if I heard that, I would have said there's got to be something going on here. Well, they paid us after 15 days. I don't care, I'd say. There's something here that's shady. There's some lie that's going on here. I guess they're just lucky that whoever made the final table didn't press it. Because I know others. I'm not like the only one in the world who would have pressed this. I know others who would not have accepted this as a story. Okay, speaking of people who are not right, uh, Adnan Mohammed. if we want to go back to old stories of old scammers, Adnan Mohammed, who ran the best-known PP poker scandal, which the PP Poker app has gotten very big in recent times because of the coronavirus. Nobody can play live poker. Uh, back in 
2019, very beginning of 2019, January 2019, I did a big story on here about the Adnan Mohammed scam where he was scamming people through a room he had on one of those PP Poker apps. Uh, the PP Poker app is not owned by him or run by him, but you can start up your own poker room within that app and then you control all the money. So all the deposits and payouts are done through you, and then you have agents working under you. I've talked about this model several times. There's a lot of this going on today, and that's how a lot of people are playing online poker right now is through these apps. Uh, some people are playing on PP Poker, some are playing on Poker Bros, and some are playing on other sites. Adnan Mohammed ran a big scam through a PP Poker app back in January 2019, and in 18, he went by the name New York Poker King, NY Poker King, that name by itself is very suspect. Someone who calls himself NY Poker King. You already have to think, sounds kind of scammy. And if you went through his Instagram, he was constantly trying to flaunt that he was rich and betting all kinds of big money. And this is a guy who tried to constantly flaunt his wealth and his success in your face on his Instagram. And that's always a bad sign. He also posted pictures of a Bentley he supposedly owned, which, by the way, he didn't. Everything he tried to post as a status symbol of a rich person, he did. Uh, similar to how I was mentioning earlier that uh, about people who aren't rich who try to act like they think rich people act like and they get it wrong, this was Adnan Mohammed. He really thought that what rich people do is they constantly flaunt the expensive cars they drive, the big money they gamble, uh, the high-stakes lifestyle they lead. That's not what they do. Most people who have a lot of money just enjoy it and are kind of quiet about it. In fact, a lot of them don't like to flaunt that because they can be targets of extortion or crime. But even putting aside the, the whole criminal thing, it's like when you actually have money, it, it's actually less exciting to you. It's just something, okay, I did well, I have money, that's great, but it's not something I'm excited about every day. It's just kind of something that's a part of my life. That's what you think if you have a lot of money. So you don't feel the need to flaunt it at every second. I've always said that whoever brags about being rich isn't. Few exceptions, but usually not. Usually those that brag about being rich are not. I see that over and over and over again. Now, I'm not talking about people who uh, use their money to, uh, to to get attention or whatever. Like like Bill Perkins is a good example. Bill Perkins is a rich guy who doesn't brag about being rich, but he does a lot of expensive things, and and he, he ran that that poker house there and all that. Yeah, you know, like he does a lot of things that would cost a lot of money, including playing Phil Galfond at high stakes that he couldn't do if he wasn't rich. But he still doesn't flaunt it. Like Adnan Muhammad does. But that's about the most flaunting you usually see from actual rich people. So Adnan was very, very much an example of someone who wished they were rich, liked to pretend being rich, liked everyone to think he was rich, but wasn't, and was always broke and was scamming people. And a lot of people came out with stories about how he ripped them off through this PP Poker app and other various scams he ran over time. Uh, well, apparently he's back <laughs> after being pretty much shamed off the internet. He actually had some defenders too. They were saying, "Oh no, Adnan's going to pay." You'll see, and of course he didn't. 
But after kind of being shamed out of all this last year because his reputation was shot, I guess he figured people are forgetting about this because they really want to play on these apps again and the coronavirus is on everyone's mind, not so much him. So he's back as New York Poker King (laughs) and he's promoting a new uh, poker room he's running again through PP Poker. So if you go to uh, playpokernet.com, which is a stupid URL, not playpoker.net, but playpokernet.com, not even playpokernet.net, this is playpokernet.com. Now, I cannot stress enough, do not join this, because you will get stolen from. But it says playpokernet, join playpokernet in two easy steps, message us via Telegram app, and then download the Telegram app and Poker X app. So I guess now he's on the Poker X club, not the PB Poker club. If, I, I wonder if he's thrown off of PB Poker. But I guess now he's running the this uh, playpokernet.com through the Poker X club, which I hadn't even heard of. That must be another app. And uh, yeah, he's promoting it on Instagram as if this whole thing never happened. So if you're going to play on any sites, do not do it through playpokernet. Do not, or you will not get your money. By the way, don't expect to see him in Las Vegas even when it's safe to return and even when the casino is open again. And if you do see him, I suggest you call the police because there is an active felony case against Adnan Mohammed from 2018. Mm. So I will give you a case number. You can go look this up yourself if you want to go to the Las Vegas Township Justice Court Records Inquiry. If you Google that, Las Vegas Township Justice Court Records Inquiry, and you go to View and Pay Criminal Records, you can enter case number 18F like Frank, 13270X like X ray, 18F1370X, search it by case number, and bang! Adnan Mohammed filed August 31st, 2018 for embezzlement of auto, $3,500 or more. Felony. Now, what do you think that auto might be? I bet it was the freaking Bentley. I bet he stole the Bentley. 8-30-2018, it says... uh, See, uh, track assignment, Nevada risk assessment tool, criminal complaint on August 31st, 2018, filed under seal, uh, arrest warrant request on September 5th, 2018, uh, an arrest warrant was issued, probable cause was found, a request for an arrest warrant to be filed was granted, and there it is, embezzlement of auto, $3,500 plus. I'm not sure exactly what he did. I think it has to do with the Bentley. I don't know if he just drove off with it. It might... I don't think it was stolen. Stolen would mean like he just took it that it didn't belong to him ever, that he never had a right to drive it and just drove off with it. It probably is something like he was renting it and then just never returned it. So it's something like it's not quite like Grand Theft Auto. He didn't actually physically steal the car. And he did have an agreement to drive it. But at the same time, it's more than just a civil matter where he owes the money because he, he just drove off with a car. That's, that's my guess here. 
I I don't quite know embezzlement of auto, but it couldn't be very good. I know you're shocked that Adnan Muhammad's Bentley wasn't his and that he probably just drove off without making payments. So that's who's running playpokernet.com. He's reared his ugly head again. And if you go take a look at his picture, it really is an ugly head. Everything about this guy is ugly. So Adnan Mohammed just couldn't resist getting part of the second poker boom brought on by the coronavirus. He just couldn't stay silent any longer. He, he had to go back out and scam people. Even if you hear people are getting paid, I haven't heard anything about people getting paid, but even if you hear people are getting paid, it doesn't mean anything. Might mean he's just trying to create good word of mouth. Might mean he's paying the smaller winners and not paying the bigger ones. Might mean that he's paying people initially and then stalling them, so they believe if you paid them once, they'll pay them again. I guarantee this is going to end with people getting cheated. I would be absolutely shocked if this thing completes, if playpokernet.com closes without him having cheated anyone. I would be amazingly shocked. This is either already a scam or it's going to be one. Why? Because it's Adnan Mohammed. If it's Adnan Mohammed, it will be a scam. <laughs> I, can't, I can't believe he's back. Okay, let's talk about the coronavirus. Way into the show, let's talk about the coronavirus. Hope you guys are enjoying this long show here and me putting my, my voice through these hurdles. A lot of things to talk about, as always. First of all, possibly some good news. Possibly some good news for the future of the coronavirus not being as severe as it is right now. Possible good news which could lead to maybe life starting to return to semi-normal. Here comes the sun. Do, do, do. Here comes the sun. Well, it turns out that sunlight is effective against the coronavirus. Sunlight has been proven to kill COVID-19 rapidly, it was said, after a study was done on this. It seems like a pretty credible study, too, that they exposed the COVID-19 virus to direct sunlight and just bang, it broke apart. So you may say, oh, good. If I catch the coronavirus, I will just go out and get some sun. Nope, does not work that way, unfortunately. That'd be great, but no, that's not how it works. It kills the coronavirus on surfaces. So this means that uh, if direct sunlight hits a surface which the coronavirus is living on, it will die. Now, that's of some use. How is it of some use? Well, first of all, outside, that means the chance of catching the coronavirus off of surfaces is much lower than previously thought. You can still catch it in the air if someone coughs on you, maybe even breathes on you or sneezes on you or somehow spits on you. But the chance of getting it on surfaces outside, provided that this is correct and there's no flaw to this study, it's probably pretty low because the sun hits it and kills it. Now, I don't know about like a cloudy day. Like a, I think the the higher the UV uh, level of the day, you know, you know when you see the UV level, like the, today is a, a UV threat of 10. That means you're going to get a sunburn if you don't put on some lotion. And if other days it's a UV of 1, you don't have to worry. So I don't, I don't know about like cloudy days. If that would affect it, it probably would. I know that direct sunlight 
according to this study, kills the virus rapidly. Not in a matter of hours, not in a matter of days, but just rapidly, like almost right away, bang, it's gone. But you may say, well, how's this going to help much? Most people probably aren't catching this outdoors. And it's especially not helping us right now, and we're not really going out very much. But even if we do return, how do we avoid catching this indoors where we're going to be most of the time? Well, I have an answer for that. And this is something that I'm answering. I didn't see this written anywhere, but this is what I have to presume. You've probably heard by now this seasonal element of the coronavirus, and everyone's hoping as the summer comes that it's not going to spread as much, that the summer's going to slow it down big time. People said seasonal, and that hot and humid weather stops it, blah, blah, blah. And then people are going, well, wait a minute. We're seeing some areas that already have hot and humid weather, even Florida, that are still getting it. Now, yeah, that's not as bad as New York, but there's plenty of areas around the world that have hot and humid weather already, and we're not seeing much of a difference. So maybe that's not true. But it's been observed with other coronaviruses, because COVID-19 is not the only coronavirus we've seen. We've seen other coronaviruses that, for whatever reason, have a hard time spreading in the summer. It's not that they don't spread. It's that it's a lot tougher for them to spread in the summer. And I had always wondered, why is that? Is it really the heat and humidity? And I thought to myself, or might it be the sun? I actually thought this before this study came out, and I wish I said it. I would have looked like a genius. The reason I thought it might be the sun is because of the fact that it wasn't dying in areas that are already hot and humid or areas that are hot and humid year-round. But what does change? What does change? I thought about Australia, too. Australia hasn't been to social distancing that much, and yet they have a pretty low incidence. They, they have the coronavirus there. There are people getting it. There are people who are dying. But it's not understood why, with their very minimal social distancing, how they're doing so well. And people say, well, maybe because of the reverse seasons. But I go, what do you mean reverse seasons, though? It's pretty much the same right now because we're in the middle here. We're in April. They're in what's equivalent to the U.S.'s October. Those are pretty similar months uh, climate-wise. So, yes, they just came out of the summer and we just came out of the winter. But still, I'm not sure I understand it. And I thought to myself, wait a minute. What if it's not about the weather? Or what if the weather has something to do with it, but if it's more about sunlight? Well, what happens, regardless of how warm it is, what happens during April, May, June, What happens during those months besides the actual temperature? The sun is up longer and the sun is higher in the sky. You get a lot fewer shadows. You get a lot more direct sunlight. You get a lot more direct sunlight shining indoors. So think if the sun shines through your window and hits the coronavirus sitting on a surface. I think there's a good chance it's going to kill it. So I think the more the sun shines indoors, the harder it is to catch these viruses that the sun kills. And of course, outdoors, it really helps because it just doesn't seem to live on surfaces outdoors if the sun hits it, which you have to think in April, May, June is going to happen a lot, especially for all the hours the sun is up. So the sun's higher in the sky, it's up more hours, there's just a lot more opportunity for the sun 
to hit the virus and kill it. And the less the virus is around to spread, the less people pick it up. And then the less people can transmit it because the fewer people that have it, the fewer transmissions occur. Every person that doesn't get it that otherwise would have is one fewer person to transmit it. And it, it becomes a, a chain reaction where it spreads less and less. Now, this actually has been the way some of these diseases just kind of die off. There's just not enough people left to spread it that people either people don't have that long to spread it before they get too sick to leave the house or they uh, or there's just too many people who have already had it and there's a herd immunity and it can't spread anymore that way. But it's seen that the summer is kind of the time when these die off, even the flu will uh, it, it tends to this flu season tends to end in in the spring and summer and that's always been thought to have something to do with the weather there are a lot of similarities with the flu and COVID-19 though there are plenty of differences too but there's been a hope for a while that we just got to tough this out till the summer and the summer is going to make it better but then there is some fear that we're going to get then into fall and it's going to start all, all over again because this thing spreads too much and it's too prevalent already to completely die out during the summer. This remains one of the mysteries that we're going to have to wait to see. It is possible that we're going to see a tremendous improvement in the later spring and summer months to where this brings it down so much that it has trouble recovering. And maybe between that and some existing herd immunity, even if it's not uh, full herd immunity, that it may have trouble getting going for a second wave. It's also possible that the sun killing it isn't going to do enough because it spreads too much inside. There's too many other ways it could transmit. It can transmit so easily. So many people are asymptomatic and can transmit it. People are asymptomatic for a few days, even if they're going to show bad symptoms, that can spread it. And won't know they have it. There's too many ways it can spread that the summer won't slow it down enough, even if it slows it down somewhat. So it's possible the the summer season's not going to rescue us. But it's also possible it will. Or it will somewhat. So we're going to have to see if this ends up doing very much. But at least it's been proven. This isn't going to help you once you have it. Don't bother trying to stand in the sun or open your mouth and have the sun go in your mouth. It's not going to work that way. In fact, if you think you just contracted, if you just, like, just touched something someone with uh, the coronavirus touched, it's too late. Once If you've caught it, you've caught it. But uh, as far as uh, surfaces it could be living on, and maybe even in the air, it's even possible in the air it can't, uh, it's probably true, it probably can't sit in the air. So I've heard theories it could sit in the air for, for hours. I guess that the sunlight should probably kill that outside too. So I have to think it's going to help somewhat, but I don't know. So we'll see. We will see whether the sun rescues us or is only a minor factor or somewhere in between. Well, Vegas, I know what they're hoping. They have a very strong sun. They are hoping that the sun rescues them because they are in trouble. And I knew this was coming. I said this on other shows. I knew that Vegas was going to demand that they reopen. 
because they have a one-note economy in Vegas. If Vegas has no casinos, then Vegas has almost nothing. I guess they have Zappos. Not much else, though. Even other industries in Vegas are often there to support the gaming industry in some way. Sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly, sometimes very indirectly. But you take away all the casinos and Vegas is going to collapse. It's not like they could transition away from it. It's not like Vegas has 20 years to transition away from being dependent upon casinos. If you abruptly take them away, Vegas has big, big problems, even in the short term. And they're realizing that. And I think they knew that as soon as they shut everything down. And I think as it became apparent that a long shutdown could be possible, they realized the city cannot survive and that the number of unemployed is staggering and that the city could have a big collapse economically worse than any other city in the country if they don't get things reopened. And Vegas, they started to take the attitude of, yeah, well, people are going to die, but we got to do it. We got to do it. Otherwise, the whole city dies. Not Everybody doesn't physically die in the city, but the consequence of the city of Vegas, some have decided, is so dire to leave a closure for this long. And when I say this long, I don't mean till today. I mean for months going forward that they've decided they're willing to take the chance that, yeah, maybe some additional people will die. We'll try to prevent that. We'll try to be safe, but we got to open these again. We've just got to open these again. So there's currently a battle going on. And I knew this was going to happen. I thought the battle is actually going to be between the state government and the federal government. Actually, the battle is between the city of Las Vegas and the state government and the federal government for the moment is staying out of it. Donald Trump wants nothing to do with it. I'll let the states decide. I want nothing to do with this. Let the governors decide. Out of my hands. Don't blame me. So the Las Vegas mayor is uh, very unhappy about this. Mayor Carolyn Goodman, who is the daughter of former Mayor Oscar Goodman, said this. Being closed is killing us already. The shutdown has become one of total insanity, in my opinion. For there's no backup of data as to why we are shut down from the start, no plan in place how to move through the shutdown, or even how to come out of it. She has kind of a point. There is no plan in place, and that's a big problem. I've I've said this on this show. There is no medium-term plan in place for how we come out of the shutdown, and that's been one of my big criticisms of the government handling of the coronavirus in the U.S. Just, here's what we're doing now. We're not telling you anything beyond that. And that's not good. And that's scaring and confusing people. So she's saying, you're not explaining why we have to shut down. I don't agree with that. I see why, because casinos are filthy and it's a big opportunity for people to spread germs to each other. The virus will spread super fast there and to leave casinos open is dangerous. I mean, that's why. But she does have a point that they're not saying what the plan is to move through the shutdown or how to come out of it. What they're going to do. When's it going to open? What, What are they looking for? What's the goal? What is the ultimate goal? Not the immediate goal of flattening the curve. What is the goal of the shutdown? And how do you reach that goal to open again? And that's never been told to her. And she's right. Karen Goodman is right about that. 
So she went on to say, we cannot keep our heads in the sand and think it's going to go away. We're adults with brains who can know what to do to wash our hands, to take all precautions not to spread this disease. Now she's losing me. She's correct. We're all adults with brains and, and we can see what's going on here. But it's not just a matter of nobody washing their hands and spreading this. It's, it's not just about your hands. It's very hard not to spread this if you are infected and there is no easy way to tell you're infected. You can be infected right now and not know it. You can be infected and a transmitter of the disease and not know. Maybe you'll know in five days. Maybe you'll know in two days. Maybe you'll never know. But as long as that's the case, then anyone can be spreading it and a casino is a perfect place for it to spread. And by the way, don't count on the sun rescuing you because what doesn't shine into casinos? The sun. The sun's never in casinos. They purposely keep the sun out of casinos because they don't want you to see the sun is rising when you've been there all night like a degenerate gambling and losing all your money. They don't want you to notice that you've been there so long that the sun has now risen and maybe you should get back home and go to sleep. They want it to always look the same inside of the casino, whether it's day or night. I'm sure you've been in a casino before and you walk outside and it looks different than you expected. Wow, I didn't expect it to be this dark yet. Wow, I didn't expect the sun to have already risen. You know, a lot of times this happens. That's on purpose. That's by design. Problem is, the sun doesn't shine in, so if the sun is killing it, the sun is not going to be killing it that way. It may be killing it on outdoor surfaces, but that's all you're going to get from it. This is a very, very contagious virus. And it has a lot of carriers who are asymptomatic. So... You can't just say, well, wash our hands. You can't just do that. That's not going to make it go away. Washing your hands is a good idea. That's not going to stop it from spreading in a casino. He said, let me tell you, with a population of 3.2 million living in Nevada, those whom we lost represent less than a half of 1% of our population, which has caused us to shut down our entire state and everything that makes Nevada unique. All right, so this is the ongoing debate right now. And I knew it was going to happen in Vegas first. I knew it was going to happen in Vegas first because they're the ones who can't stand to be closed for very long. Eventually, the argument's going to take place. When do we just have to deal with the fact that a certain percentage of the population is going to die and we have to just accept that and restart the economy? Should we kill the whole economy to save 1% of the people when a lot of that 1% are old people are going to die soon anyway? It's kind of cold and callous, but that's the question being asked. And it's actually a legitimate question. And I see both sides of it. You may ask, where am I in that discussion? How do I feel? Do I think we should open up the economy, just let the chips fall where they may, try to have people be careful, and just whoever gets it, gets it, but we have to restart everything, otherwise the consequences to the economy will be dire. Do I think that? No. Do I think we should shelter in place until a vaccine is developed or a treat, a very effective treatment is developed until then just keep the same, don't reopen anything? No, I don't think that either. I think both of these are very bad ideas. If you reopen dangerous things that spread the virus easily, a lot of additional people will die. And that's especially a bad thing to do right now when we're waiting for some progress to come maybe in the form of a treatment or at least a partial treatment. Right now is not the time that we should have people getting infect infected. We, we need to hold off as long as we can. Now, if this was 
inevitable that we would never have a treatment, never have a vaccine. It's gonna, like the situation today was going to remain this way for eternity. Then it would be better just to open up everything and just say, this is the new normal. We're all going to get it eventually. Some of us won't feel it. Some of us will barely feel it. Some of us will have an awful thing with it, but we'll get past it. Some of us will have permanent damage, but we won't die. And some of us will die. And that's just part of life now. It's a new danger. You know how we live with the threat of cancer and, and heart disease and stroke. Those are mostly later in life, but we live with those threats. We know they can come and it kills a lot of people every year. What about the fact we live with car accident deaths? A lot of those, a lot of those kill young people. We just live with it. It's a chance you take every time you get in a car, whether you're a passenger or a driver. And our society is built around that in most cities that you have to drive or you have to be driven. And there's going to be a certain number of people who are unlucky or sometimes cause the problem themselves and will die or get seriously injured in car accidents. We just lose a certain number of people each year to car accidents. So it's just a new thing, unlike the car situation where we're gaining something from it and that we have automobiles to drive around with. But is this just a new danger we have to accept in life where some people are going to take the brunt of it and the vast, vast majority will not die and still more people than not will probably escape from it without any permanent harm, though that's still being looked into as well. So should we just... So if if this was never going to go away and if it was inevitable for just about everybody to get it at some point, then yeah, we can't hide from this forever and there's no point to just delay what's going to come. But since there can be progress, an effective treatment, a vaccine, then yes, delaying people getting it has a lot of value. That is why I am putting a lot of effort into delaying myself getting it. Otherwise, if it's get it now or get it later, maybe I would choose to get it now. Or at least I wouldn't be that worried. But because getting it now is the worst time to get it, compared to getting it later, I would much rather either get it later or not get it at all. There is there is something to be gained from waiting. And that's being missed. But at the same time, you can't wait too long or otherwise the economy completely tanks, especially in cities like Las Vegas. And then that brings its own suffering. Terrible economic suffering. Depressions. And I mean economic depressions, but also psychological depression. Perhaps increased crime and civil unrest. Perhaps suicides. Perhaps a lot of mental illness. Perhaps a huge reduction in quality of life for a large segment of the population. So you can't just say these things are meaningless as long as we save lives, we're great. If you, if you save lives and then cost lives later from the ensuing depression and also ruin lives, then you haven't gained a thing. In fact, you may have had a situation where the attempt to mitigate was worse than the disease itself. So you have to be careful about that. What is the answer? I don't know. See, I don't have an answer and no one, no one does. Anyone says they have an answer, don't. That does not have an answer to this. That doesn't mean that every answer is equivalent as far as right and wrong. There's wrong ways to do things and right ways to do things. And the least bad solution has to 
be determined, and that has to be done. Every solution is going to have a bad element to it, but the least of the bad solutions has to be chosen. Nevada has only had 137 deaths as of April 16th. Still, it's not just a matter of the deaths, and I'll talk about that a little bit later in this coronavirus uh, portion of the show. If it were just about the deaths, I may actually agree with her. If Let's say the, the, the coronavirus uh, very quickly kills you if you get it, but otherwise there's not much suffering. Let's say for most people it's like the flu, and for a few unlucky people it gets really bad and they die quickly. But it's a, a, a very small number and most of them are already old. Then we would not be treating this the way we're currently treating it. As unpleasant as it is to see the death number rise every day, I think we're probably around 40,000 right now here on uh, as April 18th is closing in the U.S. Remember I said, I don't think we'll get out of April without 50,000 being dead. And then last week I said, oh, maybe it'll be less than 50,000. No, no, it's going to be more than 50,000. A lot more. So we're we have a lot of deaths. Okay, and that that's not trivial. But... That's not the biggest problem, because compared to the gigantic 330 million population in the U.S., that number still is not that high. And you have to understand that a lot of these people who are dying are already very old and already have existing health problems that will kill them soon anyway. Not that it's trivial that they're losing months or years off their life, but old people die every day. And there's actually fewer deaths, last I looked, every week in the U.S. compared to those year, time this time the year before because of a uh, decreased number of car accidents and, uh, and, and deaths like to street violence. That may have changed since the death numbers went up, but I know like as the April was beginning, there was actually uh, fewer deaths in the U.S. per week than the year before because of those factors. But I know a lot of that's artificial, that eventually people are going to drive again, <laughs> eventually uh, street crime will start up again. In fact, it may get worse than it was before if we don't get out of this soon. So that, that's not to say that we're better off with the coronavirus because there's fewer people dying per week, and it's probably not the case anymore anyway. But y- you have to look at the whole picture. You have to look at the intense illness people go through. All the people on ventilators who are irreparably damaged by them, both psychologically and physically. You have to look at the belief that the death toll is not telling the story completely of all the devastation this disease is bringing. And that even very bad cases that don't quite rise to the level of hospitalization are such a bad thing to go through both in the weeks one has to tolerate it and the after effects, both psychological and physical, both of which are being studied now and both of which are a real thing. That if you get this and recover from it, that doesn't just mean it's over. It's not like when you are you have the flu and it feels crappy for a few days and then you're better and you almost forget about it. This could have a lot of permanent impacts on people who caught it. And I'm not talking about very old people. I'm talking about everybody who gets it especially people who are over 45. So there's a lot of reasons not to see this spread. And there's going to be a a big toll on a lot of people physically and 
mentally from this that you can't just go by the deaths. But at the same time, you can't, you can't just hide away and let the entire economy collapse. That's going to cause its own problems. In Las Vegas, it's a big issue because I just don't know what the right thing to do is because it is true. Without the casinos, it's going to be a disaster there. But at the same time, I can't just see swing open the doors and let people come in and tell them to wash their hands because uh, we're going to have the same problem all over again. And we're really not much further along with, with, with treatment than we were originally. A little bit, but it's mostly kind of experimental stuff right now that they're trying to figure out. That's my greatest hope is like maybe in June I could picture that there will be some kind of treatment which may not quite rise to the level of you don't have to worry about getting it, just get this treatment, you're better, but might be a treatment that really brings down the incidence of it getting bad, at least in a lot of people. Just something to give some hope that if you get this, it's not just you pray it doesn't get you and it doesn't put you on a ventilator or it doesn't become like one of the worst experiences of your life, which a lot of people have reported it is. So it's very hard. What do you do? You let the economy fall apart or you just throw caution to the wind and let a lot of people get it and die and get very sick and get permanently damaged? I don't know. It's not easy either way. Now, Steve Sisolak says that he's not going to do it. Steve Sisolak said that uh, he is only going to open up Nevada again when it is safe to do so. His exact words were any reopenings will come slow. He said, I'm putting the lives of my fellow Nevadans ahead of dollars. He is the governor of Nevada. And he said, we will reopen when the time's right. It's not as easy as flipping a switch. He said, as far as social distancing is working, on many metrics, we're doing a good job. He said, I don't have a benchmark date. It would be a very gradual manner. Restrictions would slowly be released or relieved a little bit. The problem is they need more than a little bit. The problem is casinos are very, very dangerous as far as spreading viruses. You guys know that. Everyone talks about how filthy casinos are, how gross it is that you're touching the same chips everyone else touched. How viruses just spread there like wildfire. We all know that as poker players. So how are we going to get that and rectify opening the casinos and saying that's safe if we just wash our hands and and try to be careful? You can't. It's going to cause it to spread. It's going to be a problem. So that's not an easy thing to decide. Now, what would a reopening look like in Vegas? Well, they haven't decided yet. They're throwing around some ideas. Uh, The ideas that are being discussed, honestly, I I think are kind of stupid. (laughs) I don't think they're going to work. And uh, I think what they believe they're going to be accomplishing, they're not going to. So some of the ideas being thrown around would be letting small businesses that are not on the strip open first so locals can get back to work. Now, on the surface, that sounds okay. 
don't open the casinos, just open the small businesses like the restaurants and everything else, and, and locals can go back to work. One little problem, though, in that the casino workers are not going back to work, and the casino industry is still shut down, and a lot of the businesses are there to support the casino industry in some way. So what about them? Like, it's, it's a huge hole to just – it might help a little bit, but the, just opening up the restaurants for Vegas locals – is not going to do a whole lot. We already have the supermarkets open. You already have takeout places open. So you got you opened up dining restaurants and some other small businesses that got closed for local residents. Okay, so they, they can go get a haircut now. Great. That's not going to restore the economy. They need the casinos open if they want to restore the economy. That's the truth about Vegas. And so they're, they're saying to do that and then maybe to open up local casinos, the ones that are off-strip, open those first and then also limit the entrances, you know, keep, keep all the entrances uh, and exits closed except for a few and then have some sort of device that tests their temperature as they walk through. Uh, a device which was clarified that would be a non-invasive device. <laughs> so good news... Good news when you're walking into one of the station's casinos there in Vegas, it's not going to shove a thermometer up your ass and see if your temperature is over 100. It's, it's going to be non-invasive. I always wonder how well these even work because the, the human body's temperature, it's – if you think about when you have a fever, it's not that much higher than when you're normal. It's not like you go from 98 degrees to 150 degrees. You, you, you go from 98 degrees to 101 and that's a huge difference. And 98 to 103 is a tremendous difference. So are these devices that will try to assess your temperature as you're walking under them, are they good enough to pick off low fevers? I don't know. So they claim they're going to do that. They claim that employees would wear masks and gloves and gamblers would sit at least a chair apart at the blackjack tables. And that uh, the hotels would have only one third of their rooms available. So there's various problems with this. Also, they're going to use enhanced cleaning techniques to clean everything better. Okay, there's a lot of problems with this. First of all, if you open off-strip casinos, and I think I mentioned this last week, all that's going to happen is the tourists are going to come back who are just itching to come back to Vegas and gamble, and they'll go to whatever's open. So if it's some crap local casino, they'll go to the crap local's casino. Just closing the strip and letting those other casinos open, it's going to shift them over away from the strip. It's not going to help. Number two, and believe me, I don't make big news if these open. It's not, it's not like they could do it under the radar. Number two, ignoring the location of where they're open. Having one chair in between people at the blackjack table doesn't matter. It's already been determined that the virus sits on surfaces. Now, it's not known if that's the main form of transmission. It's possible that it's mainly transmitting through the air, but it also hasn't been determined how long it sits in the air. Do you, are you directly sneezed on or coughed on? Is that how it's spreading? Or can it sit in the air? If someone coughs, can, the, the, can it sit in the air for some time, for minutes, for hours, where someone can just walk into it without knowing minutes or hours later? There are some theories that, yes, that is the way people are catching it, and that's why they don't understand how they're getting it when they think they've been so careful. So that, that's that's a big problem. Then there's the chips matter. How, how do they handle chips? 
Are they going to be constantly washing chips? They'll say, yeah, we'll wash them more. Are they going to wash chips every time they change hands? So here's a question, like at the blackjack table. Let's say you lose a blackjack bet. Are th- where do those chips go? Can those chips go to somebody else if they win the next bet? How do they make sure those chips don't go from you to the guy next to you? If you lose, then he wins. How? Did they put the chips aside somewhere and wash them? They're going to run out of chips super fast. If Think of how fast they'll run out of chips if they give away chips when the person wins, and when the person loses, they have to put those aside and can't reuse them until they wash them. They'll run out of chips super fast. But even if they do that, you're still sitting in the same chair as people before you. You're still touching the same uh, part of the table as people were before you. People are still touching the same handles as each other. I don't think they could sanitize everything. What about slot machines? How do they handle handle that? Someone plays a slot machine. They quit after five minutes and leave. You come up, you play the same slot machine. Now you're touching everything they touch, all the same buttons they touch. Are they going to clean every slot machine in between each person? That's not practical. So you can say, oh, you washed your hands. That's that's not going to do it. Oh, we'll have the dealers wear masks. That's not going to do it. There's not even enough known about the transmission of this disease to be sure that any of this is going to work. The problem is casinos, the reason the virus can travel so fast in casinos from person to person is because there's so many commonly touched things in a casino. The slot machines, the chips, the the door handles in and out, the people who are walking by each other that, that may cough or sneeze or whatever. Maybe even breathing, who knows. There's so many different ways that you can get infected in a casino. I'm actually amazed when I'm at the World Series for four or five of the seven weeks every year, and I get out of the whole thing without catching a cold. I go, wow, that's a surprising year. I didn't catch a cold. I think last year I didn't catch a cold. I think I got out of it last year, but it's more of the exception than the rule when I get through the World Series without catching a cold. I just expect it's going to happen because there's so many things I'm touching that others have touched and there's no way to avoid it. And I think when people say, well, don't, don't touch your face. Don't touch your eyes. Yeah, good luck with that. You're, you're sitting at the table for hours and hours and hours. Don't touch your face or eyes. Try that one. It, it's human nature to touch your face and eyes. You're going to subconsciously do it. You can prevent yourself from doing it for a short time, but not for a long time. When I was going to the supermarket, what I would do to prevent myself from touching my face and eyes is I made sure to have my hands in my pockets at all times except when I was picking something up. So it was either I was picking something up or put, or my hands were in my pockets. I had to consciously remember to do that, to have my hands in my pockets the whole time. But that's in a grocery trip. You couldn't do this at a casino. There's no way. It wouldn't work. And even if you do it, everybody else won't do it. There's so many ways you're going to catch something. So you did just the dealers wearing masks and separating uh, more feet apart from one another at the table. That's not going to matter. It's going to help a little bit, but it's not going to stop this from spreading. So really what they're saying is, F it. Let people get it. We've got to reopen. We've, we've got to get the economy going again. That's what they're saying. That's honestly what they're saying. And so they're they're going to give you the illusion of safety from the coronavirus. The dealers wearing masks, the the distancing, the temperature checker. 
You may say, well, what's wrong? Look, if the temperature checker works, nobody can get in who has a fever. Okay, that'll help some, but guess what? Most people who have a fever already realize they don't feel good. Now, yeah, you'll have a few degenerates that might show up anyway or might be in denial, but for the most part, if you have a fever and if you're like even a semi-responsible person, you'll say, "Uh uh-oh, I don't feel good. I might have the coronavirus. I won't go out. Either you feel too fatigued to go out anyway, or you feel the social responsibility of not going out. So this will catch the few assholes who decide to show up with a fever or the few who don't even realize they have a fever and think they're healthy and walk in. Okay, so it may catch them. But there's a lot of people are going to walk through those doors that don't have a fever. There's been some people who never get a fever through this whole thing, who still have pretty bad symptoms that the fever just isn't part of it. There's some people who don't get the fever till later. There's some people who just don't realize they have a fever. There's some people who haven't had a fever in so long they don't even know what fever feels like. Remember, adults don't get fevers that often. I haven't had a fever in a very long time. Trederuski said last week he had a fever, he gets a fever like once a, once a year. So for him, if he noticed a fever, that wouldn't mean he had the coronavirus. My girlfriend had a fever a few weeks ago. Didn't last that long. We don't know what that means. Maybe she had it, just wasn't that symptomatic, or maybe it was just a fever that she gets and doesn't realize she gets fevers that often. Whenever I, I have a good idea of when I might have a fever. Sometimes it's a false alarm. Sometimes I think I have a fever and I go take my temperature and I don't. But it's rare that I can have a fever and not realize it. But I don't get them very often. It's very rare for me to get a fever. It's so much that if I have one, I'm very surprised to see it. It's kind of like a novelty. I, it usually doesn't even upset me. Now it would upset me big time because of what it might mean. But especially because I don't get them otherwise. But before this, if I got a fever, I'd go, oh, look at that, I have a fever. That hardly ever happens. <laughs> that would really be my attitude. I, I wouldn't panic at all. I'd just go, oh, wow, there's a fever. I heard they have a fever. Because I remember getting them a lot as a kid, but not anymore. But there's people who don't have fevers or people who just aren't symptomatic yet or won't be symptomatic that can transmit it. So believe me, Las Vegas, you're going to kill people by opening up the casinos And you're going to harm people who aren't killed with permanent damage, psychological and physical, who will get this and survive it, but will have damage. Even people who are not hospitalized may have permanent damage from this because you opened your casino. Not far-fetched. Very likely, actually. In fact, not very likely. 100% certain. How many? I don't know. But not just like one or two, like like a lot. So this is something to strongly consider. Now, what about me? And by the way, you may wonder, what, what date are they talking about? Are talking about May 1st? No. May 1st is the first date it could possibly happen because it is already officially closed till April 30th, and that's been for a while. But uh, it's being talked about that it probably couldn't happen at least till mid-May and probably sometime after that, maybe late May, maybe June. And of course, they are talking about earlier things like opening up just businesses that aren't casinos, and that could happen like right away if the governor were to approve that. Now, at the same time, well, before I get to that, let me, let me tell you about how I would handle casinos reopening. I announced on Twitter... 
and I still feel the same way as a few days ago when I announced this, that one of four conditions would have to occur for me to return to any casino or any poker room. It has to be one of these four. Number one, the coronavirus just goes away. Just ceases to be a thing anymore. I don't think that's likely anytime soon. Just it's, it's a virus that just kind of dies out. I heard someone say, this is never going to die out. No, no, it will. Does anyone get the swine flu anymore? Does anyone get the uh, original SARS? At least not in the U.S. I, I haven't followed if there's a few cases left of those elsewhere. But I, I know in the U.S. those are just dead diseases. They just don't exist anymore. So that'll be this COVID-19, just not anytime soon. So first, if, if it goes away completely or almost completely, then... Yeah, I'll return to a casino. Number two, a vaccine. Again, not anytime soon, but if there's a vaccine that's effective, then I will return to a casino. Number three, a very effective and reliable treatment for COVID-19, where if you notice you have it and take this treatment, that uh, your chance of it becoming severe or medium-severe symptoms will be very, very low. What do I mean by medium-severe? I mean no worse than the flu. No worse than a bad flu. So if it's a matter of just being kind of uncomfortable for a few days, fine. I can handle that. Some fatigue, some fever, a lot of fatigue, you know, whatever. That I can handle. Breathing problems, absolutely not. Uh, This lasting for weeks, absolutely not. This uh, possibly leading to me being on a ventilator? Absolutely not, of of course. And uh, a terrible cough that makes it feel like my chest is going to explode? That's a big no. A fever that won't break for a long time? Big no. So uh, if you could take this, whatever this treatment is, which doesn't exist yet, but if this treatment could be taken upon noticing symptoms and the chances are very, very high that it will work and that it's not going to become anything too bad, then I won't fear the coronavirus very much and I will be glad to return to a casino. That's the most likely of all of these. And then number four, that I have the antibodies. And I'm sure that having the antibodies can stop me from getting it again. And that the antibody test is accurate. That's very important, too. That I don't believe I have the antibodies when I really don't. That would be very bad. We're going to talk about antibody tests a little bit later. So that's to be one of those four. Antibodies, treatment, vaccine, or disease goes away. Got to be one of those four. Otherwise, I'm not going to the casino. I can do without it. I like going to casinos, but I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm not. I'm not going to get this thing... Through a casino. I'm not. I'm not going to be that stupid. I really, really, really do not want to get this. And since I really, really do not want to get this, I am not going to a casino. And you know what? If you are over 45 like I am, you should not go to a casino either until one of these four things happen. You can, but I suggest you don't. You do not want to have this. Trust me. Maybe you'll get lucky and be one of the asymptomatic or or mildly symptomatic people. But... I've spoken personally to a lot of people who are over 45 and who've had this in every single one 
Every single person over 45 who's had this that I've spoken to that knows they had it told me it was the worst experience of their life. The worst. Not just a bad flu, not just uncomfortable, the worst experience of their life. They all told me this. Two of them told me they thought they were going to die. What I have not heard from anyone I know over 45 is, oh, it wasn't that bad. Kind of just like a flu. Wasn't great, but yeah, I got over. Pretty mild. Or eh, it was kind of like a a bad flu, but not not much worse than that. Not one person over 45 who knows they had it told me that was their experience. You think you're going to be the first one to have the mild experience that I know? Maybe you'll be lucky, but probably not. I think you probably have a higher chance of just kind of being asymptomatic. I don't know. Nobody knows what separates the asymptomatic from the symptomatic. There's got to be something. Maybe it's dumb luck, but I have to think it's some factor. Maybe it's genetic. Who knows? Some factor that makes it difficult for the disease to cause terrible symptoms. But uh, if you're getting symptoms enough to notice that you have it, if you're over 45, it seems they're going to be pretty severe. Good chance it won't be severe enough to quite hospitalize you, but close. And there's a lot of talk about permanent damage it may be doing to your body that may kill you early down the road. Does that sound nice? I don't think so. I don't think you want it, do you? Now, if you're in your mid-30s, you don't want it either, but I'll tell you, you're, in my opinion, I think your chance of this being terrible is much lower. So if I was 35, would, would I go to casinos? I probably still wouldn't, but a much higher chance that I would than right now, or the, it's a big fat no. And if you're over 45, I really suggest you treat it like I do. It's easy to dismiss until you actually feel it. There's a lot of things health-related like that. Easy to say, oh, I could handle it until you actually feel it. Then you go, shit. No, I, I wish I didn't say that. I, I totally changed my mind that I'm actually feeling it. I know you guys are degenerates. I, I got that side of me too. But you don't want to return there. Unless you know you've had it. Unless you really know you've had it already. Then return. Then have fun. But we're going to talk about antibody tests, which are available. I'm going to talk about them as one of our segments. Someone's saying in chat, install an ultraviolet light inside. It's funny you say that. I was thinking about that. I was thinking, like, is this going to be, like, maybe? I wonder how easy they are to buy right now. Because once everyone thinks of that, there's going to be, like, a massive run on them. It's possible there is already. The problem is, like, you can't just have an ultraviolet light, like, everywhere in your house. You get, like, little ultraviolet lights, but... I don't know if ultraviolet lights would be effective in uh, killing the virus on surfaces like the sun is. But maybe, maybe that'll be determined. It, it, it is, it does have to do with the ultraviolet component in sunlight that is killing the virus. I will tell you that. Okay. I want to talk about this Stanford study. I don't even understand why it's such a big deal because it, I don't think it really says very much. But uh, some people are very excited about the Stanford study, maybe because it came from Stanford, which is so well respected. But there's a study that said that they 
looked at 3,300 people in Santa Clara County, where Stanford is located, and that of those 3,300 people, that one out of every 66 people had already had the coronavirus. So some people are talking about the idea that it's been in California a long time and that California doesn't have that many cases because of herd immunity. There's there's already herd immunity in California. We just don't know it yet. There's a few problems here with this. First of all, the 3,300 people actually volunteered for this. These are self-selecting people. The problem with self-selecting people volunteering for a study like this is who, who's the main one to volunteer for this? Someone that thinks they may have already had COVID-19 and wants to know. The people who think they didn't have it are much less likely to volunteer for this. So that's the first problem is you're already having ones who are self-selecting who are much more likely to have actually had it. And that, of course, skews the data. By the way, this is a big problem with penis size surveys, is that the people who respond to penis size surveys are usually the guys with big penises. <laughs> they, they, they want everyone to know that. So that skews the average penis size upward compared to what it really is. I've heard that too. It's kind of similar here. You, you have possible already had coronavirus studies done on you if you think that you may have already had it. That's problem number one. Problem number two, they say only one in 66 people had it. What does that say? That's not very surprising. It's not like, oh my God, one in 66 people have had it. Well, yeah, that's less than uh, 2%. I, I would have assumed that probably something like that had that had it already at a minimum. Because forget the number of confirmed cases. A lot of people have had it that never got tested. A lot of people just had it, know they had it, couldn't get in for a test, and it's not reported anywhere. And there's no way to report it. So yeah, if someone said what what, popu- what percentage of the population you think have already had it minimum, yeah, I would say it's over one percent. I'd say that anyway. So why is that a big revelation? I don't even understand that. It's not like they're saying that that one out of every three had it. They're, they're saying one out of 66. So what does that mean? So if anything, that means that uh, fewer people had it than we think. Uh, number three, these antibody tests are not reliable yet. It's thought they will be reliable eventually, and maybe even not too long from now, maybe even by the end of May or the middle of May. But right now, on April 19th, 2020, it is just not proven reliable yet. There's a lot of them out there, but there's not one yet that has been proven reliable. So one out of 66, what is around 1.5%? Well, what if there's 1.5% false positives? Then you could have nobody in that whole 3,300 group that had the COVID-19 and yet you'd still get 1.5% positive, 1 in 66. <laughs> so so you could really test where not a single person actually had it and come up with this 1, 66, 1 out of 66 number if there's a 1.5% false positive rate. Oops. So that's not very useful. For a number like 1 in 66 to matter, 
you have to have a test that is really, really good and does not have false positives. So for all these reasons, the Stanford thing is, is kind of useless. It's a, it's a disgrace to Stanford. And I have respect for Stanford itself. In fact, if I didn't, there'd be someone in my family who'd be mad at me. I think a lot of you know what I'm talking about there. So I don't think bad things of Stanford or that Stanford itself is unreliable, but this particular study there, the one doing this study, they did a lot of things that are a combination of mistakes or just, it doesn't mean much. Do I think that California has a herd immunity? No, I do not. I do not think California has a herd immunity. Do I think that California may have had the coronavirus as early as the very end of 2019, like late December? Yes. Am I positive? No. Do I think it's super likely? No. Do I think it's reasonable to think that this might be the case? Yes. Do I think it's an outside shot? No, I think it's more than an outside shot. I think there's a decent chance that it was here in late December 2019 or early January 2020 before it was actually discovered and it was confused as uh, being the flu because there was a bad flu season as well. So that it's very possible that people had this and it was confused with something else and that people had this and it was asymptomatic on some people and of course those people didn't even know anything was wrong. Do I think for that reason we have herd immunity? As like, Again, no. Just because some people got it doesn't mean that it spread around the population so much that now we have a herd immunity. There's no way this could have spread through the population or there would have been a massive influx of people into the hospitals, a massive number of people dying of the flu. Uh, there would have been a, a, a big noticeable difference that could not have been ignored. So believe me, there's not a herd immunity in California. As I said last week, California has lower COVID-19 numbers because it has bad public transportation and because the culture in California is that you don't just walk around the city. Everybody's driving to where they want to go. Most people drive directly to where they their destination is. They park there. They walk in. They do what they're going to do, and they leave. Yes, there's interactions, but it's nothing like it. It's the opposite of New York City. Public transportation is very bad. There's not much of it. The culture in general isn't, let's all walk around together and see what's going on, just kind of walk through the city, stroll through the city. That's not that's not L.A. It's San Francisco to some degree, but believe it or not, the, the, the steep hills there make that tougher. It's definitely not most of California. And the state in general is pretty spread out. So these are all factors that have helped California not have uh, a big problem with COVID-19 compared to other parts of the country like New York and New Jersey. Is it because of the warm weather in California? No. Why? Because the weather's not warm. (laughs) Not at this time of year. California, a lot of people erroneously believe that it's like Florida. It's not. California has a winter, just a mild one. The winter is not cold, but it's not warm. The winter has 
nighttime temperatures in the 30s and 40s. It has daytime temperatures in the 50s and 60s. Occasionally, it will break over 70. Very rarely, will break over 80 in the winter. But for the most part, you've got 60s as a high, 30s to 40s as lows. Sometimes a cold spell will get under freezing at night. Sometimes in a cold spell, it won't break 55 degrees as a high. Sometimes a really cold spell, it won't break 50 degrees as a high. You have long periods of time where it doesn't reach 70. So this is not a place with summer-like weather in December and January and February. It's not. Once in a while, you have like a, a fluke weather pattern where it feels like the summer for two days and then that's gone. So it's not, it's not the warm weather in California. But I think it's the lack of mass transportation and the lack of walking around culture. And they started the social distancing a little bit earlier. That probably helps too. So let's talk about something that has been studied in New York City regarding the hospitalization and the demographics of the hospitalization. Because this is something where we don't have much data. We should have more, but we don't. Of where our real risk factors lie in the coronavirus. And this is something I want to know because I'm kind of on, I'm one of these like borderline risk cases. I'm not young, but I'm not really old. I'm not someone without health risk factors, like I have high blood pressure. And I'm not thin, but I'm not obese. But I'm also not someone with a major pre-existing health condition. I'm not someone who's very old. I'm not someone who's obese. So I don't know. So I've wanted to know of those who are getting hospitalized, what are the demographics in a lot of different ways? And of those who are dying, what are the demographics in a lot of different ways? Those that end up in the ventilators, what are the demographics? And even those who get a severe version of the illness that aren't hospitalized, what are the demographics? And we still have very, very little data on that. We should have more. We don't, and that's sad. I think I think that's a big mistake that there's not enough effort being put in to collect this. But there was a study out of New York City where they're obviously having a pretty bad time of things regarding the data that they got together from different samples. Now, this wasn't on every hospitalization in New York City, but these were samples they took from those hospitalized to try to figure out how much, uh, how many in each group, and I'll tell you what I mean by groups, were hospitalized, and 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 what the dangers were, and and everything like that. So let me go over what was there. And I don't know how accurate this thing is, and and I don't know how well these samples were taken. The problem is you can take these samples where there's something skewing in some way or another of the. Like, I don't think this was across all hospitals. I don't know which hospitals were used. I don't know of certain areas that, that may have certain behaviors or certain types of people more than others. Uh, like, they had basic stats they broke this down into, but there, there's still a lot of questions surrounding this. So don't take this like it's gospel, but it is interesting. So first of all, of a sample size of almost 3,300 people, of whom uh, overall 49% were admitted to the hospital. How did this break down? Well, over 65, 87% were admitted to the hospital. And these are people, by the way, who went in 
for a COVID-19 test. These are not people who are uh, just in the general population. So don't, don't panic. Don't say, oh, my God, 87% of people over 65 were hospitalized. No, 87% of people in this study who went in to be tested for COVID-19, meaning that they uh, had symptoms. So that's a big difference. But nevertheless, 87% got hospitalized who were over 65. Not over 65, 37%. Still a healthy number, but big difference, right? 87% versus 37%. Now, from there, of that group that got, uh, that, that was not 65, under 65, let's go from there. Under 65 and obese, where were the hospitalization rates? Well, if they were over 35 and obese, but under 65, then 70% were admitted to the hospital. The ones that were not over 35 and were obese, 41% were admitted to the hospital. So this shows that obesity, which, by the way, they define as a BMI of 30 or more, you can use a BMI calculator. Just Google BMI calculator to figure out your BMI. My BMI is 29. So I'm not 30. And 29, 30 sound very close, but they're actually, it's not as close as you think. But I'm not that far. But then I'd also, I'd love to see this broken down more. I'd love to see like those that are between 30 and 32, and then those between 32 and 34, and those over 34. Like I'd, I'd like to see a breakdown because there's a huge difference between someone whose BMI is 30 and someone whose BMI is 40. Huge. So that's uh, as far as overall general health is a huge difference. So you, it, it's one of these things where it needs further breaking down. You can't go, oh my God, my BMI is 30. There's a, a huge chance I'm going to be hospitalized. No, but I, I'd love to see it broken down. But it is interesting that if you're over 35, but under 65 and obese, 70% got hospitalized who had COVID-19 symptoms. And even those under 35 who were obese, 41 got, 41% got hospitalized with COVID-19 symptoms. Now, again, these are people who actually went in to get tested, not just people who are feeling crappy and stayed at home. So that's, it, this is a, a big time self-selection of people who were feeling bad enough to get up and go in there to get tested because they thought they might possibly need an admission. Of the people who were obese and under 35, if they were male, 60% got admitted. Female, 31% got admitted. And you're going to see, as I'm reading some of these other things, it is much worse to be male. It is much worse to be male, especially if you have a risk factor. It is much worse to be male. As far as getting admitted to the hospital, meaning that yours is pretty severe. Now, these, these were not people who were necessarily put on a ventilator. This just means they were admitted to the hospital and what happens at that point? You get admitted. Uh, you're, you're basically admitted because you're bad enough to where they've really got to watch you. It means you're starting to get close to ventilator time, but you're not quite there. Then they're watching you. If you get to where you can't breathe anymore, then they put you on a ventilator. A ventilator is not like just a walk in the park, as I've said before. A ventilator is a very, very big deal. You do not want to be on one. So they will only put you on one if you absolutely need one. But they watch you. And if it gets to the point where it looks like you're going to die if you're not on one, then they put you on one. So getting admitted to the hospital means you're in that point where you can still breathe, but 
they're going to watch you to see if you progress to needing a ventilator, and some of them do. These stats I'm reading you now are only about hospitalization. They are not about uh, being transferred to the ICU or about people dying. So let's go back to the obesity thing. Well, let's say someone is under 65 and not obese. Now, of those who are not obese and were under 65, 21% got admitted. However, if you break that down, the ones that were between 20 and 44, only 13% got admitted. And the ones that were between 45 and 64, and also presumably under 20, but that's probably not many, 42% got admitted. Now, the reason that's a little disturbing is here are people that are 45 plus, but not 65. So between 45 and 65, basically, not obese, and still 42% got admitted to the hospital. Well, now let's look at if they are male. If male and not obese, and if over 45, then 57% got admitted to the hospital. That's pretty disturbing, isn't it? Male, not obese, and 45 plus, 57%. Now, 45 plus, not 45 plus, I mean 45 to like 64, not 45 to 90. 57%, 57%, 45 to 64 got admitted if they were male and not obese. Whoa. Now what about diabetes? That's really bad. If you were male and not obese and 45 to 64, 83% got admitted who are male diabetics. Ouch. What if you were not diabetic? Then 53%. So still, even without diabetes, it looks like uh, 53%, 45 to 64, who weren't obese got admitted. These are pretty bad numbers. Think about it. It's like 50-50. If you're 45 to 64 and not obese, then you're going to be admitted. Now, yes, if you're closer to 45 than 64, your chance of being admitted is less than that. But still, that's not good. Now, from there, let's look at race. Let's say you are 45 to 64, don't have diabetes, are not obese. If you're white, only 45% admitted. Non-white, 60% admitted. So being white is actually better. Not sure why, but for this, uh, I guess it's a racist disease here. 45% of whites in that case were admitted, 60% of non-whites were. Now, let's, let's look at females. Females who are 45 to 64, who had diabetes, 57% were admitted. It's a big difference from 83% for males, right? And then non-diabetic, non-obese, 45 to 64 females, only 23% were admitted. So it's a lot better for females in this group. So those are some interesting numbers. And uh, these were expressed via a weird flow chart that I found in an article. This was not just laid out there the way I read it to you. It was in this weird flow chart where you start like with age more than 65, yes, go this way, no, go this way. It was almost like one of those old choose your own adventure books <laughs> where you end up somewhere. Okay, 83%, you're going to be admitted. Again, 
This is people who were bad enough to actually go to the hospital to be tested. Not people who are asymptomatic, not people with mild symptoms, not people with kind of medium symptoms where they don't feel there's a need to go to the hospital to get tested, and not people who are just kind of testing to see if they have it as a long shot, which they probably wouldn't let you do anyway. So don't be as alarmed as it sounds from these numbers, but it's it still means once you're feeling that it's coming on and it's bad enough to go to the hospital and get tested and get looked at, there's a good chance you're going to end up in the hospital. It's a good chance you're already having breathing problems and, and they're going to be watching you. Because if you walk in there and you have a fever and you, you're, you're very fatigued and your body aches worse than it ever has and you can breathe fine and your oxygen levels are okay, they're going to go, goodbye, go home. They're not going to admit you. They will only admit you if you're having breathing problems or some other urgent health problem or maybe if your fever is so high that it's getting dangerous. I haven't heard of that happening that much. It's mainly the breathing issue. And that is really a crappy way to go. Even if you don't die, it's just a crappy experience. Imagine it just gets harder and harder and harder to breathe. It's awful. It's absolutely awful, the, the feeling that you, you can't breathe. It's getting harder and harder, more and more difficult. That's the worst part of this whole thing. It's much worse than the pain, much worse than the fatigue, much worse than the fever. I mean, I've had all that before. I probably haven't had the body aches as bad as this would be, but I've had bad body aches with, with like really bad colds before. And I've had fever, uh, obviously, and I, I've had uh, fatigue. I once had fatigue from a bad cold so badly I couldn't leave Vegas because uh, I, I could not stay awake more than about two and a half hours at a time, and there wasn't be, it wouldn't be enough for me to drive back. I mean, I guess I could have pulled on the side of the road and slept, but like I'd, I'd be awake for two and a half hours and I'd feel exhausted. So I've had things like that. I've never had it though, where like I go up the stairs and I'm winded. That's kind of weird too. That goes along with the breathing problems. Anyway, the whole thing sucks. I want to give you an update about the blood pressure thing because uh, it affects me and it affects a lot of you. A lot of people have high blood pressure, especially people who are over 40. So let me tell you about the current blood pressure pill situation. As I mentioned on a previous show, if you are taking an ACE inhibitor or what's known as an ARB, uh, basically anything ending with uh, pril or artin, like losartan, so any blood pressure medication ending with pril, P-R-I-L, or artin, A-R-T-N, A-R-T-A-N, that is, if you're taking either of those for blood pressure, then it is likely either an ARB or an ACE inhibitor, and there is a theory that those substantially raise the chances of you getting bad symptoms if you have COVID-19. They were not said to increase your chance of catching it, but as once you have it, it raised the chance of you getting bad symptoms. So it was recommended by some people that if your blood pressure without the medication is not that bad, to go without it for the short term. So uh, if you have very high blood pressure, like 175 over 110, then yes, continue the Losartan or the the ACE inhibitor, whatever you're taking, because uh, it's very dangerous to go without it. If you were like me with like 150 over 90, then it's probably better to do without it for a few months. That was what I said about a month ago. 
However, this was unproven, and there were some counter-theories that, in fact, instead of making it to where your symptoms will get worse, it may actually help suppress bad symptoms. They, they may actually have it backwards, that it's actually helpful to be taking Losartan or an ACE inhibitor, not harmful. Or maybe it could even be a combination of both, where there's something about it that helps, something about it that hurts, and it's kind of a toss-up whether it's going to help or hurt. There's also a possibility the whole thing is wrong and that it doesn't affect anything. All of these are possible, and they have not come to any meaningful conclusion either way. They're still studying it. There is no answer at the moment. So what should you do? Well, it's a tough decision. As I said, if you have very high blood pressure to where it's short-term dangerous, definitely stay on the meds. If you have only a very slight high blood pressure and you're taking meds just because you're on the border of needing them at all, but you're taking them to be safe, I would suggest quitting them. But again, don't, don't do any of this without consulting your doctor or getting educated on it. I am not a doctor and don't quit these things and then blame me if something bad happens. I'm just telling you, I'm telling you as a high blood pressure uh, sufferer myself. Sufferer is not the right term. You don't really feel high blood pressure. But as someone who deals with high blood pressure, someone who has to make this decision myself, I'm relaying to you what I'm doing and what my thought process is, and then you can decide for yourself. But I'm saying that if I had a very high blood pressure, there'd be no question I'd still be taking it. If I had a kind of moderately high blood pressure, let's say I was, I was 135 over 80 usually, maybe I'd be on medication, but uh, I would definitely be off it at this point. Where I am, which was in the middle, it's, it's a toss-up. Now, I will say that when you're my age, that bringing on an additional danger, I think, even if it's 50-50, whether it's going to help or hurt you, I think it's worth giving up any possible benefit to prevent anything possible that's worse. I'd rather just have neither. If someone said it's a 50% chance it's going to help you, 50% chance it's going to hurt you, I'd say, you know what? If I was very old, I'd probably go for this because I need all the help I can get. At 48, I'm just, I'd just rather not have this complicating it at all. I'd rather just staying like a regular 48-year-old. Yeah, it'd be great if it could help me, but uh, I, I don't want to turn myself from the risk of a 48-year-old to the risk of a 60-year-old or a risk of a 70-year-old. So no thanks, I won't take it. So that that was my attitude, and that's why I won't take it. So that, that was my attitude, and that's why I haven't taken my Losartan since this was discovered. I might be doing myself a disservice, but I I stopped it. I think it's the right decision. But it's very close. I'll admit it's very, very, very close. So if you want to go the other way with a similar blood pressure, that's also fine. Uh... I've, uh, I, I talked to my brother of mine slightly better. He's four years younger than me, so that makes sense. Slightly better than mine, but he still has a high blood pressure issue. It's a hereditary thing. And uh, he quit it and then recently restarted. Now, he's, he's a doctor. He's a cardiologist. I said, well, if you're restarting it, I should too. And he said, yeah, I would suggest it. But I said, well, I gave him the reasons I didn't want to. He says, yeah, it's valid too. <laughs> so uh, he said he's he's... A little more on the side of me returning to take it, but that uh, it, just like I thought, it's it's very close because there's so little conclusive information. So that was I just had the discussion with him. That's what he told me, and so he personally chose to start taking it again. But it was close. I'm cho- choosing not to. Also, because non 
ACE inhibitors and non-ARBs are not thought to be affecting it at all. So if you're taking a water pill, if you're taking amlodipine, that is said not to affect the matter at all. Maybe that's wrong also, but that's uh, that's not what's being considered here. That's not what the concern is about. So I'm taking that. I'm taking the water pill and I'm taking the amlodipine. I was usually taking a, a triple blood pressure medication, meaning the losartan, the water pill, and the amlodipine. I've cut out the losartan. Well, with the other two, it's brought my blood pressure down to where it's not 150 anymore, but it's kind of like high 130s, low 140s. So I've, I've still got a high blood pressure, but not as high as when I'm taking nothing. So I'm going to stick with that for a while. And, and I'll see. Maybe if more information comes out, then I'll be convinced to go back on it. So that's the update here. The update is I don't have much of an update and just it's pretty much where we were a month ago and make your own call. That's my update. Definitely if your blood pressure is high or if you have other health issues where high blood pressure can cause complications, stay on your medication. And that's unfortunately reading the reports about this, it's maddening because they don't want to suggest anybody get off their blood pressure medications because they don't want people to do it and then sue them. They don't want people to do it, and, and it turns out that they shouldn't have because uh, a, a rise in their blood pressure will cause some other condition they have to get worse. So the, the easiest thing to say is just, well, we, we haven't proven it's done this yet. We haven't proven it's making things worse for the coronavirus, so just stay on it. Just, just keep the status quo. It's always easiest to say keep the status quo. But but I know that I don't have any conditions that, that a blood pressure like 150 over 90 is going to worsen in the short term, and I know it's not – short-term dangerous to have that type of blood pressure. It's not a blood pressure I'd like to have for the next several years, but it's one I, I can do with for several months. So that's what I've chosen to do, but it's close. Every day I kind of struggle with it. I, like I look at the Lasartan sitting on my sink and I say, maybe I should take this again. And I go, no, let's just leave well enough alone. But it's close. It really is close. Okay. I made some... Statements about this already, but I want to touch on this in a little bit more detail about how deaths don't tell the whole story. And I'm so sick of discussions only of deaths. Now, deaths are a very important statistic in two ways. First of all, they're deaths, and we need to know how many people are dying. And, of course, that's the very worst outcome you can have. So it's important to know how many people are dying. But at the same time, there's other things to consider that are being ignored because everyone's obsessed with focusing upon number of deaths. And there's a lot more to think about. The death thing is unfortunately what's being used to compare this to the flu. They talk about all the flu deaths we have every year. So how is this much worse? Yeah, people can see it is worse so far, but how is this worse than just an unusually bad flu season? We don't shut down the country when there's a unusually bad flu season, so why would we go this far? Even if it's two times as bad as the flu, maybe three times as bad as the flu, is it worth shutting down the entire country? And I've said it before, I'm going to say it again, this is different than the flu, not just in deaths. It's also different than the flu because it's much less predictable who's going to get bad symptoms from it. Not just who's going to die from it. I admit that the chance of dying if you're not old or have a pre-existing condition is pretty low. With deaths being very tied to pre-existing conditions and age, it's not that different from the flu. In fact, there's one better thing about the coronavirus than the flu in that it's not killing kids. 
the only kids that seem to be dying of the coronavirus are ones that have pre-existing conditions. But kids, otherwise, normal kids who are not tiny infants are not dying, and even not many infants are dying. It's a, For the most part, it's sparing kids. Where the flu does not. The flu kills kids. So in that way, it's better than the flu. But the reason this is so much worse is because of the severe symptoms that don't kill you. All the people who end up on ventilators who don't die, but have permanent damage from ventilators. We talked about that last week. I won't get into that again, but ventilators are awful and you want to avoid them. They do permanent damage to you. You may get lucky and avoid that, but a lot of people, a lot of people end up with psychological and physical damage from a ventilator that you never come back from. You really, really want to avoid that. That's really like a last-ditch attempt to keep you alive that does a lot of damage, especially if you've on it for a long time. So you have a lot of the ventilators where people get out of it, they live, but it really affects them. Really destroys their quality of life. Also, there's the severe symptoms that don't put you on a ventilator, even ones that don't hospitalize you, which are very, very difficult to deal with. And they can cause lasting psychological problems. They can cause lasting physical problems. There's a new study that's in progress about the long-term impact of getting the coronavirus and recovering even if you were not on a ventilator. That just getting it and, and experiencing, you know, like medium to severe symptoms with it, there's some belief that it harms you long term. It may lower your life expectancy. It may bring down big problems further down the line. It also, as I said, might cause psychological issues. There's a lot that this does that the flu does not do. And the number of people who go through this are a lot higher than the number of deaths. And a lot higher than the number of deaths and people who end up on ventilators but don't die combined. You take away the deaths, you take away the ventilator people, and you still have a very large number of people who got it and went through such an awful experience with it that it has an impact on the rest of their life. Sometimes physical, sometimes psychological, but it is believed that a lot of the medium to severe cases that do not rise to the level of needing a ventilator cause permanent harm. Flu does not do that. How many people do you know that lived through the flu but have permanent harm from it? I've never known anybody. Never. I've never known anybody like this. I've never heard of it. Maybe some very old people are already sick, but the flu is not known to come through and and just really decimate anyone in modern times. It, It kills people. Kills people who have existing problems or are very old or are very young, but you don't have these long-term effects from it once you're past it like you do with this. So that's a tremendous difference. Why is it a tremendous difference? Because a lot more people than who are dying or ending up in the ICU from this. If, if you're going to look at the result that's most likely to screw you, it's that. It's not the dying. It's not the ICU, especially if you're middle-aged. That's what you got to fear. That's what I fear. I'm not fearing the dying from it. I'm not fearing the ventilator from it. 
I am a little bit, but it, you know, it's not the big thing to me. The big thing to me is what's the most likely scenario, and that is I have a really, really bad time with it. And for me personally, that it brings back the psychological problems that I had in 2018 and beat. But even if you didn't have previous psychological problems like I did, you don't want this because you may get them. And you may get physical problems. You just don't want this. And the reason it's important to focus on is because when we're having the conversation about what to reopen, how much risk to take, why not just let everybody get it and keep the old people away so they don't die from it, it's not just about who dies from it. And it's not just about being uncomfortable for a few weeks. For some people it is, and for some lucky people, they don't feel it or it's very minor. But for a lot of people it's not. And that is why I'm a big advocate right now of avoiding getting it until more is known and until a possible treatment exists. That that will be the biggest moment when a treatment exists. Hopefully it does come to exist. I'm not even guaranteeing there will be one. Viruses are very hard to deal with. It's not like uh, you just pop antibiotics and you're better. This is This is a tough thing to figure out. This is, there may never be a, a good treatment for this. But at the same time, it's not like a vaccine where it's guaranteed it's going to take a long time. Vaccine is guaranteed far away. Treatment, not guaranteed far away. It could be, it could be much closer than the vaccine is. But that would be the huge moment. Is it an effective treatment? That would be the turning point. So yeah, just keep in mind, death, don't tell the whole story. If if you're arguing with someone who's trying to tell you it's just the flu, it's not. By the way, this wasn't on the agenda, but I I want to just make this statement. We have people of a lot of different political persuasions who listen to this show. We have people on the far left. We have people on the moderate left. We have people who are apolitical. We have people in the center. We have people in the moderate right. And we have people on the far right who listen to this show. And I've heard from some people who are on the right that that's one of the reasons they appreciate this show, because they know I'm on the right. And they like when I do segments talking about politics, because they agree with what I have to say. And that, in fact, they enjoy listening to a show both about poker and gambling and where the host is right-wing politically. I've even received some compliments from people on the left saying they don't agree with my political stances, but at least I present these in a reasonable and intelligent fashion, and they can respect that, and at least it makes them think, even if they come away believing that I'm not right, and that they appreciate me doing that. I've had some others who are on the left that just listen to anything I say politically and get mad. I have that too. But I want to talk to those who are on the right about the coronavirus. People on the right, not everybody, but there's a lot of people on the right who are making a big mistake here. And if you're one of them, I suggest that you correct the mistake. There are many on the right who believe that admitting that the coronavirus is a serious matter that is far more serious than the flu, and that is something we really, really need to be careful with, 
that that is some sort of admission that the Democrats are right and that Trump is wrong or that Trump is bad or that some kind of attack on Trump to say that or that it's conceding to the Democrats to say that or you're giving the Democrats exactly what you want what they want when you say that and so some of them fight to downplay the seriousness of this illness of this pandemic and you shouldn't do that because it's not right it's not correct it's not what's really happening now if you want to say that the media and the democrats have jumped on everything they can to criticize trump using this virus i would agree with you if you want to say trump's done a great job and has done nothing wrong or done very little wrong so far i would disagree with you if you would say the media has been somewhat unfair to trump about this i would agree with you so see a lot of these can be true at once the democrats can be exploiting this they can be unfair to trump trump can have screwed things up and this can be a serious matter all this can be true together and you're not conceding anything you're not letting the democrats win you're not falling for a hoax you shouldn't be emotionally invested in proving that this is not a big deal nor should you be dropping i told you so's if this ends up not as serious as feared instead you should be happy for humanity because if it ends up not as serious as feared then that's great but this is new territory nobody understands everything there's a lot that's not understood yet so nobody can make the right decision without that knowledge you have to take a lot of guesses here when i say you i mean everyone i mean politicians i mean anybody who decides what to do what not to do what's allowed what's not allowed has to be based upon what little information is known and a lot of this is uncharted territory shutting down the economy uncharted territory this virus uncharted territory we've never had one like this i had benjamin ask me this the other day have we ever had one like this answer no we actually have never had one like this what about the 1918 flu no it wasn't like this it was different that was mostly a result of immature medicine poor understanding of viruses lack of antibiotics for secondary infections this is something and even if, even if it was similar nobody was alive for it nobody remembers it who was alive in 1918 and can remember 1918 just about nobody it's 102 years ago so it's new for everybody old or young it's new so of course there's going to be estimates made that are wrong of course there's going to be guesses made that are the right thing to do that turn out to be the wrong thing to do in hindsight but if it turns out not to be as severe as feared then that's no different you don't say well we shouldn't have shut everything down that's no different than saying well you shouldn't have played poker last night because you lost i'm sure you've probably had people say that to you before too i've had people say that to me i say well i lost $7000 last night i'm very frustrated 
well, why'd you go play then? I go, because I didn't know I was going to lose $7,000. I could have won $7,000. I don't know. If I could see the future, I was going to have a terrible session. I would not have gone. If I could see the future when I'm going to lose, I won't play on those days. Unfortunately, I can't. Nobody can. So, same thing here. If we could see exactly what the future would be with this based upon different decision trees that we make, then we could make the optimal one. We can't. And we can't use past experience because there isn't any. So, there's no past experience. We have to take our best guess. So, regardless of what the results end up being, being cautious about this is not a mistake and it's not a big conspiracy to screw Trump. It isn't. And you guys know me. I'm not someone who's pretending to be a conservative and isn't. You you know I really am. You know I'm not even one of these never-Trumpers. I've actually warmed up to Trump over the years. But you got to be realistic here. So we're all in this together. This is a horrible thing that's happening to the world. And what I hope for every day is that we get good news. And you know what? Even if I get the antibodies without ever having experienced it, and then everybody that I'm close to has the same experience. Let's say everybody I'm close to is not going to suffer anything bad from this because we all somehow are asymptomatic. That's unlikely to happen, but let's just say it did. I wouldn't say, okay, good. Now I don't give a crap. Let everybody else suffer. I won't care. No, I would be thrilled to see some uh, progress against it. And not just so I could see sports return or so I could go do things I want to do. It's very sad to see what's happening. All the death, everything shut down, all the people going through these horrible experiences. The people who are on ventilators. I just want to see it stop. And that's what we should all hope for. And not worry about which political sides can end up right about this. And by the way, I have my criticism as far as a lot of things the Democrats are doing, have done, or want to do. For example, there was a, a bill proposed to extend the government assistance for six more months to people and give a $2,000 uh, stipend to everybody for six months. I'm going like, this is insane. This is going to cause the hyperinflation I was fearing. And it bothers me how the landlords are being treated, that they're not getting any kind of relief themselves, but they're being forced to basically administer social programs on their own dime. There's a lot of things that are unfair in the way things are being handled. A lot of things are being handled wrong, and some of this, I believe, is being pushed by the Democrats. I also don't like how Democrats are attempting to slip in things to their bills, the aid bills that have nothing to do with the coronavirus and are their pet projects they've been looking to slip in for a long time. Yes, that happened too. There's a lot of stuff that the Democrats have done that I haven't been happy with. But there's been things that Republican politicians have done that I haven't been happy with, including Trump. And the average Republican citizen, I've seen a lot of them, not all of them, but I've seen a lot of Republicans who usually act reasonably, who are acting unreasonably about this and believe this is some kind of political fight and it's not, and and just, you can take it seriously 
and still be the conservative you always were. And I am. You see how seriously I am taking it? I've never once called the the virus a hoax or, or just the flu or no big deal or we shouldn't close things. I quit commerce in late January, okay? Like, I took it seriously. I've said it was serious. I've been covering it on the show. I'm no less conservative than I was in 2019. So you can still be the same conservative you always were and still acknowledge the seriousness of this. And when you don't acknowledge the seriousness of this, all that does is it puts people in danger because if they listen to you, then they may get it. And then they may die or go through something horrible. So don't. That's my plea to other Republicans who, to be honest, of all matters I've seen where there's some kind of uh, political divide, this is the the one I've agreed with the... uh, with, with a large number – I've disagreed with a, a large number of Republicans most of anything I've seen in a long time. And I just think it's it's because everything's so polarized. And I, I can totally see this happening on the other side, by the way, if there's a, a Democratic administration at the moment. I could see the reverse occurring where the Democrats would be trying to downplay it and the Republicans would be saying, oh, my God, this is awful. And look at, look at the seriousness it's not taking. You know, I, I could see that too. I mean, look, on a much smaller scale, that, that VA scandal, that horrible VA scandal with the fake waiting lists where maybe thousands of people died that occurred under the Obama administration that got very little play in the media. Believe it or not, CNN was the only one to really cover it. Uh, I had so many Democrats trying to tell me that was no big deal or it's being exaggerated and all these Republicans are going, no, no, this is awful. And the Republicans were right. It was awful. So a lot of times it, it depends who's in office. And who can be blamed? But let's not do that with this. Just don't do that with this. It's, I'm telling you, it's serious. If you go take a look at this with an open mind, you'll see it's serious. Any nonsense you've heard about how this is an exaggerated flu is just that. Nonsense. Okay, uh, I want to talk about my experience with Instacart. And you may say, wait a minute, what happened to the coronavirus? Are we done? No, we're not. This is part of the coronavirus segment because I would not be using Instacart if this was not going on. I hate any of these app-based services to do things for me. I hate them. I've never liked them. I don't mean I just started hating them now. I have always hated them long before the COVID-19 showed up, long before 2020. I, in general, do not like any service being done for me that I can do myself easily. So, for example, I don't use valets to park my car unless I'm forced to. I don't have the bellman bring my luggage up to the room unless I'm physically unable to or unless I have... Such a staggering amount of luggage that I could not bring it all myself without a lot of trouble, which just about never happens. I prefer to serve myself than get served. Now, at restaurants, you don't have a choice, so I get served at restaurants. But uh, I do find it nice sometimes when I'm at a kind of a lower end type of place where you just get stuff at the counter and serve yourself. 
I would even like the concept of buffets if they didn't have their own issues and were horrible for many reasons. But that's a whole different story. But what I'm saying here is I, I'm a do it. I'm a self-service. I'm not a do-it-yourself guy. Like there's a lot of things that I could learn to do myself that I'm either too lazy to or don't have an interest in learning. But uh, I, I'm a self-service guy. Well, think of gasoline. Uh, I know there's not many full-service stations out there, but when there were, when I was younger, I never used full-service. And, and not just because it was more expensive, that that was a little bit too, but I also just like to pump my own gas. I like to do these things for myself. I can do it the way I want. I can do it the speed I want. I don't have to count on anybody else. It's I, I just really prefer to do as much for myself that I can. I don't like being served in general. I also don't like others driving me. I don't like Uber or Lyft. I try to rent cars as much as I can when I'm in cities without my car. I mean, I go on and on. So I really like to do things myself, like planning vacations. I don't just give it to a travel agent or whatever. Like I... I I also I don't even like tasting menus at restaurants where they tell me what to eat. I like picking my own food. Now I bet some of you will say, "Oh, look, Druff has control issues." Maybe a little bit, but it's not just that. It's it's more of I just like doing things my way and at my own speed, whether it's faster or slower. I just I like just I, I don't like having others do things for me. So uh, something like Instacart, which is a shopping service, they go and uh, pick up groceries for you and they deliver them to your house. There's a lot of people out there that love services like these. Oh, great. I hate grocery shopping. Great. I could just stay home and they'll deliver groceries to me. One less chore I have. Well, do I love grocery shopping? No. Do I kind of see it as as a chore? Yes. Do I think it's a bit of a pain in the ass to go to the grocery store? Yes. Are there times I wish I could just stay home in a good poker game instead of going to the grocery store? Yes. But, but I hate those type of services so much that I will put aside those things and happily go myself. Now, I don't mind if my girlfriend goes. Like someone someone who I know knows what to get and knows what to do and knows what I want and knows what they want, that's fine. I don't have to do everything totally myself. Like if, if there's someone who is close to me who can do it the same way I would, or at least for the things I need, Like, then that's fine. They can do it. But uh, those services obviously don't. You really lose a lot of control too. Like you, you have them pick up a steak there. Well, they don't look for the good steak. They just grab the first steak there. Uh, you ask them to get a milk for you. Well, they're not going to go dig in the back to get the one with the best expiration date. That's what I do. They're not going to do that. So there's a lot of little things that come up at the supermarket that you do yourself better than these people will, and you can't demand they do it. You can't say, you can't put note, crawl in the back to get the latest expiration date. They'll give you a big fat middle finger for that. Or they'll say they did and they actually didn't. So I just don't like these. I like doing it my way. And... It was hard for me to do this, but I was thinking every time I was going into a supermarket, I was getting more and more nervous. And there's some people who have recently accused me of being a hypochondriac over this. It's not a hypochondriac. I I don't think I have it right now. I'm just – in fact, I love when people say I'm a hypochondriac and I go, you know how many times I've been to the ER in the past 20 years? Two. Two. And, And both were for good reasons. 
How many times have I run to the doctor with a phantom illness I think I have when it turns out it's nothing? Zero. Zero. I, I mean, I, I, I don't go to the doctor much. When I do, there's a specific purpose. I really hate going to the ER. I actually should have gone to the ER uh, when I was uh, unable to keep fluids down six years ago when I had a, a bad stomach flu. There, I, I didn't go to the ER when I should have, and fortunately nothing happened to me. But the hypochondriac, you can't be a hypochondriac and like rarely go to the doctor. And I also never imagine I have symptoms I don't. Like I'll have real symptoms. I, I And, and I, I don't exaggerate. I go, oh, my chest hurts a little bit. I think it's a heart attack. I, I'm actually the guy to say, no, I don't think it's a big deal. No, I, I doubt it's anything wrong. Like, I, In fact, when I did have the chest pain and the arm pain where I, I did need to go to the ER to have it checked out, I actually told my girlfriend, don't bother coming. I don't want to burden you. I don't want you to sit there waiting for this whole thing because it's probably nothing. I'll call you if there actually is a problem. And she felt really weird not coming with me. I said, no, actually, do not come because I, I, do, I don't want to burden you or anyone with something that is only a very small chance to be a real issue. And I'm only getting checked out because if I don't, I could just like fall down and die. Like that, that, it was only because of the, the, that arm pain with the chest pain I went at all. And when I went, I said, don't come with me because I, I'm sure it's nothing. Like, that's not what a hypochondriac would do. And if you think otherwise, you don't understand what one is. Anyway, I'm also not a hypochondriac by being afraid to go to the supermarket because the way to prevent getting the coronavirus right now is to just have no exposure. You just don't go out anywhere. But since you have to go to the grocery store, and if I don't go, my girlfriend goes, and if she catches it, she brings it to me, so the only way I can prevent exposure to the household, regardless of who brings it in, I have to assume it'll go around and everyone's going to get it in the house. So in order to stop everyone from the household from getting it, then nobody should go out to where they can get it. I don't mean to exercise or things like that that are very unlikely to catch it from. I mean something like where you're interacting with a lot of people who touch the same things you touch all the type of stuff where you can try to be cautious, but that's the highest chance you're going to get it is the supermarket if that's all you go to. If you go to like supermarket and nothing else, if you can cut out the supermarket for everybody in your household, that brings the chance way down. So I said, you know what? Why don't we get into the cart and they'll, as much as I hate it, they'll bring us the groceries. And uh, most of the groceries, the ones that don't perish, we'll just leave by the door. Inside, that is, not outside, but we'll leave by the door inside and not touch them for two days until the virus dies on it and the perishable stuff will be careful and bring inside treat them as if they're infected even though they're probably not but maybe you know carry them in with gloves whatever and this really lowers our exposure because we're not touching things in the grocery store we're not walking by anyone that could be coughing or sneezing or the virus possibly hanging in the air there's so many different things that could happen while at the grocery store that uh, wouldn't happen from someone just delivering you groceries. Now, I consider that what if the person who's delivering them has the coronavirus and doesn't know it, especially with all the times they're going to the grocery store back and forth every day for everybody. And I thought about that. And I go, okay, but still, even if they have it, if we don't actually see them in person, which we don't, they just leave it at the door. Uh, as long as we're very careful with the stuff we bring in, then uh, 
and we let most of it sit for two days, then the, the chance is very low. Not not zero, but the chance is very low of getting it. So I go, let's just let's just totally do this, isolate ourselves from everything, uh, you know, almost a complete isolation, and then this brings the chance of of catching COVID nineteen to a very very low chance. And then, as I said earlier, we can stall this until there's no more known about it, and maybe a treatment exists. So uh, that's what we've been doing. So I used Instacart. So let me tell you, it's a freaking fail site. It's awful. I hated the concept of it, but when I actually used it, I instantly hated it. And it wasn't because I had a bad attitude about it. Yes, I can come into things that I I already don't like and already have a bad attitude, and I'm kind of like looking for reasons not to like it. But here I didn't need to look for reasons not to like it. Here I actually tried to force myself come into it with a positive attitude and saying, look, this is good to have, so it stops us from having to go to the grocery store and I can afford it. So yeah, the prices will be a little bit marked up. Yes, there's going to be a service fee. Yes, you've got to tip the delivery driver a good deal, but I can afford it and it takes this concern of the grocery store away. Both psychologically, so I don't have to worry about it, and Physically, so it lowers the chance of getting the coronavirus by a good deal. So I said, it's worth it. So I'm going to go into this with a good attitude, even if this is something I normally would not use. Well, I, I go through it and it's terrible. First of all, the, the site was designed by idiots. They need to take a, a beginner's web design course. The, it's very difficult to figure out how to do everything there. Super user unfriendly. Yes, I said super user. You know how Daniel Negreanu said that GG Poker is super user friendly? This is super user unfriendly. Super user unfriendly. It really is. Very hard to figure out what to do. Very hard to navigate. Very. Uh, you, there's like a big learning curve to figuring out how to use it, and there shouldn't be. <laughs> and, and the documentation's terrible. It's not even like you can read how to use it and understand it really fast. It's like you've really got to get used to the interface. The interface just sucks big time, both on the app and on the web. And then uh, then there's the delivery problem. So I went through the whole thing, and I happened to be doing it uh, very early in the morning, like 6 a.m. So we wanted del- delivery from Albertsons, which is a supermarket, and Costco. You guys know what that is. So I wanted Albertsons and Costco. Okay, it's about 6 a.m. So I go, it says, select your delivery time for Albertsons, and you can either pick, like, between now and five days from now. That's actually, like, one option. Between now and five days from now is the option. Or you can actually start picking uh, times five days from now, times six days from now. What you cannot choose is, is, like, a specific time or day that's between zero and four days away. You just can't pick that. It just doesn't exist. So I go, okay, well, obvious choice, between now and five days from now. So I pick that. Okay, move on. Costco. No delivery options available. You go, huh? How could there be no delivery options available? Like, like, shouldn't I be able to get in a line and just get behind however long that's going to be, even if it's like in a week? Like, why, why are there just no options? Why can't I just get in the queue and then when it's my turn, it's my turn? How could there be no options? But no, there's no options. Okay, that's weird. Okay, well, let's just skip the Costco for the moment. Just have Albertsons. So how do I just say skip Costco? And I look and I can't figure it out. 
I keep looking and looking and looking. I'm going crazy. Go, there must be some way to skip Costco and just get Albertsons. Much can I just put like save for later for Costco? No, uh, there's no way to skip Costco. If you've got two different stores on there, you either have to have both scheduled for delivery or you can't get delivered at all. <laughs> uh, who designed this? A moron designed this. How, how could they come up with that? That you can't just say, okay, don't deliver Costco. We'll get that later. So here I could... Pick Albertsons, I couldn't pick Costco, so therefore I can't do anything. Only way out of that were to be delete everything from Costco, and we did, we did a lot of work to put all this together. So I go, crap, now do I just like screenshot the Costco thing and, 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 and figure out and add all this back later? What a tremendous pain in the ass. I said, okay, you know what? And so I was talking to my girlfriend. I said, can we wait? Is, can we wait one more day? She says, yes, it's, nothing's urgent. And, you know, we, we're low on things, but we can go another day. Because I had heard that the way these delivery slots work, we, you, of course, you got to wonder if there's nothing available at all, like now or in the future at Costco. They're just saying, Costco, you can never get delivered ever again? No. What they're saying is no delivery slots available. Now, how does one become available? Well, it turns out, and it doesn't say this anywhere there, but upon speaking to some people I knew who used it, I heard that what they do is they open it up in the middle of the night to where they clear delivery slots again. So they, it's not opened as the slots actually open. Like at 1 a.m. they won't be open. 1 a.m. Pacific is not open. At like 2 a.m., sometime between 2 and 3 a.m. It, it seems to open. I don't even know the exact time, but sometime between like 2 and 3 a.m. abruptly a bunch of spots open. And obviously there's no deliveries happening at 2 a.m. So there there must be something in the system that just doesn't open delivery slots until whatever that designated time is, which I haven't figured out the exact time, but it's sometimes between 2 and 3 in the morning. Now, because there's not many people up between 2 and 3 in the morning, these remain open for the next few hours, but by 7 a.m. they're gone again. So to schedule a delivery, see, Albertsons, we still had the last few that were open between 6 and 7. Costco was already gone. By the time I, try, I tried to schedule it like 6.45 a.m., it was Costco was gone, Albertsons was still there. But to reliably schedule both, I would have to be up between like 2.30 a.m. and 6 a.m., which, okay, at least fortunately, I am. I do tend to be up at that time. So, good. Score one point for me. Finally, staying up all night, uh, there's, there's a benefit, a practical benefit to it. Great job, okay? So at least I have that edge on people. But what a stupid idea! What a stupid thing! You can't just say, "Put me in line, schedule me the next opening," even if it's a week, two weeks from now. Put me there. No, can't do it. You've got to be up when they clear the delivery slots in the middle of the night. Insane! Like, like who came up with that one? It's not even fair. It's not even fair. I mean, I'm for, I'm a little bit glad it's that way, so at least I can jump ahead of the people. So you know, people people can't just get in line ahead of me. They've got to wake up in the middle of the night to do it. So I, mean, I guess that's kind of good in a way for me, but for the average person, what a pain in the freaking ass to have to wake up between 2.30 and 6 a.m. to get your delivery slot in there. And it's not just because I want two stores. Either store, if you try to book, at least where I am, if you try to book between uh, 7 a.m. And, and, and 2 a.m., that long period of time, that long 19-hour stretch, you can't book at all. It just shuts you out, won't, no deliveries. So that that's insane. That's why can't you just get in a queue? Wouldn't that just be fair? Wouldn't that just be easy? 
get next in line. Okay, your projected date is this. Okay, maybe several days away because a lot of people are using this right now, but okay, at least it's fair. I wouldn't even mind if they had like a premium option where you just uh, you, you can pay extra to jump up in the delivery uh, line. You may say, well, that's unfair. Why can the rich people pay? Well, because the rich people can pay for anything. I'd say, listen, listen to what uh, our blackjack trainer Christopher Mitchell said. The rich get their groceries fast. The poor get their groceries in two weeks. That's what Christopher Mitchell would say. So, yeah, I mean, offer it as a premium service or don't. I'd be fine if you don't. I'd be fine if just everybody's going to be equal and we're just all in the line of the position we get in. So, okay. Middle of the night, I scheduled both. I scheduled them between April 14th to April 19th. So as soon as it could come, it would be same day, April 14th. Ladies would come, be April 19th. Then there was a matter of the tip. Okay? It suggests, by default, a 5% tip, which I wondered if that was a bit low. And I was asking on the forum, is that a bit low? And people said, yeah, that's kind of low. But that's, that's what it suggested. But that didn't mean anything. Like, I wanted to know, like, what is the customary tip? I didn't want to over-tip. I didn't want to under-tip. I wanted to tip what was fair. Okay, and I, I kind of didn't know. I don't even do this normally, and I, I didn't know what the right tip here would be. And you can't just compare it to a restaurant. It's totally different. You know, I just, I'm trying to figure out what is the right tip. And I, I made like a $350 order between the two of them, and about equal for both. It was probably about you know, around 175 for each of uh, Albertsons and Costco. So I was trying to figure out which uh, what tip to leave, and you can leave anything. From zero all the way up to any amount. So I was trying to figure it out, and then I learned something. See, I was reading an article about how people are past adjusting tips. And I go, what does that mean? Well, people are would put falsely high tips there, and then you have a time period after the delivery to adjust the tip up or down. And so what some people were doing was putting a fake high tip when they make the order and then adjusting it down to zero or very low before, you know, after the thing's over. So they end up being charged a much lesser tip. And of course, the driver gets a much lesser tip. This pisses off drivers. Drivers have been complaining. They said they shouldn't be allowed. They shouldn't be able to pass adjust tips like that or you can't pass adjust them down and that uh, they should ban that behavior from the from the site. And that's a big controversy. But at the time, I'm going, well... Why would anyone do that? Like, it's kind of a dick move, I agree. I wouldn't do it but unless there was a problem. But why is anyone doing this? What's the point? And then I learned the point. The point is that if you give a higher tip, the deliverers see the higher tip, and they can decide to deliver to you ahead of somebody who tipped lower. Well, that ain't good. They should not be creating this hierarchy of tipping where people get in tipping wars to get their groceries first. That's different than paying for a premium service of fast delivery. Here you just have to tip something and hope it's beating your neighbors. And that's a joke. You don't even know what you're getting for your money. It's one thing to tip fairly, but to have to get in some tipping war where you've got to tip artificially really high to maybe get your groceries fast is a joke. 
So that was really bothering me, and I'm like, okay, I'm not going to play this game. F it. I'm, I'm just going to tip 15%, which I think is plenty generous. It's, it's $50. It's more than $50 on this order. And they get paid on top of it. It's not the only money they're making. And they get 100% of their tips. At least that's what the site claims. So I put in 15%, which I thought was fine. Come on, that's not nice to play in the background here. That's... That that's that tip is fine. Come on. I think that's a very generous tip for bringing three hundred fifty dollars worth of groceries. Anyway, I put fifteen percent down, and I was hoping that would get me my groceries reasonably fast. I knew I wouldn't be top priority, but I was hoping I'd get them in a reasonable amount of time. Well. Day one, April 14th, passed. And keep in mind, I got this order in the middle of the night. So pretty much from when the stores opened, my order was already in. Entire day passed, nothing. No contact, nothing. It's as if I did not make the order. I saw the order was in there, but no contact. April 15th. Entire day passed, nothing. April 16th, now the third day. Remember, I have from the 14th through the 19th to get it, a six-day span. So April 15th, got nothing. What about uh, April 16th? 0.0. By this point, I was starting to get pissed. Three full days passed. No contact. I didn't expect to be the first one, but for a 15% tip, I, I can't even get it in three days? Well, finally, on April 17th, we got contact. Turned out two different drivers, one for Costco, one for Albertsons. One in the morning, one in the evening. The Albertsons one was good. We got everything as expected. They didn't screw anything up. The things they got for us were of okay quality, like they didn't get the they didn't get eggs that were broken or cracked, and they didn't get cheese that was moldy. You know, like they they did a reasonable job selecting. It was like a middle aged guy, so he did a good job. You can't tip them separately, by the way. Then the Costco thing. The first problem was that happened in the afternoon near closing because the they can start texting you. When they're actually at the store, if there's anything they want to, re- they need to replace that isn't in stock anymore, or whatever. So uh, we started getting contact from the Costco person at like 5 p.m., whereas the Albertsons person went in the morning. Well, the Costco situation that was about an hour before closing, so a lot of stuff was gone. I heard that Costco has a really long line in the morning, so that's probably why. She chose, it was a woman who went to do this. That's probably why she chose to do it in the evening, early evening, an hour before close. But uh, a lot of things were out, including more things than we had seen when we went ourselves in the past. So the 5 p.m. probably really hurt it. And then she also forgot to bring one thing, which wasn't a huge deal, but it was something we kind of needed and she just outright forgot it. So I had to put in for a refund on that one item. And we also just don't have it, which is the bigger problem. 
So I left the 15% tip. I wasn't going to be a dick and lower it. Also, the cheese that she chose from Costco was kind of... It wasn't moldy, but it wasn't great. It wouldn't be the block of cheese I would have chosen. But uh, nothing was horrible other than... and like Nothing was horrible. I would have liked that she went earlier in the day. I would have liked that both of them got to this before the fourth day, and they had the choice. They just chose not to. They got assigned this on the 14th, and they let it sit for three full days and did nothing, and then on the fourth day did something, because probably others in the neighborhood tipped a higher percentage than me. And then there was the forgetting of that one item. I really hate this. <laughs> I actually already started discussions with someone I know in the community who I know needs money. And I said, you know, I'm not expecting you to do this. And if you say no, it's totally okay. But I want to offer this to you first. Would you like to take over this job? Because I'd rather pay you than just some random off of Instacart. And I know you'll do a better job than they do. But if you don't want to, that's fine. But I, this person was like working a regular job anyway. And they... I'm not going to go into it, but the, you know, the job they have, they're already exposing themselves. So I'm like, well, okay, obviously they're not just someone who's just staying at home and, and hiding from this. This is someone who's going out there because they want to make money. So I'm like, okay, well, would you like to make my money? So they actually said they're going to think about it and get back to me. But I think I would go with them or, or I'll contact some other people I know here too that might be able to help me with this. Uh, it feels a little weird saying like, to someone I know personally, even if it's not like a close friend, but someone I know personally, hey, I don't want to go to the grocery store and get the coronavirus. How about you go to the grocery store for me and get the coronavirus because I can afford to pay you to do this? Like it feels weird to ask someone that, but at the same time, if someone's going to work and exposing themselves even more than doing what I'm asking them to do, and of course they're doing it for me, they're just doing it once. They're not doing it for like a whole bunch of people every day like the Instacart drivers. So the, the, the exposure isn't that high. But uh, yeah, if they're willing to do this, if they're trying to make money, if that's what why they're going out, I go, okay, well, here's something you can do to make even more money and expose yourself less. It's, it's, a, it's a win-win. And they can say no. That's the thing. I'm, not, I'm not compelling anyone to or saying I expect you to. I expect nobody to. I think a reasonable answer is no. I prefer not to expose myself extra. And I'd say, okay, I understand. But uh, I... I it's no different than hiring just a random on Instacart. Now, there is the question. Is it even moral to use Instacart at all for this reason? Answer, yes, because these people want to do this. These people want to make money. I actually see people on Facebook posting, oh, look how much money I'm making driving for Instacart. There's some people who are very happy with themselves on my Facebook who are driving for Instacart. I, I can't get them to do this for me because they live in other states, but some people are very happy with the opportunity that's provided them to make extra money that they couldn't make before. So if people want to do this, also some of these people are younger too. That's the other thing. Some people are younger and much less concerned about this. Not all of them, but a lot of them are younger. A lot of them who aren't younger would just rather uh, rather do it. They'd prefer to make the money. So if they prefer to make the money and I prefer to pay the money and not go, great. Everybody's happy. So someone's got to go. So if they're willing to do it instead of me, 
and they make extra money, then as I said, it's good for everybody. So I don't feel entitled that others should go and I don't, but at the same time, uh, if someone would like to go and make money from doing so, yeah, why not? Still feel kind of weird, though, to say that to someone I know. But, you know, I'm honest about it. I go, look, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I say, look, it's, I'm not going because, uh, uh, I, this blood pressure thing kind of concerns me and I don't, I don't know what the right thing to do is and it's just making me nervous. And so I, I just don't want to go to the store, but, uh, I just wanted to give this opportunity to you. Anyway, I don't know what I'm going to do going forward. I wasn't thrilled with Instacart. I didn't expect I would be. And boy, that's it's such a fail site. I can't even begin to tell you. Oh, by the way, getting getting that refund for that one item that didn't get delivered to me that was hard. That was super hard to figure out how you get a refund. It was it was the most convoluted way scroll uh, like navigating through their system to figure that out. I thought it'd be something easy. You just click on the order. Uh, you know, did they forget something? Click here. Okay, click on what they forgot. Okay, we'll refund you. No, it's it, way more involved than that, and very difficult to figure out. Total fail site. You may ask, why am I not using Amazon Fresh? Because Amazon Fresh will not deliver to my area. Okay, enough with my grocery follies. I want to talk about the antibody tests. Then we have uh, one more coronavirus topic after that. We have this and one other, and then uh, I'm going to take another break. Then we'll do our final four topics, and we end the show. That's a freaking long show. For some reason, I'm going to be like embarrassed. If this ends with like a 10-hour show, I'm going to be almost embarrassed to post it. I'll always be embarrassed to have done a show that long. Just got to get used to it. Just got to get used to the new normal, the super long shows. Okay, so antibody tests. I've been waiting for those for so long. Not that I think I had it. I don't. I think it'll be negative when I test, take one. But I've said the antibody tests are a big key to knowing how much of the population really has already had COVID-19 and also to verifying that those who think they may have already had it actually did, and to identify the asymptomatic people who once had it, and to return everybody to society. The antibody test does not help you test whether you have it currently, and it does not help cure anything. The existence of an antibody test does not make you any safer, but it does give you a lot more information, and it gives society a lot more information. I have been very, very uh, pro-antibody tests, and I've been very uh, observant about the antibody tests uh, development. I've been Googling it. I've been trying to find out when is it coming, when is it coming, when is it coming. Not even so much for me personally. Just I want to see it here. Well, it's here. But I'm not that excited. Let me explain why. So uh, the antibody test is unfortunately not that accurate. And... It's going to be a while till we know whether it is. And this is an unfortunate side effect of the FDA's relax, relaxing of certain restrictions. The problem is that to get uh, certain drugs and tests to market, there's all kinds of red tape and bureaucracy that has to be gone through. And, and we don't have time to wait for that. We don't have time to wait for bureaucracy as far as the coronavirus is concerned. Now, there are some things that are very important 
to get right on the first try, like a vaccine. You don't want to have a vaccine that's going to have terrible side effects and sicken the world population. That's very important to know that it's something that is very both effective and safe. But there's other things that need to be rushed and should not have to go through a long approval process, such as experimental drugs for those who are on death's door, such as uh, tests that, uh, that you'd like to be able to do, but won't be released until they are extensively tested themselves. So Trump has he's he's been a big advocate for a long time even before the coronavirus came he was a big advocate for right to try basically if there's some something that you want to try if you're terminal to save your life you should be able to even if it's not approved he's been a big advocate of that i'm also a big advocate of that but he was also an advocate of that from the standpoint of the coronavirus so he removed a lot of the red tape And I agree with that. And that was done on April 1st. There's an unfortunate side effect, though, when you remove the red tape, and that is you sometimes lose oversight and then uh, a lot of crap hits the market. There's snake oil cures. There's a lot of experimental things that are tried that probably shouldn't be for people who uh, aren't in that dire of circumstances yet. And... A lot of crap tests hit the market because there really is nothing preventing that. Now, anyone can put out a test. So there's a ton of different antibody tests that have been put out, and a lot of them are complete crap. Now, the companies that put them out, do they say, hey, come on, come on, come all, come take our crap antibody test, which is inaccurate? No. But before you take one, your question is probably going to be, well, does this work? Is it accurate? So what's the company going to say? No? No, of course. They're going to say yes. They're going to say, oh, yes, yeah, it's, it's uh, 99% accurate. It's great. Well, you have no way to verify this. You, you don't know. This is their claim. This is like a poker site saying, oh, yeah, of course we pay out. Our, our payouts are very fast and reliable. Well, Who can verify this? Nobody, but just trust us. Our payouts are fast and reliable. Well, that's the case with the tests here. You you don't know. So there are antibody tests that you can take in many cities now. Drive up antibody tests that are pretty quick. And they will tell you if you have the COVID-19 antibody in your system, but it may not be accurate. There are different uh, labs that do this. One of them that's gotten pretty big is ArcPoint Labs. Now, they existed before the coronavirus, but this is something they've kind of converted their business model to be mainly COVID-19 testing. So if you go to, and I'm not endorsing this, by the way, be careful, I'm not endorsing this, but ArcPointLabs.com, A-R-C-PointLabs.com. If you go there, you can look for locations, for ArcPoint Labs, and then schedule an appointment. They only do this by appointment. You can't just drop in. But I, I know somebody got an appointment for like next week, so it's not way out. But you make appointments. You go down. It's $200. It's not covered by insurance. So if you're poor, 
don't do it. But uh, if you can afford $200, which a lot of you can, and I can, then you can go and they will give you a result as to whether or not you have the COVID-19 antibodies in you. They claim it's 99% accurate. I'm looking at their webpage. It says, what does the test reveal? Either no protective antibodies, currently developing antibodies, meaning your body, the antibodies are not ones that were already there, but it's currently developing. It kind of looks like you may have it at the moment, or you may have just gotten over it and it's still the, the antibodies are developing, or protective antibodies present. Now, the difference is that uh, protective antibodies means you're totally over it, and the antibodies are there protecting you. Developing antibodies means they're not quite protecting you yet, but COVID-19 has been in your system, and antibodies will be fully developed soon. And the other one, no exposure, just means there's no antibodies. That's what they're looking for. One of those three. They say, simple and quick. Skip, step one, schedule your appointment. Step two, come to your ArcPoint labs and get your sample collected. Step three, get results in a secure email in about 48 hours. So they don't tell you right away. It takes about two days. And they email it to you. However, as I said, even though they claim it's like 99% accurate, Nobody knows if it is or not. And there's warnings out there that come from the government saying, watch out, you don't know. Do not assume if you get a result that you have antibodies that now you're safe to just go out into society and you're protected. Because it may be wrong. These tests may be crap. They called it the wild, wild west of testing. Just It's kind of like playing an online poker site or an online sports betting site. Maybe they're going to be great and fair and they're going to pay you and maybe they're going to screw you and they're a complete scam. You don't know. Same here. It may be a wonderful test or at least maybe 99% accurate like they say or it could be a piece of crap. In fact, there were some from China that were found, not at ArcPoint Labs, but there's some from China that were found that were shipped to countries like Spain that were 30% accurate. <laughs> That's pretty bad. That's worse than no test at all. So, I mean, you could, you could do better flipping a coin. So, th- this is pretty bad. This is a bad situation. The reason it's a bad situation, we'll say, we may say, well, this is better than no test at all. Well, I don't know. Think about this. Say I went down and had this done. And there's, there is one in Los Angeles. It's, it's not close to me, but there's one in Los Angeles. Let's say I went down and had this done. I paid my 200 bucks. And I came back. You have the antibodies. Okay, now what? Do I go back out? And say, okay, no problem. I got the antibodies. I'm not going to get this. I'd be afraid to. Why? Because the test could be crap. I do not want to walk around with a false sense of security. So I, I wouldn't change my behavior. I'd say, well, I can't trust this. So what's the point? I mean, yeah, if, if I could do, if this was like right next door and I could do this, I might even pay the 200 bucks just to kind of see. Just, just that curiosity. But it still wouldn't change anything because I can't trust it. I think the only reason to do this is if you really think you had it and you just want to see what the results are. But not to change your behavior, just to say, I think I had it, I think I had it, I think I had it, but I, I just wish there was some way to know. Well, then you can do it and say, well, I'm not sure, but this this really raises the chance I really had it. Because not only did I feel all the symptoms, but, but now I have the antibodies according to this test too. But the problem is none, none of these are FDA approved. So good luck. This should improve over time, but right now it's the wild, wild west. So keep that in mind about the antibody tests. 
don't trust too much what the results are. It's more for uh, recreational purposes only. Okay, last coronavirus topic. A consumer topic. It's not about the actual virus itself. I have been a big advocate of chargebacks. I have said that if your airline is not refunding your fare fast enough, charge it back. If a cruise you had booked has been forced canceled on you and is not refunding your fare fast enough, charge it back. If a ticket to an event you bought is not refunding you or not refunding you fast enough, charge it back. There's recent news about Ticketmaster that if the a if an event is postponed or changed, that they will not refund your money. They will only refund your money if it got outright canceled with no make update, which is crappy, especially because there are terms and conditions at the time when you bought the tickets said you'll get a refund if it's postponed or changed or canceled. Now it's just canceled. Now postponed or changed is no longer a reason they will refund you. They won't give you credit. Sucks, doesn't it? So, um, this, this is obviously a big issue. And I've been talking to people who've been in these situations. Fortunately, the only thing I had was that trip to Israel, and I actually did get my money back from the airline. I got it pretty fast, surprisingly. But I, I did not have any event tickets that I had to worry about. And I did not have uh, any crews booked, thankfully. And I didn't have any like non-refundable or non-cancelable hotels booked. So I didn't have a lot of stress with this, but I know others who have. And I've had some frustrating conversations. I've talked to some people who don't want to charge back for stupid reasons. One of them is that we're all in this together. These companies are suffering. This wasn't their fault that there's the coronavirus out there. This is costing them a fortune. Some of them are in dire straits. And that not giving them extra time to refund you or not working with them as far as getting credit instead of a refund is unethical. That all of us being in this together that we need to have some sympathy for these large corporations that are also struggling and we need to cut them some slack. So if all they can do is give us a refund because all they can do is give us some credit instead of a refund because that's all they can really afford. Let's just take it and be understanding. These people say, or if they say it's 90 days to refund you, yeah, it might be true that they're doing this to hold on to the cash as long as possible. Uh, so they don't go under, but Hey, this wasn't their fault. This all happened. So let's cut them some slack and give them the 90 days. It's people who feel really guilty about charging back. I even had someone say that they don't want to cut in line. I said, what do you mean cut in line? They said, well, I was quoted a 90 day refund time. If I do a charge back, I'm going to get it right away. And that's not fair to the people who requested the refund ahead of me. And I'm getting it before them. That's unethical. And my palm hits my face very hard. We also have some people who are afraid to charge back because they think maybe your credit card will consider it fraud or a violation of terms of service or that they're going to revoke your credit card for these behaviors. We've also had some people who are afraid 
the companies that they're charging back against will ban them. So maybe Ticketmaster won't ever let them buy a ticket again. Or StubHub will never let them use the site again. Or the cruise line will ban them from ever sailing on them again. Or the airline won't ever sell them a ticket again. Let me tell you, all of this is incorrect. Let's talk about whether you should cut some slack to the companies. Let's reverse the situation a little bit. Let's say that everything's operating fine, but the coronavirus has affected you personally. For example, uh, let's say your husband lost his job because of the coronavirus. But let's say whatever was going on, the event, whatever is still occurring. Let's just say in a bizarro world where you can still go to events or you can still go on a cruise, but some people lost their jobs having to do with it. I forget the circumstances where that could happen. Let's just pretend it could. Okay. So the corporation isn't really affected. The corporation, they're still putting on the event. Everything's fine for them. You just, you personally cannot go because, uh, your husband lost his job and, and, you need the money back because you can't afford to go to things like concerts or a cruise or a trip anymore. And you ask them, you know, and I'm struggling now because my husband lost my job. Or maybe you lost your own job. Maybe it wasn't even your husband. Maybe you, just, you know, you, someone lost their job as a result of this in your family. And now you can't do it. And now you can't afford this anymore. And you want the money back. You think they're going to give you your money back or feel bad for you? No, I'm sorry. Our cancellation policy says you must cancel by then or you can't cancel this, blah, blah, blah. They wouldn't help you. They wouldn't care. Or let's forget the coronavirus. Let's say you can't go to, on a cruise because your mom's dying of cancer. you got to be with her. You think Your mom's not scheduled to go on the cruise with you, but you, you've got to stay with your mom in her final days. You can't go on this cruise. And it's past any kind of cancel date. You think they're going to give you your money back? No, they're going to say sorry. Should have gotten uh, cruise insurance. So what does this mean? This means they don't give a shit about you. And I said this last week too, but they don't give a shit about you. It's a cold business transaction. You should not have any kind of sympathy for them just as they would have none for you. And just because we're in a situation that affects both sides, it may affect you and them, That does not mean you should have sympathy for them being in this situation, nor should you have sympathy because they did not cause it through any fault of their own. Much like if your mom got cancer, that would not be your fault, and you couldn't go on the cruise. That would not be your fault if you had to be with your dying mom. That would not mean that they would give you a refund or even transfer it to a different cruise the next year. They would say, tough luck. You're out the money. Here's a big middle finger. And not just cruise lines. All, all these businesses would do it. They've got their policies, and they're not going to deviate from them because of your particular side of story. So what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If they are struggling, you should not work with them. You should think of yourself as they would think of themselves and get back what is rightfully yours. And when I say rightfully yours, it is rightfully yours because they cannot provide the service to you that you have paid for. Therefore, you need your money back. Period. So do not cut corporations any kind of slack. Do not let them convince you that you need to wait. Do not wait any longer than three weeks for a refund. If they say any refund is taking more than 21 days, 
Or if it just takes more than 21 days, charge it back. If there's a sudden change in policy where they can't give refunds where before they could, charge it back. Basically, if anything got force canceled on you, that it wasn't your decision, but you actually cannot do this anymore because it got canceled, charge it back if they will not refund you and refund you within a short period of time. And when I say short, I mean three weeks or less. That's where you can cut a little slack. You can say, okay, I'll give up the three weeks because I know there's a lot of refunds to do, but that's it. Three weeks is the maximum. And if they say it's going to be more than three weeks, then believe them and just charge it back. Don't say, well, I'll wait to see if they can really do it in less than three weeks. Now, if they say two to four weeks, then okay, fine, wait the three weeks. But if they say 90 days, don't think it's going to be less than three weeks. It's not going to be, just charge it back. Your credit card won't be revoked. You're not going to be banned. Why won't you be banned? Because... A ton of people are doing this. So they're not going to ban a mass number of people for charging back. They realize this isn't a scam or a fraud. And in fact, they owe you back the money. Or even if they've decided by their new policy, they're not giving you back the money, that their policy when you bought it, they did owe you back the money. There's a lot of people that are going to do this. They are not going to ban anybody. Trust me. And your credit card company will definitely not ban you. It's a free roll. Charge it back. Do not feel bad. Do not feel guilty. And as far as the whole concern, well, what if I'm I'm cutting in front of others? Why should I get my refund now when others who are patiently waiting for 90 days are going to have to wait 90 days? Well, those others could do the same thing as you. They can charge it back too. (laughs) They're choosing to wait 90 days. Everybody has a choice to charge it back. So if someone chooses not to charge it back, then they are choosing to wait 90 days. That is their choice. But... You're not cutting in line because they can do the exact same thing you are if they choose to. It is legal, it is ethical, there is no consequence. So charge it back. Think of yourself, not the big corporations. Care about them as much as they will care about you, which is no care. Okay, final stretch of the show here. We've got a surprising number of people still listening, and I appreciate everybody sticking around with me, at least those of you who are still awake. I know some of our live listening audience is actually an unconscious audience. But that's fine, as long as you're here. Let's break away from the whole coronavirus subject. Well, let's partially break away. Actually, we, we do have one kind of other coronavirus topic, even though it's listed separately. And it's kind of a, a sad and morbid topic. It's about a weekly poker game that turned tragic and I am not happy to be reporting this story but nevertheless it's the sort of thing that needs to be reported here in Florida there was a disaster waiting to happen there was a poker game full of people aged 70 to 94 they were running it every week and they ran it all the way until March 12th Now, I'm sure you can take a guess as to what happened. So they had been uh, running this game. What happened is they got to know each other in South Florida casinos, and some of them were originally from New York City, and they had that in common. So they decided, hey, let's start up our own home game. And they, they had been doing it for many years. So they knew about the coronavirus, but 
like a lot of the country, they weren't taking it as seriously as they should, which was a mistake because they were old and some of them were very old. And on March 12th, they had their final game. Within a few weeks, every single person in that game came down with a coronavirus and three people unfortunately passed away. So the poker game that they all love so much killed three of them and sickened five of them. Marcy Friedman, who was 94 years old, was the first to die. She died on March 28th. And she had underlying heart, lung, and kidney conditions. Now, that was not the smartest decision. At the age of 94, when you have underlying heart, lung, and kidney conditions to play in a home poker game when you know of the coronavirus threat. If I were 94 and had those conditions, uh, I would be afraid to see anyone do anything or uh, even take one step outside my house. Talk about high risk. That's about as high risk as you can get. So she did not make it, uh, Marcy Friedman. At least Marcy Friedman had a long life. I'll give her that. Uh, A couple, Beverly Glass and Fred Sands, they were not married, but they were together for 20 years. They lived in Hollywood, Florida. Beverly Glass was 84. Fred Sands was 86. And they were also regulars in the poker game, this couple. And uh, apparently they were pretty active for people in their mid-80s. But uh, unfortunately, they are not active anymore as both of them died. They were the second and third who died from that game. They began to experience symptoms and they were admitted to the hospital where both tested positive for COVID-19 and they were placed in separate rooms. And uh, what happened was, uh, since they were in separate rooms, uh, one of the kids of these two, and of course the kids are adults because these two were in their mid-80s, one of the kids felt like if they are going to die, that they should be together, and that even if they're not, maybe this will help them recover just being in the same room together. So uh, one of the kids of, of these two made that happen after a lot of hassle, apparently. They had to really hassle the hospital to make it occur. But finally it happened, and uh, they put them in the same room. Unfortunately, neither of them got better. It wasn't because they were in the same room, but they just, uh, just didn't improve. And uh, one of the nurses saw the two holding hands from... Uh, across each other's bed. The beds were close enough, I guess, that they could reach over and hold hands. And uh, the uh, male uh, half of the couple died first. And uh, then the female died uh, shortly after. They both had a heart condition. And uh, the male half of the couple also had... uh, underlying conditions of uh, tightening the arteries and uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So again, people who should not have been in that game. 
They should not have been in any game. They should have been at home away from this. So she died on uh, on March 31st. He died on March 27th. Fortunately, of the eight in the game, all of whom were elderly, five survived. There was uh, one who got really close to death, but managed to survive. I don't know if she ended up on the on a ventilator. But uh, on March 15th, one of the women in the game felt symptoms. Uh, except she was the one who's... Uh, she's in her 70s. She didn't say her name. And uh, she said she felt at one point that she was going to die. But that finally, after nine very, very tough days in the hospital, she started to improve. Her husband, who's in his 80s, actually went through this without getting hospitalized. I don't know how severe it was, but he was able to get through it without hospitalization. It is important to know that neither of them, despite their age, have any of those risk factors. So the three who died were all ones who did have pre-existing conditions. And that is a huge factor. Being old and having a pre-existing condition is a death sentence if you get this thing. Being just old, you have a much better chance. You may also die, but there's a much better chance of living through it, and this game shows that. But they, may all, they all made a mistake. It's tragic, but they all made a mistake. When, March 12th, enough was known about it that you don't screw around if you're old, especially old with these uh, other conditions. But some people kind of feel like, hey, it's, I don't think it's going to happen to me, or I, I think these people are safe and they're fine. What's really disturbing is that they weren't sure they were fine. There were people who were coughing and sneezing in the game, and they, they still continued it. So that nobody was sure they had it yet, but there there was some uh, coughing and sneezing in the game, and no one thought much of it at the time, which is insane. So obviously that's what spread it. They probably coughed and sneezed on each other and on the chips, and there you go. All eight got it, and three of them died. Sad situation. These were low-stakes poker games, by the way. Nobody was making big money there. It's just a social thing they did together of eight old people, most of whom were over 80, and one was as old as 94. This story made uh, MSN because of both the uh, the poker element and the fact that all eight people on the game got it with three dying. It was a pretty big story. Okay, let's... Go to something completely different. Now that I've depressed you with the story of old people dying from playing poker, Poker Stars has been putting on a strange requirement for people to get large cash outs, including well known poker players and ones that had won a lot of money on the site in the past and successfully withdrew, where there should have been no suspicion on them. Some high stakes players are being hit with anti money laundering forms when they attempt to do their cash-out. Even worse, it was reported to me that sometimes there's a big delay to get this whole thing cleared up. It's not like they send you the form and you fill it out and bang, a day later they do the cash-out. Some people have waited for weeks while this is all being processed or even to get the form itself. For some reason, a lot of slowness has been involved. And there's been some consternation about this 
there is a player, I'm not going to name him, I'm not sure if he wants to be named on the show, but there is a player who said that uh, he was very close to coming on this show to call out poker stars because they were delaying a cash out of his for $100,000. And I asked him, have you made similar cash outs before? He said, yes, several times. Never a problem. Everything's always been fine. Never been a suspicion of anything. And they know he's a pro poker player. There's no reason for this. And I agree. It doesn't make any sense why someone who's just been consistently winning, all of a sudden they want to know, how did you get money on here in the first place? Uh, the same way I just won the money <laughs> that I'm cashing out. I won it. I won it elsewhere. I put it on this site and I won more like all pro poker players do. Here's the form. I was sent a copy of this form by this individual. It says on the top, the Stars Group, which is the current name of the company that owns PokerStars. Account funding confirmation form. It says your recent play and or deposit activity requires that we gain additional information in order to fulfill the regulatory requirements that allow us to offer you our gaming services. I love how they blame this on the government. I mean, yes, the very, very basic part of that is true, that they're not doing this for fun. They're doing this because the government requires them to. And it's not the American government. You can't this is not for American poker stars players who play on those state sites. This is the main poker stars that's for the rest of the world. And yes, there are some governments that do require kind of know your customer procedures where they do have to know where the money's coming from. But at the same time, this is something that they're just required to do from the standpoint of if they're asked about it, they have to have a reasonable explanation for why they know their customer. So, for example, if a guy is is putting on millions of dollars and chunking it off constantly and they never bother to ask, hey, where have you gotten the three million you've chunked off on our site? That would be a violation of know your customer. I'm talking in general, not about a specific government, but that in general, that would be a know your customer violation in that they are not curious at all regarding how that person is getting their funds that they are depositing onto the site and losing. And that could easily be money laundering. So they that would be a very reasonable application of this form. But not somebody who deposited whatever initially and has been a consistent winner and has <clears throat> long identified himself as a pro poker player, then you say, okay, well, I know my customer. He's a pro poker player. He's known to be a pro poker player. And he's proven he's a pro poker player because he's winning. And he's cashing out because he's beating people here. So that would validate the fact that this money originally came from winning elsewhere. So that wouldn't make a lot of sense, especially for someone that's been there a while. So if someone just shows up and then happens to win, you could say, okay, this could be chip dumping. This could be uh, he locked into it, but he's this is really some kind of money laundering. But if someone has been around and, gr- and done a lot of grinding and has won a lot of money and is doing 100K cash out, there's nothing much to do to verify source of funds because you know source of funds and you could easily defend that if ever questioned by any government. So so going on, they wrote, we apologize in advance for the inconvenience and would be grateful if you could take a few minutes to provide some further information. All the information will be held in the strictest confidence and secured in cor- accordance with the stringent data protection laws that we adhere to. Please note that this request is part of a normal process required by our regulators to assist in the identification and prevention of money laundering and financial crime, and to ensure that we take appropriate measures to understand and assess our customers' use of funds where relevant. 
and then you have to complete all fields below. Star's ID, meaning your poker star's name, date form completed, full name, date of birth, email address, and then it says, please indicate below how Star's account above was funded. And then you have to put in there where you got the money in one of these categories. You don't have to fill them all out. Just where, wherever you got the money from, you've got to fill out. Salaried employment occupation, self-employment occupation, gambling winnings, but then you have to name where you want it, investments, inv- and then you have to say the investment type. So here when I say like self-salaried employment occupation, you have to say here is how much I made and here's my occupation. Investments, you have to actually say what kind of investment it is. Property sale, you have to actually give the address of the property. <laughs> company sale or dividend realization, you have to give the name of the company. Inheritance, you have to say the relationship to the donor. And other, it says, please provide details. And then you have to put the amount and you have to put the percent of how much that accounted for the funding. So let's say uh, your money came from a combination of an inheritance from your dead uncle and money you made at your job. So let, let's say you're an attorney and you also inherited money from your dead uncle this year and yeah, you say it's about 50-50. But, uh, you deposited 100K, 50,000 came from what you made at your job this year and 50% came from your dead uncle. So you'd put for the salaried occupation, you'd put... You'd put uh, uh, attorney, or I guess that would be self-employed. They wouldn't be salary. Well, I guess it could be either one, depending on who you're working for. But let's just say you're unemployed, or let's say you're self-employed. So you'd put uh, attorney, then you'd have to put annual income. You're not just how much of it is from there, but like the annual income. So let's say you made uh, $300,000, and then percent of funding, you'd put 50, because 50 of that $300,000 is uh, half of the 100000 you deposited. Then other, or not, uh, inheritance, you'd put down uh, inheritance from uh, from uncle, amount received, say uh, $500,000, percent of funding, 50%, because you only use 50000 of that. Now, I don't know how you could determine exactly where that money came from. Like, like, how do you split that up? Like, can you really say, well, this part is from my dead uncle, and this part was from what I made at my job, but maybe they're more saying, like, if you only made... 50k at your job and you deposit 100k well the other 50k came from uh, my dead uncle or something like that but you got to fill out this form then it goes on to say and this is not what you deposit by the way it's not like you deposit this and they go whoa 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 before you play on this site tell us these things they hit this guy with it when he went to go cash out which is very different they went out to write and this is the, when I say they went out to write this is on the form this is not something they wrote to him personally we hope that this will be all the information we need. However, we may require that you provide additional information and documentation to support the entries on this form. Depending upon your future activity, we may need to ask you to resubmit this form to ensure our data remains current and complete. All information collected in this form will be held, accessed, and secured in accordance with relevant data protection laws. And that's pretty much it. Then they just say where to email it. Well, what do I think is happening here? I think sometimes this form is used when suspicious money is coming in. But I also think it's a form that's being used as an excuse to confiscate people's funds. I don't think they're broke and trying to stall. I don't think that's happening. I think they have the money to cover the cash outs. 
But I think that they wonder if they can trip some people up and if they can confiscate money and keep it. So people who are making large cash outs, they may have made a shady and unethical decision at the company to hit people with this form, even ones that had done large cash outs in the past and see what they come back with and see if there's anything they can find in the form that they could deem was either not true or that they could claim was uh, money laundering and then confiscate all the money. So this may be a new income stream and there may be a reason they're hitting people who are doing large cash outs. Now, yes, it would make sense they're not going to hit this form on people who are withdrawing 100 bucks. But but why on withdrawal at all? Why does withdrawal have to do with it? And, and this question came up also with WSOP.com with a totally different matter where they were uh, giving a hard time to uh, some players only upon withdrawal, again, about the legitimacy of the deposit. I think this happened to John Mahaffey where they were saying, well, we want to make sure this wasn't a fraudulent deposit. And he's going, well, wait a minute. That shouldn't matter anymore. Whether I won money or lost money with what I deposited there, the legitimacy of the deposit doesn't really matter because if I'd lost it, then somebody else has it by now. So if you were worried about the legitimacy of this deposit a long time ago, why didn't you ask me then? Why only upon withdrawal do you care if the deposit's legitimate? That sounds like you're trying to prevent withdrawal in some way. And that's a great question. Why do they care about this at this point? Yes, he happened to win, but what if he lost? Then they can't take back the money. If it is money laundering and he lost the money, they can't take it back from who won it from him unless it was chip dumping. So what what can they do at this point? The time to do these know-your-customer type forms is at the beginning when they put the money on. It doesn't make sense when you're trying to take the money off. When you take the money off, the only thing they should want to make sure of is that, number one, it was really you playing, and number two that there was no kind of cheating involved. That should be it. If you legitimately won the money and it was you on the account the whole time, then that should be it. And they were not looking for him to verify it was really him. They said, yes, we know it's you. Yes, we know you didn't cheat. But how did you get the money on here in the first place? Aha! Tell us that. We got you now. So he convinced them, but it took weeks and they were stalling him and they weren't answering him. Why that was happening, I don't know. That may have just been incompetence. But they finally did. And, and, and keep in mind, he started to threaten that he's going to expose this. And he may have even mentioned this show because I told him he could do that. So I don't know. He even asked, uh, can I send them an email and say that I'm going to put it on the show? I go, sure. You want me to? Okay. I, it, it, it ended up not coming to that because he got the money. But I said, yeah, sure. You want me to email PokerStars and say we're going to feature this guy on the show if you don't give him his money? Okay. I'll even offer that they can come on and defend it if they want. But this really looks to me like a way they can legally but very unethically confiscate money that's being withdrawn. You can always recognize that when they care more about withdrawal than deposit, even if it's a deposit manner. They should only care if the deposit's legit when you're depositing, not when you're withdrawing, especially when you're withdrawing money that you won. It's not even withdrawing the same money that you deposited. It's the money you've won. Presumably, 
Actually, I, th- I think he was taking off the majority of what he had there because I think he's coming back to the U.S. for a while or something. I forgot this guy's personal story. But I don't think that was it. I just think that he – I asked, have you done large cash outs before? He said yes. I was very clear about that question, and he gave me an answer. Because if this is his first, like, 100K withdrawal, I'd understand. But it's still kind of weird to do this at this point with the withdrawal. But I can understand some caution being exercised for 100K withdrawal, but – now he's done a bunch of them and they've been fine. So that's very weird. All right, uh, moving on to our next topic. Would have been more interesting if he didn't get his money, but moving on to our next topic. I'm glad he did. Daniel Negranu no longer represents poker stars. He's represented GG Poker, you know, the place that is super user-friendly. He meant super user-friendly, but he said it quickly. It's super user-friendly. They have made a partnership with the World Series of Poker to provide the Super Circuit Online Series. Not the Super User Circuit Online Series, but the Super Circuit Online Series. Two weird things about this. Number one, why are they doing this on GG Poker instead of their existing software partner, 888? Why not? Why aren't they doing this on WSOP.com? Big question number one. And, and big question number two... Like, either do WSOP.com or 888.com if they want to do it internationally. But but number two, how come their Super Circuit Online series, which some might think is a replacement in some way for the World Series of Poker, which is very unlikely to take place, why would they be doing something like this that Americans cannot play on? And they don't explicitly state this in their literature about it, and that becomes very, I shouldn't say suspicious, but clearly they don't, they don't want to highlight that, that it's not going to have Americans. L- listen to this weird press release. And this is the first time they've partnered, to my knowledge, GG Poker and WSOP. So this is very strange. They have an existing partnership with 888, but... Instead, they're doing this on GG Poker, and Americans can't play. This is really odd. And it's not called the, the, the European Circuit Series or anything like that. Or if this is just the Super Circuit Online Series. GG Poker and World Series of Poker today announced that they have signed an agreement to see the World Series of Poker Super Circuit Online Series debut on the global-facing GG Poker Network. Hmm. Global-facing. Except uh, the U.S. is not part of the globe, apparently. The global facing except the U.S. Just wipe them off the map. The online poker tournament series will consist of hundreds of individual events. A coveted World Series of Poker circuit ring will be awarded to the winner of 18 headline WSOP Super, super Circuits online series tournaments. As is customary with the offline WSOP circuit events, the WSOP circuit online series will also extend two invitations to the million-dollar free roll for the World Series of Poker Global Casino Championship official bracelet event, one to the main event winner and one to the overall series points leader. Now, this is not a million-dollar buy-in. It's a million-dollar free roll with a total prize pool. Tournaments will begin in early May and continue for approximately three weeks. A full tournament schedule will be announced soon. WSOP circuit tournaments were first held in 2005. Blah, blah, blah. They're giving the, the, the history of that. Uh, the move online to GG Poker means that many more players from across the globe will get in on the thrilling WSOP circuit action, all from the comfort and safety of their own homes. 
GG Poker players will also be able to qualify for WSOP circuit events via satellite tournaments, ensuring a shot at big prizes and WSOP glory for a potentially low buy-in. Okay, but notice they have not mentioned once, sorry, this is not open to Americans. This is for those outside of America. They're not even saying, like, we're extending this opportunity to those who are not in the U.S. and don't normally get to play circuit events. That, that would be the truth. But instead, they're talking about how it's global, and it, it's they're leaving a big thing out. In fact, I had to read it a few times to make sure there wasn't some way they were able to do this in the U.S. or in Nevada. I had to really make sure this is only going to be outside the U.S., and they still don't state it. I just figured out that's what it is. Jean-Christophe Antoine, the head of GG Poker, said... I'm thrilled to reveal that GG Poker will be has, will be hosting the Super Circuit Online Series in partnership with the World Series of Poker. A GG Poker and WSOP partnership brings together two like-minded global organizations, and I can't wait to see GG Poker players competing for WSOP Circuit Rings Online. Ty Stewart, the big head of the World Series of Poker, said... We're thrilled to partner with an operator on the rise who is both aggressive and passionate about growing poker engagement around the world. It was unfortunate we were forced to cancel so many offline WSOP circuit events this spring, but with the vast reach GG Poker plans to dwarf the prize pools of the suspended events all at once in one truly super WSOP circuit. Daniel Negranu, ambassador of GG Poker, added, I give credit to the WSOP for bringing the circuit online during these trying times. Winning a circuit ring is a great honor. Online players will love the experience of chasing rings at GG Poker. (sighs) I mean, sure. I'm not against this. It's just kind of weird. The way they're presenting it. And the fact that they're partnering with a different site than who provides their software for WSOP.com. Very strange. I wonder if they're going to use GG Poker software once their contract with 888 expires. I've never used that software, but maybe they maybe they realize it's better, or maybe they like the company better, and maybe they're like, you know what, GG, let's do this here, and as soon as our contract with 888 expires, we will move to your software for the U.S. version of our sites. And maybe if we get in more and more states, then GG Poker can be the software that we go with. In fact, it could be in that direction. 888 Poker software kind of sucks balls. It really does. It's it's very inferior to PokerStars. I haven't used GG Poker software. Daniel Negrano says it's super user-friendly. That's enough for me. But maybe that's pretty good software. And I say this without ever having seen it or used it. But maybe it's pretty good software, and maybe it could compete with PokerStars, and maybe that's the plan, so PokerStars does not crush WSOP software-wise. Maybe even in Pennsylvania, World Series of Poker would like to make some inroads there. They do have a casino in Pennsylvania, so they could get a license. So maybe they want to compete in Pennsylvania, especially seeing how well PokerStars is doing. Maybe they will launch a GG Poker product in the U.S. in states where it is licensed and regulated, which of course would have to be separated from the main GG Poker, just like uh, PokerStars is. But maybe that is the ultimate plan. Maybe this is the start of them separating from 888, which wouldn't be the worst thing because 888 kind of sucks. The software's crap. It's not horrible, but it's not very good. And to be honest, it's it's not the features are not very good or interesting, and it's inferior in many ways. And I'm not kidding to 
2003 poker stars. And when the software in 2020 is inferior to some software products available in 2003 of the same type, that's bad news. So that might be in the plans. And maybe Negranu facilitated this somewhat. I'm not even kidding. I'm not saying he was the one behind it, but maybe the fact that Negranu was the face of GG Poker, maybe there was more than one reason to hire him. I had wondered, why are they hiring Negranu? And yeah, he has some international appeal, but he's still uh, American, Canadian type player. Like GG Poker's main market is in Europe. So why is Negranu the one they're going for, presumably for a lot of money? And maybe the plan is to come to the U.S. through these legalized and regulated sites and replacing 888. Maybe they were already in talks to do that. And maybe they weren't in talks to do that, but maybe Negranu went to Ty Stewart because Negranu has a good relationship with them, with the World Series of Poker I'm talking about. He, he has a good relationship. He has a lot of influence at the World Series of Poker. So maybe he went to them. Maybe he went to Ty Stewart and said, hey, you know, this 888 software you have sucks balls. Uh, why don't you switch to GG when you get a chance to, when your contract's up? Why don't you talk to them? And Ty may have said, okay, well, let's arrange this. So maybe that's what happened. I mean, there's a lot of ways this could have gone, but this is a little bit weird. But I'm willing to entertain it. And if it does result in a software switch, I think it's probably good. GG Poker's a newer product. And I know it's grown very fast. It must be because people like it. And I'm guessing that there's probably going to be some positives if they do make such a switch. So we shall see. Okay, final topic. I want to give a movie review. Seven Days to Vegas was a film that came out in late 2019. It was Vince Van Patten's project. And he was the star of Seven Days to Vegas. I'm not going to give the movie away. Uh, in fact, I encourage you to watch it. It was a decent movie. I'll just start off right away if you don't want to listen to the whole review. If you're tired of the eight hours of content I've been providing you for free, you can turn this off and turn on Amazon Prime if you have it. Just go on Amazon Prime, go on your account and search for Seven Days to Vegas and you will see that you can watch it in high def for free. For no money. Zero dollars, zero cents. So it's a decent movie, especially if you like poker. So I'll just start out with a very quick summary. I mentioned this on the show back in November when Vince Van Patten was going a lot of places to promote it. I should have tried to get him on this show, but kind of blew that. I don't really know him, but... Maybe I could have made contact. But anyway, he uh, he was promoting it, and uh, I saw some articles about it. So uh, I said, sure, I'll watch it for free. In fact, I, I kind of meant to pay the four bucks to watch this originally when it came out, when it was new, back in November. I just kind of forgot. Yes, this price was right. Yes, I'm kind of happy now. I saved the four bucks, and... In fact, had something extra to watch during this uh, coronavirus shutdown, so it all kind of worked out. But this wasn't the reason. I, I didn't say I'm not going to watch it because it's $4. I just you know, I just kind of forgot about it. And there, was, there was less motivation. Let's just say that. I, if it was free, I would have remembered it's free. I would have said, oh, sweet, it's free. When it's 4 bucks, it's like something I'll do, but I'm not like dying to do. 
I kind of just forgot about it. But I did watch it for free here this past week. And I, I wasn't sure what I would think of it. I, I'd heard fairly good things, but I didn't hear like it was great and I'm going to love it. So I, I went in believing I'll probably like it. I thought I'd probably, I thought my reaction to it would probably range between okay and good, but not great. And it fell on the higher end of that. It fell on the good end. So it wasn't great, but it was good. And it was entertaining. And, uh, I can give this much away. The main character that is played by Vince Van Patten is making a prop bet to walk to Vegas in seven days. And there's a lot more to it than that. And the prop bet actually doesn't start until somewhat into the movie. But it's still not giving away because that's the whole theme of the movie. It's what's called Seven Days to Vegas. It's not hard to figure out. It's about prop betting. And it's about a guy getting to Las Vegas. It's obvious that's what it's about. But uh, the premise itself didn't sound that exciting to me. I'm not a big prop bet guy. I never make them. And I'm not excited by them. There's some people who just love prop bets. They love making them. They love watching them. They like hearing about them. I'll find them mildly interesting to hear about. But I'm not really that fascinated by prop bets. That's just me. It's just something that's... If there's a really interesting prop bet story, I'll listen to it, but it's not something that really gets me really going, okay? So that by itself made me think, okay, do I really want to see this? And, you know, in some ways it sounds a little bit tedious to watch some guy walking to Vegas and can he make it? And I mean... I don't know. There's been premises for gambling movies that have excited me a lot more than this. But at the same time, I heard good things about it, and I heard it kind of had like a comedy element to it in a way, and I heard that people enjoyed it. So I said, okay, I'll give it a chance. One of the things that immediately concerned me, and it's it's a weird thing to be concerned about, it's something you'd only be concerned about if you live either in L.A. or Vegas, but and most people wouldn't be anyway, but I mentioned this earlier in the show. I don't like when there's phony routes to Vegas depicted on TV. I don't like when the drive to Vegas, when it's like that's part of a big plot point. I've never seen a movie about a walk to Vegas, but a movie about a drive to Vegas, I hate where like on a desolate road in the middle of nowhere, uh, someone is, is kidnapped and it looks nothing like the real drive to Vegas, which has a lot of people on it and it's on major highways. It just, it's just so non-authentic to me. I can't even relate to it. I can't even suspend my disbelief. I go, no, this isn't a drive to Vegas. No, this, this it wouldn't be like this. It would be hard to kidnap someone from I-15, and if you did, there'd be a lot of people seeing it. Like, you, know, you couldn't pull this off in the middle of the day, and it just, it's, it's hard to even picture. It's hard to even say, like, it's hard to, like, relate that the, the real person's even really driving to Vegas. So I did wonder what they're going to do with this, because I knew that the walk was from the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles, which is like northern Los Angeles, to Vegas. And I'm very familiar with that route. And I thought, uh-oh, well, they can't film on I-15. I know that much. And yes, if you go from the valley, you do often, as Trader Ruski talked about, go th- through the back way, the Palmdale way, especially if you're in the North Valley. You would go up through... Uh, 
uh, up on the, the the 118 and and up the 14 through Newhall and then get through through a Palmdale and then start going east on uh, on Pear Blossom Highway and eventually reach Victorville. And you don't join the 15 until you've gone all the way through Victorville. And then you continue the way everybody else goes north all the way to Vegas in the 15. That would be driving there. So I said, okay, if he's walking there, yeah, they could show him going the back way and he wouldn't be on the 15 and he would be on some of these small roads. So, okay, but like once he's in Victorville, the rest would be on the 15 and like, what are they going to do about this? But it is walking, not driving. So they actually did a good job with this. This was actually pretty authentic. And for those of you out of the area, it's not going to mean much, but wherever they placed him, they said where he was. They said where he stopped overnight. And remember, this was like a lot of it was kind of a comedy. It wasn't supposed to be like a serious uh, documentary of him uh, walking to Vegas by any means. But they, they, he'd say where he stopped, and he'd say where he is, and they'd show various landmarks that he was at, and it was all accurate. Like they were, they were very good at keeping this accurate. And even these roads that he would take that weren't the fifteen, they had a good backstory to them. Oh, I decided to take this because it's a shortcut. Well, even if it wasn't a shortcut, if as long as it was like right along the main highway, I was fine with that. And they were real roads. So all the way through Baker, which is about 90 miles from Vegas, I felt they did that, that part very well. And in fact, they worked it into the story and they had some interesting landmarks there. And I thought, and it looked like they really filmed them in these places. They weren't just pretending certain places were other places. It looked like they really were in the places they claimed to be, or at least most of it was. So I said, oh, cool. They didn't have to do it this way, but they actually put some effort into some on-location shooting and, and keeping this geographically accurate for the, a walk from L.A. to Vegas. And you may say, oh, who cares about geographical accuracy? It's a freaking movie. Well, because if you know the route from L.A. to Vegas like the back of your hand like I do, it, it's bothersome to watch when the route he's walking is fake. That's why, at least to me. Now, once he got to Baker, the problem, because... Between Baker and the state line of Nevada, which is about a 50-mile stretch, there is no direct route that follows the 15. You have to either take the 15 or go on this really, really out-of-the-way route in the middle of nowhere, which would add a ton of extra miles to do it, and nobody walking there would ever uh, take all those extra miles to go that way. So they couldn't even explain it in any way. So how did they explain it? They did not. They just invented a fake road that was supposedly between uh, Baker and the state line. <laughs> so that was the only part that they deviated. But it's understandable because there's no way out of it. So I, other than that, I'm I'm impressed. They they had a backstory why he was always on the side roads. It, they, it all that part they did as well as they could have. So good job. Um, now what about the rest of it besides the geographical accuracy? What what about how I felt about it? Well, I'm not going to give anything away. I, I will say that there were some predictable elements to it, even ones that uh, you couldn't predict from the beginning of the movie because there's some twists that came in. But even once the twists came, you could kind of guess what would happen from that point. So that was one flaw it had. But on the other hand, it did have some creative twists to it. It flowed very well. It held my interest. I felt the characters were interesting. The dialogue was good. Uh, there was something that bothered the shrink who listens to this show and also posts on the forum. He's from uh, Canada. He's from Eastern Canada. 
And he always watches these poker movies and, and comments on them. He always posts some good commentary on this stuff. So he watched this, and he commented after I posted my mini-review on the forum, which is much less extensive than what I'm giving you here. And he said it annoyed him that they put in a totally pointless cameo for Phil Locke, Antonio Asfandiari, and Jennifer Tilly. And he said uh, there was a scene where someone says, and then poker pros Phil Locke and Antonio Asfandiari showed up. And yeah, that's totally what they did. They just dropped them in a scene for no good reason. Like, oh, they just showed up. They were interested in what's going on here. And they just showed up. And then they're in a totally pointless scene just to have a gratuitous scene with two known poker pros and the actress girlfriend of one of the poker pros. That was the only reason they were there. They added nothing to the plot. I guess also that they could put Jennifer Tilly as one of the stars, which she wasn't one of the stars. She was just barely in it. But there was a whole point of them there. It was really a cameo, and they were their cameo was pointless. He compared it negatively to the famous Johnny Chan cameo in Rounders. And that cameo was important to the plot, and that was memorable, and that was a good scene. And the shrink, he said that, and I agree, that the the Johnny Chan appearance in Rounders wasn't just gratuitous. Uh, that had to do with the story. And that was cool to see him there. But just to gratuitously drop a few poker names there was really lame. The good news was this only happened once, and the rest of the time they didn't do it. And uh, and they had some references to – they didn't appear in this, but uh, Doyle Brunson and uh, Puggy Pearson, of course, who couldn't appear in it because he's dead. But they showed pictures of them. So that part wasn't that bad because they just made quick references and showed pictures of them. I don't mind that. It's just these gratuitous appearances by poker pros. Like, oh, look. Oh, 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 that's a real poker pro. Phil Locke. Oh, oh, oh. oh look, Jennifer Tilly this girlfriend. Oh, oh, oh. Like, I mean, maybe it's much less lame to somebody who's not a poker player. But to me, I'm like, oh, come on. And that's how he felt, too. And keep in mind, this is coming from me, who personally likes Phil Locke. I've always personally liked Phil Locke. And when I say personally liked, I mean in my interactions with him in person he's he's someone i know i'm not close friends with him by any means but uh but i know him he knows me and and we're always friendly when we see each other and he's always been very nice to me so i i think good things about phil Locke, but i don't need to see his pointless cameo in a movie like yeah i know you're a known poker player phil lock good job i know a lot of people in poker know who you are great job but you don't need to be in this movie unless there's a reason for you <laughs> that was one kind of dumb thing well, it didn't completely detract from it because it was a small scene, but just don't have this type of stuff. Come on. I, I The movie was smarter than that. That's the sad thing. Like it, it wasn't a really complex or intellectual movie by any means, but it was a, a clever and smart movie in some ways. And this is kind of lowest common denominator stuff of, oh, look, let's put some poker pro cameos in here for no reason. Like that's what you'd see. In, in, in a really dumb poker film, like like Lucky You or something like that, <laughs> that's where you'd expect it to be. It shouldn't be here, and and Vince Van Patten should have known better. Even if he's friends with Phil and Antonio, just if you're going to put them in there, then write a good scene for them. Don't just stick them there so we can say they were in the movie. But other than that, I, I thought the movie was good, and a lot of the things you see at the beginning end up 
making a difference for the end. So uh, a lot of things all come together by the end. It was a satisfying watch. It was an entertaining watch. I never found myself bored. That's good. And I didn't often find myself saying, oh, this is stupid or inauthentic. Uh, was it a perfect depiction of poker players? And the, the under, it was more of like underground, like high-stakes home game world that was fictitious. But was it depicted totally correctly? No. Did it have to be? No. I mean, they can take some dramatic license with things like that. It doesn't bother me. But it, it was close enough to what nothing was ridiculous as far as how that went. And yeah, some of the prop betting they showed at the beginning was over the top, but whatever. Again, dramatic license, it's fine. They're not even telling a true story. They, they claimed it was based on a true story, but not really. It's based on an old story from decades ago. And they even admit that at the, at the beginning of the film. That it kind of worked in there how they, they kind of based the bet that was made on something from a long time ago. So, whatever. It's not really true. I did laugh because watching the movie, I'm, I was kind of wondering, okay, so how old is Vince Van Patten's character supposed to be? They, they don't explicitly say for a while. Now, I didn't know Vince Pat, Van Patten's exact age. I, I thought, okay, what is he, like late 50s? Well, okay, so he's early 60s. And, I think he was 63 or something now. So, okay. He looks decent for his age. But uh, the age of the character he was playing, and he said this kind of towards the end of the movie, the age of the character he was playing was 48. (laughs) Vince, you look good for your age. You don't look 48. When I heard 48, I'm like, come on. He doesn't look 48. Maybe a... 48-year-old with a hard life. I mean, I guess the guy kind of did have a hard life, the characters. Maybe, maybe it fits, but I was like, come on, Vince, don't flatter yourself with 48. Be like, uh, what, if, what if I cast myself in a movie I wrote, and then at the end I go, yeah, you know, in all my 33 years, I've, I've never had anything like this. You'd be going, come on, you'd be throwing things at the screen. Go, this guy's not 33. It's kind of the same way. You know, like, I, I, I didn't buy he was a 48-year-old. And there's no reason to make him 48. There was nothing about the movie that had to place him at that age. I think he, I think he made himself 48 because he wanted to be 48. But that was funny because that's exactly what I am. And here's, here he's 48. Go, come on, this guy is not my age. He doesn't look my age. He doesn't look like one of my peers from my own age group. He does not. He looks older than me. He doesn't look like he'd be my dad, but he he's, he doesn't look my age. That That, that was kind of stupid. Character actor Willie Garson, who is a short, bald, nebbishy Jewish guy, I felt was kind of wasted. If you watched the new version of Hawaii Five O, which ran for ten years and just finished up about uh, two weeks ago, it, it's been canceled after ten years. Uh, he was a character who appeared on and off on the show in the final seasons. He's always played. Like this kind of short comedy relief, bald Jewish guy who complains a lot. And that kind of was his character in this. But then you see him at the beginning and you don't see him again. He disappears, which I I thought was too bad. I thought he would have been a good character to have in this movie because this movie had a lot of kind of weird characters in it. Uh, One of the 
gimmicks of the movie was everybody had their own little quirk in this movie. They they showed he had some quirks, this character he was playing, and then they underused him. They just left him out of the rest of the movie, which is weird. I, I was sure that I even saw him as one of the stars of it, and then he was barely in it. So I don't know if maybe his scheduling prevented that. Who knows? Maybe Hawaii 5.0 got in the way. I don't know. But maybe he didn't have time to do more of it than he did. But I'm like, why even have him in the movie? And then he really doesn't have much of a role. He said the beginning and kind of just disappears. His character wasn't super important, but it was a character that I could have seen, like, been there the whole way and fit in well, and then just wasn't, just vanished. I, I guess in some way I'm saying more critical things than good things, but overall I, I thought it was pretty good. Dive Bar Dave, when I listened to the show, commented, I watched it, I like Vince Van Patten, so he carried it for me. I enjoyed seeing Paul Walter Hauser from the Richard Jewell movie, which I thought was one of the most underrated movies of 2019. Uh, Paul Walter Hauser was in the whole movie, so he had a big role. So uh, it seems like most people on the forum enjoyed it. It seems like the consensus is pretty consistent that people liked it, didn't absolutely love it, but liked it. And I, I think this really is that type of movie, which is not going to get a lot of people saying, oh, this sucks. And it's not going to get a lot of people saying, wow, this is the greatest thing I've seen. It's going to be one of these things like, yeah, oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, I enjoyed it. But the best thing is it's free. It's free on Amazon Prime, which probably most of you have. So you can do something with that damn Prime membership. You can't get anything in two days anymore. That's, that's all out the window. No more two-day delivery. So... Why even have Prime? Well, I'll tell you why. Because you can watch free movies like this. And it just recently got moved to free Amazon Prime. So I've already had people thank me for it. Like, oh, thanks for telling me. I've, I've wanted to see that, but I didn't want to pay the $4. <laughs> I have a feeling this thing lost money because they couldn't get this into theatrical release, and they tried. This wasn't intended to be uh, just streaming only. This was intended to be a theatrically released movie, and they could not do so. They tried. No one was interested. I think, actually, it, it could have done decently. It wouldn't have been a gigantic smash hit. But as The Shrink pointed out, the production quality was pretty good. Like, the production quality was good enough to justify it being in theaters. It looked like more of a high-budget film from the – I wouldn't say high-budget, but it looked like a, a, a theatrical-budget-type film rather than uh, an independent film with the production quality. And uh, this had pretty good production quality, and I think it could have succeeded in theaters. And you didn't have to know a lot about poker to be entertained by it. You could know very little about poker and be entertained by it. And it's not that much about poker. It's more kind of about characters and prop bets. and It's stuff that the general person, the average person can relate to, and, and the, one good thing is there weren't, like, dramatic poker scenes. That, that's so played out. I'm so tired of seeing, like, two people playing heads up for all the money. And, oh, what's the card that's going to hit the river? Oh, a royal flush beats quads. Oh, my God. It's always like a hand like that. It's never like a, it's, it's never like a pair beats ace high. It's not like someone goes all in with threes against ace king and the threes hold up. It's, it's always the dramatic thing where some huge hand beats another huge hand. And we all know that's not the way it works. Like, even if there's a bad beat, it's rarely like a... Super monster hand against a super monster other hand. It's, it would be more like 
like the ace king against the threes that an ace flops and a three hits the river. But like to the general audience who doesn't understand poker that well, they'll go, okay, so the winning hand was only three of a kind? Well, that's kind of boring. So, so they have to make it like a royal flush beating four of a kind. Oh, my God. But it, it's so painful to watch that type of thing when you're watching dramatized poker. So fortunately, that didn't take place here. They didn't do any of that in this movie. And uh, we saw some poker player towards some poker play towards the beginning, but they didn't really show like the way the hands played out very much. And that's a good thing. We we don't need to see that. There's been enough of that already. And I think Vince Van Patten realized that. He also had his brother starring it, by the way. So that uh, his brother also had a very big role. So this is something he's wanted to do. Uh, this specific movie idea, I mentioned this back in November. The funny thing is, uh, I went to go back, I went back to listen to my old segment about it after I watched it. I watched it, I'm like, well, now I want to hear what I said about it before watching it and see how it matches up to the experience I had. So I went back and listened to my own segment from back in November, and I said something that I didn't remember knowing. I learned something for myself, which strangely happens to this show, or from this show, when uh, I go back and listen to old things I did. But this wasn't even that old. It was back in November. Somehow I forgot it already. But I said in November and told myself that apparently he came up with this idea by uh, because he was watching other poker movies. He didn't say which one or ones, but that other poker movies sucked. And that he decided it's time a good one is made. And then they were like thinking of ideas and then thought about this prop bet thing and went from there. So he said they wouldn't have made this movie if they hadn't seen some kind of awful poker movie that made them comment, huh, you know, every every poker movie that's been made recently and semi-recently has been awful. So let's make one that's not awful. So, then, so they did. And I'll give him credit, it wasn't awful. So good job, Vince Van Patten. And that is my movie review of Seven Days to Vegas. And it's free. That's the best part. It's free. Unless you don't have Amazon Prime. Then borrow somebody else's account. I I think you can't download it for free. Meaning I don't think you can save it on your computer unless you use one of some kind of a shenanigans video capturer, which you can probably get. But uh, as far as Amazon's concerned, I don't think they're going to let you uh, download it and save it for free. But you can watch it for free in full. And there's no commercials or any BS like that. It really is streams the full movie to you uh, in high definition, or at least semi-high definition. I didn't check the resolution. But there you go. So, that's our show. I have more energy now than I expected I would at the end of this whole thing. We've been on a very long time. Now I must engage in the arduous task of editing this show, which is so long, it's going to take a while. But, hey, that is what I must do. Let's see if there's any text messages worth reading here that came through. I haven't been checking that in a while. I'll take a quick glance at the chat room. Uh, from the... Uh, this is from Jeff Dime, actually. The guy who tipped us off to Christopher Mitchell. He said, uh, Druff, great show. I'm in New York, so I haven't s- slept. 
the show's been great, and now I can get into the grocery store early when it's pretty empty, so thanks. I actually kept him up all night. I feel kind of guilty. But I guess he's getting to the grocery store early. I, I, I wonder if I scared him away from Instacart after that story I told about that. Uh, sorry Christopher Mitchell's segment took so long, but it was hilarious. If I find something show-worthy again, I'll try and find one that can be a short topic for you to balance it out. Now, I, yeah, don't worry about that. I, it's my decision to make it go long. So it's not your fault. I don't want to blame you for making it long. That was, a, that was my doing. Wanted to let you know I had booked my flight to Vegas with Delta for the summer and decided to call this morning for a cash refund. They said no problem, but the refund could take up to 30 days. Wait a minute. They, they actually let you get a refund without them canceling it on you? I didn't know you could do that. So they are doing the right thing with the cash refund, but the 30 days seems pretty ridiculous. I hate to defend Delta here, but if it's your choice to cancel it, the 30 days is not ridiculous. You should be happy they're doing it at all. If they cancel it on you, the 30 days sucks big time. But if if uh, you're canceling on them and they're giving you a cash refund with no penalty, uh, you should be kissing their feet because they don't have to do that. I think I speak for most that we appreciate the long shows that can give us content throughout the week. I know it's got to be a pain in the ass for you, but thanks very much. Yes, it is a pain in the ass for me, but I'm glad you appreciate it. It's a pain in the ass for my family, too, because not only do I disappear when I go do this, but then, like, I sleep all day afterwards because uh, I'm up so late with this. So it affects two days. Then he said, uh, quick correction, the email I got from Delta said they'll make every effort to f- refund the fare within seven days, but because of overwhelming demand, I'm taking 30 days. Well, I, I got a Delta refund, and it took, I don't know, 10 days, which I thought was fine, and my flight was canceled, so I, I think you're in good shape. I thought they were delaying you extra because you canceled on them. Uh From the 507, Druff, I hope you're drinking water. You've been talking for a long-ass time. Yeah, I've been drinking water. The more important thing I've been doing is during those breaks, I've been doing that uh, rinse that actually helps a lot, that uh, dry mouth rinse. From the 505, reopening the casinos will only bring the degens back. Even then, once winter hits, I'm not going anywhere near the casino. This guy's from Vegas, by the way, even though he's got the 505 area code. I know who it is. And, uh, well, I, I, I think you should Keep your ass away, even in the summer, unless this thing really disappears. As far as, will it bring the degenerates back? Yes, there will be people who will rush to Vegas as soon as, as, soon as they can and don't care about the danger. Uh, what about non-degenerates? I think they're going to kind of wait and see. They're, they're going to think, okay, um, let's see if anyone's getting sick from this or if it's all right. And if most people are okay, then they'll return. And if there's a lot of coronavirus cases, they won't. I think a lot of the public's going to go, okay, they're opening Vegas. Let's see how it goes three weeks from now. And if people aren't sick with the coronavirus, then fine. Because remember, there's the incubation period, which can be long. So you've got to wait to see what happens from there. And of course, the coronavirus doesn't announce, I got, I infected this person in a casino. So it's also hard to tell. Oh, um, I don't know why I thought that Mayor Goodman in Las Vegas is Oscar Goodman's daughter. It's Oscar Goodman's wife. I did not know that. I always thought that was his daughter. Oops. Well, thank you for correcting me from the 702 area code. In the 773, what about the story where you got banned from the casino? Okay, I'm going to tell that soon. I'm not going to tell this show because I'm, I'm sick of talking, but uh, I'm, I'm just going to spill it soon. What happened? I don't because of this whole shutdown and everything, it's going to be 
I, I won't even be able to make any progress here with this. And you know what? I, I'm just going to tell the story next time. From the 702, a different 702 number. Uh, Todd, after conferring with Belly Buster and hearing him, when did you hear him? I mean, he's called a while ago, but uh, I donate my $25 last week prize back. Crypto transfer will have to wait. Oh, that's from uh, Mark from New York, the uh, the dealer who deals with the World Series and manages to get me at least once every series. And every time that guy deals me good cards, except when I need it at the most, day five of the main event, and he deals my set to Hossein Ensan. I got a pocket pair. Hossein got a pocket pair. Someone else got a high pocket pair, which fortunately wasn't me. Uh, a bunch of other people came along with I don't know what, and of course Ensan flops the set, and of course he doesn't get it cracked, and of course he wins a monster pot, and of course I have to check fold the flop because my uh, eights or whatever the hell I had didn't go anywhere. I think he, I think he flopped a set of threes. Whatever, you know. I, I don't blame you, Mark. Though it, it was Hossein's time to win. It wasn't just you, obviously. It was only day five, and you left the table, and Hossein continued to just run insane and. He played well, but he ran very well, as you have to, to win the main event. So I, I guess that was out of your hands. I guess I can forgive the one time you don't deal me good cards, because Hossein Ensan was at the table next to me, who went on to win that event. Okay. At least I didn't bust there. They say I didn't run bad with him, I just didn't really do anything. I just kind of spun my wheels. When he sat down, I'm like, oh, sweet, this is what I need. This is what I, I always win when he deals to me. But not on day five of the main event. Okay. Uh, from the 602, Todd, with new mask rules going into effect, do you think the World Series of Poker or WPT will change their stance on covering your face at the poker table? What about TSA checkpoints? Will you be allowed to wear your mask to cover the majority of your face to avoid po- being positively ID'd? Uh, I think at TSA checkpoints, they'll just say, pull down the mask so we can see you. It says some of these masks people are wearing are like gas chamber masks. Yeah, but they'll just say pull them off at TSA. I, I think with poker tournaments, yeah, it's possible they will suspend the rule and let people play with masks on. Whatever to make it happen again. They're they're desperate to make these go. So, yeah, I could see them saying, you know what? Screw facial tells. You can wear a mask if that will make it go again. From the 224 Referring to the Instacart thing, it matters how far you are from the store, too. These people have to shop, bag, put in vehicle, and bring to you. If you tipped huge, you would get it. A lot of people are bait tipping and pulling it back after, but I think that's shitty. Anyway, good luck. Well, yeah, uh, I wouldn't bait tip. I wouldn't uh, tip something and revoke it unless the person didn't do a good job. And I don't just mean, like, minor issues would happen this time. Uh, I mean, like... uh, they really screwed something up or were rude or whatever, then I would r- lower the tip, but otherwise I would leave the tip what I said. Um, one of these places was far from me, and one of them was not at all. But they both came the same day, so I don't think that had to do with it. Let's see what else we got here. You know, he may not agree with me. I don't, you, you don't have to agree with me. If you're on the same side politically as me, you still may disagree with my assessment of this. There's a lot of people, a lot of Republicans who don't agree with me on this one, but I think many should reconsider. Well, that's it for my text messages. It's very late. It's late for me. It's early for many others. I haven't gone to sleep yet, obviously. I'm glad I kept 
Jeff Dime up long enough so he can go to the store early and find things in the store. Hopefully he doesn't catch the coronavirus. And I don't I don't know what I'm going to do about groceries in the future. This is uh, bothersome. You know what else is bothersome? While I'm here, I'm just going to complain about one thing before I shut down the shop. Last night, the games were really, really good on Bovada. And I played. And... I started off losing. <laughs> Don't laugh at me. That's that's not supposed to come on. So I started off playing, and I, I was immediately losing, but not all that much, but I was immediately losing. And then I started to win, which I was kind of expecting, because the competition in that game was not good. It was a mixture of Kind of like mediocre and kind of bad players. But there really weren't good players there with me. That's a game I usually do great in, if it's like that. An absence of good players, which this game had. So I started to lose, but then I started to win. Then I started to win more. Then I won back what I lost. And then I uh, I, I was up. And I, I'll, I'll be honest, I'll give you numbers. I, I was down starting about like 1,500. And then I was up about eh, 2,300. So I was feeling good that I had erased the deficit. I was up 2,300. I was stomping on the game and everybody busted except for one person who then sat out and ran off. So I was about to close the software and then the guy sat back down, which I, I wasn't 100% sure it was him, but I had a feeling it was and indeed it was. So the, the guy who sat back down with me was not very good. Wasn't a horrible player, but he wasn't very good. And I knew playing heads up against him that I had a big edge, unfortunately, he starts out immediately by bad beating me and then just continues to catch better every hand. And I just lose, lose, lose. And heads up when you catch something, but they catch better is a disaster. And that kept happening. Well, then a third person sat down. I'm like, okay, I'm, not, I'm actually not even that bothered to see this because it kind of shakes things up a bit. And that's fine. So we play. Well, now the third person's kicking ass and he's beating both of us. He also wasn't that good either. He was better than the first guy, but he wasn't that good either. And I continued to play and was struggling against the two of them. The two of them were kicking my ass there. They weren't colluding or anything. It was just I wasn't running well. Then a fourth person sat down. Well, he started beating me too. I played for hours and hours and hours. Not one player sat down who I felt was a good player. And yet... I was getting beat very hard. And I was losing almost every hand. Several hours passed, and I had lost about $7,000 straight. So I was up about 2300 at my high. I lost about 7000 straight. So I was down close to five k. I almost just quit. I mean, it was a very, it was a good game. I wouldn't say it's a great game. It was a good game and that it was an absence of good players. And I do very well in those type of games. So I'm like, if I just ride this out, it's got, it's got to turn around. I've just got to ride this out. I've got to not tilt. I've got to just keep my senses about and it's got to turn around. Well, it did. It did. I, I started to run better. I even put a few bad beats on them myself. And... I started to win and uh, I started getting closer and closer to even 
And finally, I got all my money back. I, I got the 4700 back that I was down. It, by this point, it was a six-handed game. There's all six seats were filled. It's a six-max game, so that's the most there could be. And uh, I, even though the game was still good, I had been playing for so long, I said, you know, screw it, I quit. And, and I quit. I quit even. Which is a lot better than quitting 5K down, but the amount of hours I played in that game, I'm like, oh my, I, I, I wasted so many hours playing just to spin my wheels, ultimately. I know that's a bad way to look at it, but it, it was annoying. Okay, let's take a call here from Mumbles badly. Mumbles, is that you in, in your truck? Yeah, how you doing, man? Well, I was just complaining about like I mean, I spent a long time. I must have played like like ten to twelve hours or something by the time I quit there. And, and it sounded like you got a super bad run of cards. It, yeah, it did. And at the end, of course, it wasn't bad. When I got that five K back at the end, it wasn't a bad run of cards. There was a good run of cards, but but I, I waited forever for that to finally occur again. That, that I should have. I should have crushed that game, and, and it, it went for so long. That could have been a tremendous success story. And instead of, like, a closing, I'm like, a, I could have done so much with that, like, 10 to 12 hours, whatever it was I put into it, than just sit there spinning my wheels and breaking even. That that pissed me off. It would have been worse if I left losing. And I actually thought about it. I'm like, what if I have to quit this, like, like a ton down and then do radio? <laughs> Go to sleep and then, then prepare for radio and do it. That's going to piss me off even more. But at least I got You're the call, money back. You're calling sick. Yeah, I almost thought maybe I'll move radio to Sunday so I can win it back tonight. But but so anyway, uh, that that was frustrating. So, so I, you know, every time you tell a story about you know playing online, I'm just amazed how many people are still playing limit poker online. I, I mean, it's it's crazy. The game has been solved. No, well, it hasn't been solved. It's, I, what I will say is that I'm surprised that there's enough interest in it. For people to sit down who aren't already very good at it, that's that's what I'm surprised about. Is I'm not surprised that the uh, the Minnesota Limit Hold'em All Stars still want to sit there and play. Uh, I, I'm more surprised. Okay. I'm more surprised that like like the fish or the the semi fish that they have an interest in sitting in that as opposed to No Limit and and my or or, or even PLO. And, and my only guess is just they don't feel comfortable at No Limit or PLO. They just maybe they think they're good at Limit. I don't know what to say, but. Somehow they're right, there. Right. Somehow they're there, and I'm happy they're there. But I, I don't understand who they are or where they come from. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's money laundering. Yeah, I, I don't care. That the, the under if they want to launder money and lose it to me, then go ahead. I'll take it. Yeah, exactly. Well, listen, I, I just wanted to say one thing. Uh, I'm hoping you and your family stay healthy through all this. Okay, well, thank you. And I'm glad that you are. You know, trying to convince your fellow Republicans not to be idiots about this because uh, there are enough idiots in the world besides people intentionally, you know, breaking the coronavirus shutdown in order to be political or boost the stock market. You know. Yeah, and I, and I want to say I understand the other. I understand the argument of, of we've got to get the economy going. And we can't just hide forever and ever, and it can cause major damage to the economy. I can understand that, and I, and I can appreciate that, and I think that does have to be done uh, in some way, and it has to be figured out the right way to do it. And uh, you can't just ignore the economy and say, "Oh, if we only save one life, then that's worth it." No, it's not. Not if not if you destroy the economy, you're going to destroy a lot more than one life. So you can't you can't take that attitude. But but. Uh, uh, everybody's got to be sensible about this and, and try to forget about politics. And that's what I do. When I try to think about how do I see this coronavirus situation, I just put politics out of my head. I, I don't care what Trump thinks. I don't care what the Democrats think. I, I just think about what I think is the correct way to handle it. And that's that's the way I approach it. 
I'm out here on the road. I am seeing a lot of people wearing masks. Not many. But I've been trying to avoid stopping at the bigger truck stops or the truck stops in bigger cities. Yeah. And uh, I don't, I'm, I'm not working the food side of the business, but we are deemed essential so we can keep going. But uh, the product we deliver, which is considered essential, it's still down like 70 or 80 percent. Hmm. Well, some of the drivers in my dedicated team have, have been switched off to do other stuff, probably work on the food side. Yeah, well, I, I hope that you stay safe yeah. there, and uh, you know it's uh, yeah. Stay, people stay home, so the traffic is better, and we're less likely to, uh, truckers are less likely to catch that thing. That 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 is true. That uh, where you pick up some extra danger from catching the coronavirus, you actually have uh, probably you're probably getting a net gain from this in the road safety increase from fewer people on the road. Absolutely. So I guess the funny thing is that some people are driving more recklessly. I, I have seen that. Yeah, but, uh, that, that, yes, that that's true. There, there could be more reckless driving because there's a belief that there won't be as much enforcement, or there's not, not many cars to worry about. But but it is true. Just fewer vehicles on the road is, is safer. The, the other thing is, you know, a lot of truckers like myself are out of shape. You know, and uh, high blood pressure, overweight. So if we catch it, we're more likely to suffer the worst, the worst symptoms, you know. Yeah. So more people stay home. Yeah, well, I, I, I hope better, you don't get you know, it. Safer it is for us out here. I hope you don't get it. And everything's okay there. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm glad I give you something to listen to when you're driving, though. Now, do you listen to the call to listen line when you're driving when I'm not live? No, I, I like the quality. I got I got unlimited data plan, so okay. I I listen to the uh, over the internet. Okay. The, end, so, yeah, the right. only time I'll do the call to listen line is if I want to listen to music at the same time. You know, I got a plan that can do data and cellular at the same time. So I'll sometimes put a call to listen line, and then I'll put on some music in the background. So you know, it makes it more like a you know a high production value show. <laughs> you know what's funny is I actually appeared as a guest on a on a different show, not about poker, but just a, a different uh, show. I won't go into details about it but uh, this is, uh, maybe five months ago and this is one that puts music in the background as they talk and, and my girlfriend listened to it and she says I like your show better I don't like this music in the background it's distracting <laughs> so uh, is it okay you know, I, it, it, the funny thing is that if the music is too soft it's you're sort of like because I, I watch some you know I listen to some shows that they have that like narration shows about history or whatever and if the music is too soft, you're not really aware that it's music, and all of a sudden there's like the sound, and you're wondering whether it's something going else, you know, something going up. So it's got to be like a delicate balance of being too soft or too loud. Yeah. I guess that's hard to achieve. Well, okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to shut down the show here. This, is, uh, this has been a very long one. It's maybe the longest one ever, actually, for me. Yeah, well, I'm, uh, I'm in Central Time, and... Uh, it's a complete surprise to wake up and see the show still going. Yeah, it's a surprise to me, too. All right, you'll be, you be, you be healthy, sir. Okay, thank you. You too, Mumbles. Goodbye. Bye-bye. All righty. That's it. That is it. No more. We're done. I'm playing the music. We're finished. It's completed. 
It looks like Saturday is probably the day for the foreseeable future. If it changes, it'll be announced on twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert, our Twitter account. And I hope that if you have not caught the coronavirus yet, that you stay away from it. That's what I'm going to attempt to do. Also, if I have it, it's going to knock out this show for a while. I'm not going to be able to do this if I have it. It does affect your voice. It does affect your throat. So, this is not going to happen if I have it. That's another reason you need to hope that I don't get it if you want the show to continue. Sometimes I think towards the near future, and I think, what's that going to look like? Isn't this crazy? What does the future of sports look like? What does the future of our economy look like? What does the future of this virus look like? What does my future with this virus look like? And it's kind of scary to think about. Sometimes I don't even want to think about it. I just stop and I go, you know what? I'm just going to take it as it comes. And it's just something no one's ever dealt with. And who knows where it's going to go. But I hope the show can provide you a distraction from all of that stress. And I'll just keep putting it out here once a week. By the way, if you're trying to log on to PokerFraudAlert.com and there's some weird error messages coming up about divide by zero, I know about it. You don't have to tell me. I'm going to try to work on this later today after I get some sleep. That's all for this very long show. Good morning, good night, and Shalom.